Well, greetings and welcome, all you commanders, eagles, and angels. This is Rainbird, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Tara Rama's history, history of Nisera and our galactic origin. So, Cheryl's not here today. She's with her family, and let's take a few moments to go into our heart space. And let's bring us in with that heartbeat, too, with the drum, the key drum. So come, take up your gel breath, breathe in through your nose, out through your mouth, whatever breathing protocol you like to do. We go, bring that breath into our heart space. Gather with your guides, your guardians, your spirit team, those you like to journey to join them. And then you just gather around this council fire that's in the center. Come in close. And notice what direction you are standing in, what direction you face. Where are the directions in that place where you are? You know where the east is and the north. We're just going to start by looking into the east. And we're going to tone those directions first. So please join as we tone, <laughs> as we call in the seven sacred directions in the Cherokee tradition. Right. The divine masculine 
that lower energy, that rising sun, that power of protection, be with us as we begin this journey. Wado. Now I'll take to the north. Twilight, that sacred time and place in between. Be with us on our journey. 
you know, that's the thing. You look easy. You in our heart. Loving our hurts and fears. Sit with us. Keepers 
this is how we make that happen. We go into our heart space and see what is ours to give. And then we go to bbsradio.com and click on Radio Station 2. We're looking for the menu there, and uh, we're looking for Thursday, Friday, and Saturday shows. The Thursday show and night at the round table with the panel is at the 6 o'clock hour. There's a little icon there. If you click on that icon, that takes you directly to our account with DDS Radio. And there you can make a donation in any amount. And so that holds true with the Friday show, the 6 o'clock hour, neither specific times. <laughs> and that is the hard news on Friday nights with Tara and Lama. And then also our this program at the 1.30 hour, the true history, history, and the Sarah and our galactic origins. So we're grateful that you take that action. And if you click on that, any of these icons, that takes you to our account with BDS. So lots of gratitude for your participation in this way. We're so grateful to gather this way each week. So thank you, BDS. Thank you, uh, Tara and Rama and, and the panel. And thank you, all of you, for coming together as we as we do each week this way. So lots of gratitude. Then we're also assisting Tara Rollo with their news. And I first want to thank each and every one of you for all that you did to contribute contribute to Rent Week and all the bills associated with it at the same time. We made it. They they got their rent paid. They got their bills paid. And all they need this week is just their gas money, their living expenses. That ability to buy the kitty litter and the and and the food and the and the gas for the car, all those good things. So, um, thank you. Uh, Three hundred dollars would be be good, and and more would be sweet. Um, <laughs> whatever whatever comes in, we're grateful for it. And here's how we make a donation to Rama's PayPal cow. You want to go to Rama's PayPal account, and that link is at the rainbowroundtable.net on the website. And as you click on the menu grid on the home page, you will see the donate link near the bottom of that long list of all the things that are on that site. And click on that, and that'll take you to Rama, link you to Rama's PayPal. Um, so, as you're making a donation and you have your own PayPal account and would like to make a use the friends option, you need Rama's email at PayPal, and that is as follows. Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 9999 at hotmail.com. And that's how you link to that option. So thank you, thank you, thank you for taking that action. As you're sending something, please let Rama know. And here's his email, his personal email for that. It is Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 999 at comcast.net. <clears throat> so there you go. Let him know what you sent, when you sent it, and then as you need it, his physical address is as follows. Rom D. Berkowitz, B-E-R-K, 
O W I T Z, Post Office Box 280280. And that is in Santa Cruz, New Mexico. And the zip code is 87567. So I'll repeat that town. State is Santa Cruz and New Mexico. And the zip 87567. So there you have it. All the information you need. Uh, yeah, so thanks for taking that action and participating <laughs> that way. And also, I, I want to give you the addresses for the New Gen Coin, which is launching on the stock exchange with the New Gen Coin. And then there's other coins that are still in the, in the realms there. So lots of activity going on with that. That address is HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash www.newgen n-u-g-e-n coin dot com forward slash t-a-r-r-a-m and then also the um, site for Fremart if you want, wish you join this is where you join and it's also where you look around and see anything you want there and there's lots of good stuff so that address https colon forward slash forward slash www.shopfreemart.com forward slash T-A-R-R-A-M So that that does it. Thank, thank you. 13 thank yous and honey in the heart. Long life. Live long, oh, live long and prosper and no evil. And I'm passing this talking stick and it has <laughs> it's it's loaded with fireworks, including the leftovers from Canada Day, apparently, because I'm still seeing truckers involved. <laughs> but anyway, everybody here and all all the uh, all the herbs and gems and, and rays of the rainbow and all the birds, the feathers and and uh, fairies are all there. There's lots of little people. The elves, the dwarves, the gnomes, the manahoonies, and along comes this beautiful unicorn, and and of course dragon is is here leading the charge with lots of fireworks. So greetings, <laughs> and Excalibur sort of truth is with us too. So greetings, Star and Rama. Here comes this talking stick. Greetings. All you commanders, eagles, and angels, as we say. Thank you, Rainbird. Thank you, Rainbird, and... Um, Thank you, everyone, for coming here. Happy Independence Day, yes. as we can make something happen here that's sensible on this uh, side of the pond regarding situations of uh, empirical hubris that goes beyond the pale and all kinds of people are dead because of it and the policies the policies haven't really changed right? Uh, 
Yeah, it seems like the Matrix is kind of still there, but there are large chunks of it that are gone. And folks are waking up like never before. And And where the policies haven't changed and that empirical hubris that has nothing to do with right action, uh, they just dictate lies. Yeah, like this new crazy law they just passed in Florida with, you know, that governor. Parental rights and education law. It went into effect yesterday. All of this is to play with the idea that if you're white, well, you're okay. If you're any other color, forget it. Oh, that hasn't got to do with that. It has to do with your gender issues. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. And that's another thing uh, people need to comprehend because... um, uh, the body is not who we are. Yet the body that we we choose at a higher level has proclivities that have nothing to do with you being able to change that. And and, and that's that's true. So that's another thing the church doesn't bother with, but. Uh, being gay is not a choice. It just isn't. It's got to do with the way the body's, uh, a hormonic, uh, It's about souls coming in and making choices to change on a global scale the way folks Interact with each other. Well, it's not. Let me, okay, go ahead. It's about this higher realm that is interwoven with this realm, and there are many realms. And when a soul comes in and chooses the parents on. A higher level, the parents also know about this soul coming in. They get telepathic messages, they get dreams. It's all interconnected because we incarnate as soul groups to make tremendous change on this planet. And certain souls come in and They might choose to be in a male body, but be feminine. It's more than that. There is an actual physical, I don't have the science, but the body, even though it's got different parts, there's something about the genetic, the physicality of the body, even though it has body parts that are different than what the gender really is. I wish I knew better about how to describe it, but 
it's just not, you know, when a four-year-old is deciding to dress like a girl and they've got boy parts. Yeah. I, that doesn't have anything to do with anything except the arrangement of the physicality. How do we, else do we say it? It's not a, it's not a choice in that sense. Yeah. And how we change our consciousness about souls coming in and making choices, you know, let us respect the choices. Well, I mean, the church says you're committing all kinds of sins. The only idea of sin is someone getting in the way of someone else going home. That's what i got to say about sin. <laughs> And that's where Mother intercedes. So that's where the church says, you know, unless you get baptized, you're just a sinner from the time you're born. Well, then I recommend go seeing Raiders of the Lost Ark. And if you want to mess with the energy of Creator Source, you know what you saw in that movie. Tell me what you mean by that. Oh, the Nazis opened up the Ark of the Covenant and they all got blasted with the light of the most radiant one. And they turned it to goo on the floor. The Nazis did. Yeah. Because they knew better what they were doing something because they liked to kill people. Well, actually, in the intricacies of the storyline... The Nazis wanted the actual Ark. When they opened it and they stuck their hand in the box, all they had was sand. But what they didn't realize is that it's on an energetic level. You don't mess with the energy of Creator Source. And there were nine Arks, not one. And that's a whole other story for a whole other day. Yet they are part of the technologies that go into the stories about these 13 families and the fallen angels and the wars in heaven and on earth and (laughs) Jehovah Lilith and Lucifer and it's a big story the arcs are directly involved and how I could also say is what has been put out in the so-called good book, all the people in the Bible were black. They were not white. And... There wasn't anything called a white race at the beginning at all. That was... No. What happened is that they... Anki uh, and then Will had their way with the genetics and... Human. Yeah, they drained the melanin out of the skin intentionally. And this is the missing story that's not being discussed except on Ancient Aliens and a few other websites that YouTube doesn't really block, even though they block Chris Hedges on YouTube. Yeah, Because he's telling the truth. Oh, my God. (laughs) But if you talk about Anunnaki and E.T., I guess YouTube doesn't mind, do they? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, if they talk about Anunnaki and E.T. That you know, the idea that, you know, the I mean, I see all these videos on YouTube that are not blocked, but 
you know, Chris Hedges has told us straight out that YouTube got rid of all their stuff and they did that to Abby Martin as well. Because um, the content. They got rid of pretty much on the Dish Network anyway and on the other one. What's the other one? RT? No. No, the other network that's called Dish. Link. No. Dish is called a corporation. It's a company. Oh, Direct. Direct TV. They got rid of RT. They got rid of RT. Yeah, they did. I mean, uh, where did Offsheen Rajanzi go? I don't see the hiding her hair of him since Mm. that happened. Yeah, I don't know. And, of course, Stacey Herbert. Um... Um, Max Kaiser. Max Kaiser. And uh, that just reminds me, I'm encouraging you if you're involved with um, the new gen coin, engage other members of family and friends. It's not going on the exchange until I believe the actual date will be the 15th of July. Uh, you can still purchase it, although, I mean, we signed up, it's, uh, I think it's a year and a month ago, mm-hmm. and the coins were only a nickel, they were yeah. only worth a nickel a piece, so we got a whole bunch of coins for a nickel, and then more recently now, I mean, it went up. I don't know, from a nickel to 11 cents or something, and then went up to 32 cents, 32.9 cents, then it went to 39.5 cents, and then it went up to 48-something point six cents, and then it went up to 74 cents, 74.5 cents, I think. I think that's where it is still. It's at 88 cents. Oh, Okay. So now it's up to 88 cents, but still, it's going to go way up. You know, when it goes on, opens to the exchange, we're talking about dollar, two hours, three dollars, four dollars per coin. So in this little while, engage uh, your family and friends because... You uh, won't regret it. It will never be regretted. I'm just saying, it works, and it's not multi-level marketing at all. Thank God. This is called side-by-side. Love and marriage. (laughs) But it's, 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 it's the new way of being in the world. And this will increase and multiply in terms of financial freedom in everybody's life uh, in a way that's never it's never happened before, this way of doing it. And this multi-billionaire that's backing uh, this, com- this new-gen coin, and, and I'll just say John Austin's got plenty of money too. Mm-hmm. And they're going to have hard assets on everything. They've temporarily put the hemp coin on the back burner because 
they don't want to interfere with the opportunity of having a chance for marijuana to be totally legalized from a national standpoint. And uh, so they're going to leave that so that it's not going to entangle things. I, I'll just put it that way because the chances of that happening are really good right now. Yeah. Uh, so engage, as the captain would say. Yes. And nobody will regret this. This is the most incredibly fantastic situation that's ever happened to humanity on the planet. It's equality and prosperity and right livelihood. Well, um, I did hear this today in the local news is that um, they want to try to keep the whip nuclear nuclear isolation plant down in Carlsbad open and they're inviting everybody next Thursday to show up at City Hall in Santa Fe and just say, heck no, you're not going to put any more nuclear waste in our state. Wait a minute, which which, where is the, the whip, whip site? site in Carlsbad Caverns where the trucks go down oh, the high, highway and bad news. Yeah. They, they, they are, they are taking, uh, what do you call that? Plutonium, right? Low level plutonium stuff like tools, like clothing and gloves and the different kinds of things. That you do, and they're stashing it in this cave down there. A salt mine. Yeah, which means that it's leaching into Mother Earth in a way. Yeah. Well, it's, there's, there's. It's not a good thing. Yeah. In other words, it's con- going to contaminate the people that are going down there and doing that. Yeah. And it's going to contaminate the soil. And it will contaminate the air, and it'll continue to contaminate. And again, making more bombs, nuclear bombs. Well, really, mm. that's where the nuclear waste is coming from. From making bombs to start. Right. I got hit with a massive dose of plutonium because it leaked from Los Alamos Labs where it was being stored out back. What happened? How did that happen? I don't... We were driving up towards El Rito on Highway 285. Mm-hmm. And we were barely out of Santa Fe. And I stopped breathing. <laughs> because the, as... As the crow flies, the radiation from Los Alamos labs is only 30 miles, uh, and it would cross the highway right where we went past it. And uh, so both Rama and I got dosed with plutonium massively. The thing was that I had a double broken neck, and... uh, that combined with the the uh, plutonium 
had a stronger effect on me. I mean, we had the windows closed and had the air conditioner on, but that air came from outside, and we didn't realize that it was, you know, plutonium in the air. And uh, the only thing that saved my life, although it was a double entendre, is I rolled the window all the way down. We were traveling 65 miles an hour, and I opened and put my head out the window and opened my mouth, and it forced my lungs to breathe. But then I got a really dose and a half of plutonium. Yet what we have learned and had discussions on here from, and this is really the issue, is that humanity, as humanity decides to to not do nuclear anything, then all of the repercussions of everybody that's getting contaminated will be able to be resolved by the resolve of the whole of humanity to stop it. That being said, how do we do that? Take a quantum leap into the realm that I keep, you know, talking about that we're, in a sense, um... The beings, known and unknown, seen and unseen, are taking another step to help us mitigate the issues going on. And as we want to reach even a type 1 civilization, connecting with type 2 civilizations out there, we will stop using nuclear fission as a way to boil water or make energy. It is insane. (laughs) Nikola Tesla told us, you know, energies, vibrations, frequencies, and the sound frequencies, you can boil water with sound frequencies. I mean... I bring this into the realm, you know, the Hutchison effect. They used these frequencies to take down the towers. Where did the towers go? Dr. Judy Wood. They got vaporized, you know, aside from, you know, (laughs) basement nukes, you know, and particle beams. The Hutchison Effect. Go look that up on YouTube. Oh, my God. Yeah. Too many wild stories. And it's all about the fact we never needed to touch a drop of oil. In other words... Um... What has to happen is that um, knowledge of the truth must be imparted across the planet. So these hearings are amazing because that's what's happening there. And it's not just about Donald Trump. Donald Trump was planned, and I've said this a million times, and the 13 families 
abused and used their ability to create a loveless being intentionally along with his his uh minions I'm talking about along with Trump's um so-called parents they're not his parents that oh, yeah they were part of the plan illuminati plan to raise him as a loveless being along with the dna that they created and it's not about trump it's about the 13 families it's about the vatican you know everything kind of looks like that vatican is just in the background and it's not it's still playing havoc oh they said i heard this on bbc news today the pope is not going to the the democratic republic of the congo cuz he is ill and they're not saying what he's got but he's too ill to travel and was he supposed to go there for a reason yeah to do something in the next week and they canceled all his trips and everything and i'm not sure exactly what he's got yet you know the stories are even though he might be a clone or a hologram that office you know the vatican is falling that's all yeah, i yeah and say. i mean the pope is gay that's fine but he didn't, it's not fine that he has been exercising his gayhood under a vow of poverty chastity and obedience which is what you must take to become a priest and anything on upward from that so that's called hypocrite wait a minute no <laughs> so come on come finish Miss Tegan will get what she needs as you complete your work here. Say say what you want to complete from. Oh, I I'm done. You're done. Yeah. Um Well, why don't you tell Okay, we're going to play a pirate TV which is going to be a really uh a review of the empire in terms of war and the addiction to it uh to maintain power uh and there's three or four very interesting individuals that were going to make contributions there and i think it's a worthy listen and that'll be an hour and then rama's going to play something it's called vedic origins of civilization impossible knowledge of the cosmos in ancient india and the vedic civilization was the culture and traditions of the society prevalent during the vedic age and that was from 225 22500 bc to 5600 bc this civilization that's a bit long dearies 
Oh, well, people lived a long time there. <laughs> um, well, uh, they talked about Methuselah being 900 years old, right? Yeah, and the people in the Mahabharata were like 10,000, 15,000 or more years old. Oh, you're making that one up. You don't know that. I don't know. <laughs> no, all you know is that you know someone that's 20,000 years old. Mm -hmm. And Rama's going to go visit Leonara on Monday. She's going to have some things to share. But that brings up another thing. We're going to do a little study about it on Sunday, Ram and I. Uh, it's really important to start studying the uh, trust indentures that Leonara passed on. And Leonara told Rama that the one in Belize is a very safe venue Yes. to set up those trust indentures. And for people that are in the uh, New Gen Coin project, it would be very good idea to learn how to set up those trust indentures. And maybe, Rama, you can send those to Don and Doug so they can look at it too. Oh, okay. And uh, and Penny's got them on, up there on her website, so you can take a look at that. Um, because the corruption is at such a screaming height of disingenuous behavior that this, uh, in the hands of about 166 people who have multi-multi-trillions of dollars in their pockets, which nobody talks about, they have been keeping the war machine going for their own profit. And uh, as we were learning from all the things we've been going through, they they created this virus. Well, they created it with some additional things to make it spread and kill humanity. They're called discord and sound frequencies. And they targeted certain people that they don't like much. And, of course, ignorance is not bliss, and that's uh, everybody's waking up right now, but they have already successfully eliminated all somewhere between five and five and a half billion human beings. And this is not acceptable. So what we're saying is this yuga or whatever this this civilization six from fifteen is nine. Let me just see five from eleven is a six. <laughs> Okay, so it's a 16,900-year cycle, the Vedic civilization. That's a long, quite a long cycle. Yeah. So we're going to spend an hour, like I said, learning about um, what this empire is responsible for, which means ultimately all of us who are here on this land have more responsibility uh, than any other place, any piece of land anywhere, because this land was set up as Turtle Island 
And over about a 500-year period, the Anglo-Saxon Europeans came over here and slaughtered a good 200, 160 to 200 million Native Americans. And the Buffalo people, too. So there is nothing valid about this. what's happened since, and especially because they just don't even talk about it. No. So that's really important. So, again, about about how we uh, bring in the teachings of St. Germain and the Violet Flame and something that was written... And even that has some things to be adjusted, but it's uh, uh, it's like uh, it's written by David Allen Rivera, and it was written in 2007, and it's called the Archaeological Conspiracy at Williamsburg, as in Virginia, the mystery of the Bruton Vault, and the Bruton Vault contains the teachings. Of Katumi, Saint Germain, what else? Thoth. Oh, Thoth was Katumi. Oh, okay. Uh. So that's called divine government, and the setting for that to take place is already in progress now. Okay, so with that said, the final person that's going to speak on this hour-long piece, his name is Peter Phillips, and he's a professor of sociology at Sonoma State University, director of Project Censored for 14 years, and the author of a book called Giants, the Global Power Elite. So, let's get started, everybody. All right. Momentito. Um, just got to get to the beginning here. Okay. Here we go. my friend Carl Boggs. He's written 25 books, 10 on the topic of U.S. imperialism and militarism. That includes most, most recently Origins of the Warfare State and the Hollywood War Machine. He has been involved with anti-war movement activities since the 1960s and was urged from his job as professor at Washington University in St. Louis because of his anti-war work. Carl has been a regular contributor to Counterpunch since 1995. I've been reading his latest book, um, Facing Catastrophe. It's really a very heavy book. And I want to introduce Carl Bob. Thank you so much, Frank. Thanks, thanks so much. I'm so honored to be a part of this uh, wonderful event. Um, uh, and I want to thank Frank and Rachel and uh, Code Pink and everybody else involved. Um, I think it would be a very good idea, in fact, uh, to have something like this on a regular basis. Um, I was just thinking, uh, just sitting here, I was just thinking about the fact that it's been um, 55 years or 50, 55, something like that, 
years since I first got involved in anti-war activity, uh, fighting uh, U.S. militarism and imperialism, fighting the uh, war in Vietnam. I was uh, one of the student uh, organizers for the uh, Vietnam Day Committee in uh, the spring of 1965 at UC Berkeley. And I believe it was one of, if not the first, one of the first major protests against the war in Vietnam. And uh, I was uh, very much involved in organizing that. It was right after the free speech movement in Berkeley. And then uh, after that, I wound up uh, going to um, Washington University in St. Louis, where there was a very, very intense anti-war movement. Uh, our, our turnouts were thousands and thousands of people every single day uh, for weeks and months and a couple of years. We burned down two ROTC buildings. Uh, the FBI infiltrated uh, extensively. And after uh, a couple of years working at Washington University, I realized that one of my research assistants was uh, an FBI informant. And then one thing led to another, and I was eventually just purged from the place. I was blacklisted. Uh, basically, my job was finished, my career was finished, and I was blacklisted uh by the uh, mid to late 70s, and uh, the uh, uh, corporate interests that ran the university included McDonald Douglas, Monsanto, and a couple of others. So you can imagine uh, the uh, the uh, the uh, obstacles to uh, doing anti-war movement there were considerable. We did set up uh, a very historic uh, project called McDonald Douglas Anti-Corporate Project. And it was an attempt, one of the few, I think, in the country to merge uh, working class struggles with anti-war struggles. And that lasted for a few years. And then, again, the university eventually put the crush of the crash on that. Um, I wanted to just mention, uh, a number of people have mentioned uh, the, the, uh, the issue of racism in U.S. foreign policy. And I thought about the fact that... Um, in uh, the last over a century, the United States um, has done pretty much everything in its power uh, to destroy uh, six Asian countries. Hasn't completely succeeded, but not for not for trying. The Philippines, Japan, Korea, Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos. Um, and uh, you know the, the the element of racism in this was very, very intense. Uh, John Dower, uh, uh, historian, wrote a book, uh, War Without Mercy, talked about how the war in the Pacific was uh, considerably more racist than the war in Europe. And in fact, at one point, this was before Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, uh, under uh, the direction of Curtis LeMay, uh, the United States Air Force obliterated 66 German, uh, Japanese cities using incendiary uh, weapons, napalm, and all sorts of other devices that were basically anti-personnel uh, weapons. And uh, that was the lead-up to Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So um, basically every major city in Japan was uh, annihilated. And that same uh, modus operandi was carried forward into Korea, where at one point in time, in fact, um, President Truman was actually considering the use of uh, thermonuclear weapons there. 
Um, what's interesting there, and I was going to talk a little bit about um, the nuclear complex and, of course, uh, that being part of the way in which the, the, the American power structure is able to establish um, uh, its hegemony and maintain its hegemony and use its uh, leverage worldwide because um, the, the the whole issue of, uh, uh, you know, the war economy, the permanent war economy and uh, the uh, empire phases and so forth uh, is solidified and magnified by the fact that there, there's um, the, the presence of such weapons of mass destruction. But what I've argued, and I've written about this uh, before, is that there are actually five different types of weapons of mass destruction. And the United States, of course, is the only country to have used them all. Uh, obviously, nuclear weapons in Japan, uh, chemical, weapon, uh, ch- chemical weapons very extensively in the case of, uh, of Vietnam and uh, Indochina. And then in addition to that, uh, what's not very widely known is that um, biological warfare was introduced in Korea. And uh, it was not very successful, but it was used by the United States um, in Korea. And then two other weapons of mass destruction, one of which I just mentioned, was what I would call aerial terrorism. That is to say, saturation bombing of uh, large cities with the, with the intent of basically leveling them and destru- destroying, uh, you know, the civilian population there. That would have to be considered uh, a weapon of mass destruction. And then the fifth, which the United States has used very liberally and very extensively over the last basically nearly a century, is uh, economic sanctions. Mm-hmm. The worst, of course, being what the Clinton administration did uh, against Iraq. Uh, killing uh, upwards of a half a million people, mostly children, uh, in the 1990s. So the United States um, not only has conducted very extensively you know, forms of uh, racist warfare in the Pacific and elsewhere, but has conducted uh, these different uh, forms of uh, weapons of mass destruction uh, throughout. And um, again, uh, I think it's worth, because a lot of times people just think, when they think of WMD, they think in terms of uh, they think in terms of uh, nuclear weapons, and that maybe about it. But there are actually five different types. The United States has relied upon those, uh, many of them fairly extensively, um, especially uh, aerial terrorism and uh, economic sanctions. Um, I just wanted to basically talk a little bit about the degree to which the nuclear complex sits so centrally into the American power structure. Today, the American power structure is not only the most um, powerful, uh, the most globalized, but also the most threatening power structure, I believe, in the history of the world and the um, the development of uh, nuclear, the nuclear complex and nuclear power fits very centrally with, within that. Um, one of the things the United States has done against the statutes of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation uh, Treaty, ENPT, uh, is to continue the modernization of nuclear weaponry. Labs, facilities, deployments, subs, planes, uh, bomb types, tactical nuclear weapons, uh, networks in the field. Uh, there's an extensive uh, U.S. nuclear deployment in Europe. 
uh, some some commentators have mentioned, and uh, that is continuing uh, and is uh, expanding uh, right now. Um, so that that is um, the process of modernization, which is earmarked really to cost about a trillion dollars over the next uh, three decades, is ongoing with the United States. That's an that's in violation of the nuclear. Um, uh, non-proliferation treaty because um, uh, the treaty basically uh, injuncts, uh, it has an injunction that states that uh, you know all nuclear states should move towards uh, disarmament and of course the United States is moving in just uh, the opposite direction. Um, what I wanted to just point out here is that I think at this point in time we are at a point where I think the threat of global nuclear catastrophe is probably as great, if not greater, than at any point in recent history. And I think that's the case for uh, at least four reasons. One is this process of modernization. The process of modernization here, of course, uh, inspires the process of more modernization in Russia and China and elsewhere, which feeds into the nuclear arms races, which we continue to have. Um, even though the number of nuclear warheads is far less than what it was at the peak of the Cold War, where we had tens and tens of thousands, now there's globally maybe 15,000, 16,000 warheads. Uh, the fact is that the warheads that exist are much more powerful, much more accurate, uh, and much more efficient than the earlier warheads. So it's misleading to think that there's been some sort of reduction in overall you know, nuclear uh, power. Uh, uh, available in the world. Um, the threat of, of uh, accidental war is also much greater at this point in time, uh, owing to um, the possibilities of, of uh, computer malfunction, um, faulty intelligence, power failures, human error, um, cyber warfare. All these things have, I think, exacerbated the threat of accidental nuclear war. Uh, we know, and I think I, I think that it's um, pointed out in uh, Dan Ellsberg's book uh, um, that um, I think we've had six episodes just since the early 1980s of near uh, in, near uh, nuclear war coming from uh, this kind of uh, accidental situation. Third, um, we see uh, a mounting conflict between the United States and Russia. With the U.S. NATO push, uh, you know, eastward, the deployments uh, near Russian borders um, and military exercises there, economic sanctions, ongoing threats. Um, this has been a process that particularly intense since uh, the 90s, with the dismemberment of Yugoslavia, the attack on Serbia, then subsequent attacks on, um, uh, you know, on in involvements in Georgia and Ukraine, bringing the United States much closer to um, an intense geopolitical conflict with Russia. That is continuing, and of course, what's exacerbated that is Russia Gate, um, which um, has produced uh, a new Cold War between the United States and Russia, and now we have a situation with two nuclear powers are facing off against each other under the most tense of conditions. We know also 
uh, and Eric Mann mentioned this, and some others have mentioned it as well, uh, we know that um, one of the neocon uh, objectives is um, to uh, target Russia, hoping to isolate and weaken uh, the country, uh, if not very basically carry out some form of regime change. I believe re- regime change is basically on the agenda here as far as the neocons uh, are concerned. I would say a fifth problem uh, contributing to the possible um, intensification of uh, or the possible increasing threat of thermonuclear war is uh, the problem of nuclear proliferation. And uh, that is not anything that the United States or any country uh, really presently has done much to correct. So I would uh, argue that um, uh, the political alternative here is that given the present threat that we face, um, the only uh, the only solution is some sort of rapid move towards full-scale nuclear disarmament consistent with uh, the dictates of the, national, the NPT. That should be a prevailing goal of humanity. Unfortunately, it is the American power structure described above that remains the biggest impediment to such um, historic move. And insane and immoral U.S. foreign policy must be changed, and very soon. And I think the fact that we see these recent moves towards the demonization, or we should say the further demonization of Russia and Putin, are not exactly contributing to this uh, process. i just make one final comment. I think it's really a sad commentary to think the degree to which many, uh, many progressives and many leftists are sort of bought into this demonization process. It's not really helping uh, the cause of peace. It's only helping the cause of war. So, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Carl. Very important testimony. We're going to have more on Cold War and the environment at the end of the program in the chat and a little bit um, live. Next, we have um, a super special guest. Uh, Medea is moving up in the program a little. Thank you so much on the East Coast for, for staying uh, awaken with us, Medea. Um, she will be speaking on her experience with the seeing the Cold War's effect on the African liberation struggles in Africa. Medea Benjamin is the co-founder of the group Code Pink, Women for Peace, and the co-founder of the human rights group Global Exchange. She has been an advocate for social justice for more than 40 years. Medea writes books. She speaks at many anti-war events. She organizes and takes activists to other countries, and she has spoken out at government events, where she is often removed from the room for interrupting. But she is actually speaking truth to power. Medea? Well, thank you so much, Rachel. And it's really amazing what you and Frank and Mary behind the scenes there have organized. I've met people uh, or seen and heard them that I've long wanted to meet, and it just seems like such a rich uh, bringing together of so many aspects of this Cold War. Uh, like many of the other speakers, my life has really been shaped by the Cold War, including the Vietnam War. Uh, when I was in high school, I was taught that if we didn't stop communism over there, we would be fighting communism here at home. And then when my sister's boyfriend was drafted to go and fight in Vietnam, and he sent her home the ear of a Viet Cong as a souvenir, that's when I 
joined the anti-war movement, which I had never left. Uh, my government's hatred of communism really uh, inspired me to learn more about it, not just by reading the books of Marx and Lenin, uh, but also first as a hippie and later as a UN nutritionist and an economist, uh, traveling the world in support of liberation and socialist struggles. And everywhere I went, I was devastated to find that my own government was supporting the most reactionary forces that were trying to quash any of these experiments. This was especially true in Africa, where anti-communism and U.S. corporate interests colored virtually every aspect of U.S. policy. Take, for example, the Congo, formerly a colony of Belgium, where the liberation leader, Patrice Lumumba, scared the U.S. corporations. They feared they would lose access to the nation's vast minerals. Uh, they accused him of being close to the Soviets. And in 1961, the U.S. government helped orchestrate a coup in which he was killed and replaced with the dictator, Mobuto Sese Seku, who robbed the nation's resources, ruled over the people brutally for three decades. Anti-communism put the U.S. in bed with the despicable apartheid government in South Africa, the brutal Portuguese colonial rulers in Angola, Mozambique, Guinea-Bissau, the white minority government of Ian Smith in Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, which only yielded to majority rule in 1980. I worked in uh, Africa for much of the uh, latter part of the 70s and into the uh, early part of the 80s, and I saw firsthand the devastation of the Cold War. I want to give the example when I went to work in Mozambique. Mozambique had just won its independence in 1975 after a long, ruling armed struggle. But there was elation that they were building something new, something exciting, something different. The president was Samora Machel. His wife was Grasso Machel, who later married Nelson Mandela after Michelle died in a mysterious plane crash. But Samora Michelle was a terrific leader. He used to be a nurse. He left nursing to join a liberation struggle and fight with the movement for Limo. After independence, I remember he would gather thousands of people together every single week in the sports stadium. And first they would start out singing with five-part harmony. Uh, and then he would give long talks and have discussions with the people and empower them about building a new society. The Portuguese had been among the worst, well, the worst colonizers in the world. They left a totally impoverished nation with a 95% illiteracy rate. Frilimo's motto was, each one teach one, and everywhere you looked, under the trees, under the rooftops, in the evenings, in the schools, people would teach each other how to read and write, how to add and, to add and subtract. I was working as a nutritionist, and every day we worked with farmers in the fields to increase yields so they could better feed the people. Everywhere there was tremendous excitement. We were building a new society, becoming a model for the rest of Africa, a model of cooperation, overcoming tribal differences, liberating women, empowering youth. But this cooperative model of empowered black citizens was a threat to U.S. allies in the white-ruled South Africa and Rhodesia. They labeled the Mozambican government communist and began funding an armed opposition movement called Reynamo. Reynamo began to attack villages. They burned entire villages, 
raped women, took them as sex slaves. They forced children to become soldiers. In fact, a third of their forces were children. They destroyed hospitals, roads, schools, any infrastructure that existed. This war lasted for 15 years. About a million people were killed or starved, five million displaced. The U.S. government's own study said a large number of civilians in these attacks were victims of purposeful shooting deaths and executions, of axing, killing, bayoneting, burning to death, forced drowning and asphyxiation, and other forms of murder where no meaningful resistance or defense is present. This sounds very much like the extremist forces terroring Mozambicans today, who call themselves followers of ISIS and publicly behead women and children. One can make the argument that the breakdown of society during Reynaldo's long, brutal war paved the way for the devastating attacks today. While Africa continues to feel the consequences of the last Cold War, it's also the site of competition today between the United States and China. China is expanding its influence by building infrastructure and making investments all over the continent, including buying up land. The U.S. is building military bases and beefing up AFRICOM. But if you want to see a real example of solidarity with Africa, look at the poor, small island nation of Cuba. While working in Africa, I met Cubans all over the continent. They weren't exploiting the resources or profiting from business ventures or building up military bases. No. Some of them were there as soldiers to stop right-wing forces, but most of them, over 100,000 Cubans, went to Africa working as much-needed doctors, nurses, teachers, technicians, and living in some of the poorest villages on the continent. And tens of thousands of African youth were invited to Cuba to study for free, becoming doctors, engineers, and other professionals. Most recently, Cuban doctors and nurses have been traveling around the continent, treating people for COVID and stopping its spread. It's amazing that this impoverished island nation of 11 million people, battered by the United States for 60 years as part of the Cold War, exemplifies such a beautiful example of solidarity. As Mozambique's first president, Samora Michel, said back in 1975, International solidarity is not an act of charity. It's an act of unity between allies fighting on different terrains towards the same objectives. The foremost of these objectives, he said, is to aid the development of humanity to the highest level possible. Let us practice solidarity by working hard to shut down AFRICOM and U.S. bases now littered across the continent. Let us work together with our African neighbors to fight COVID and other diseases and hunger at home and abroad and address the climate crisis that's creating million of African, millions of African refugees. As Samora Michelle ended every talk with the people, a luta continua, victoria es certa. The struggle continues. Victory is certain. Thank you. Thank you so much, Medea. Brava. You know, and leave it to Medea to come up with an, another amazing project. Um, Africa, let's steer this uh, Cold War Truth Commission, definitely, um, and and work on, on everything that you just mentioned. So incredible. Why don't we, you introduce Father Roy? Thank you, Sarah. Um, 
Okay, thanks, Rachel. Um, Roy, Roy Bourgeois, uh, Father Roy, we like to call him, he, he um, uh, served in the Navy as an officer in Vietnam, and after that he was moved by what he saw there, so he joined the Maryland Missionaries, same with Blaise and Teresa Bonpanger, and uh, ordained to the priesthood in 1972, and he served the poor of South and Central America. His, his experiences with death squads uh, there impelled him to oppose the U.S. training of armies in counterinsurgency at Fort Benning, Georgia. Hundreds of thousands have demonstrated to close the infamous School of America. Uh, Roy was founded in School of America's Watch in 1990. And in 2008, he decided he must also address an injustice closer at home, that of the exclusion of women from the Catholic, Roman Catholic priesthood. His refusal to recant and deny the dictates of his conscience eventually led to his being excommunicated as a priest by the Catholic Church. He was a marital priest for 45 years. And they, he didn't kick him out because he was fighting against U.S. foreign policy. They didn't kick him out because he was one of the closest school Americans. They kicked him out because he wanted women to become priests. Anyway, we love Roy. And there's a clip we're going to show now. It's from the, the clip. This is a short clip. And it's from the film Paying the Price for Peace. It's by Wes Brown Wilson. And it's about the school Americans. And it features Roy and Brian. Yeah, he's also in it, and Mark Sheen are also in this clip you're going to see. The train attack drew attention to the U.S. military's involvement in illegal wars, highlighting its role in training secret armies for other countries. Most of the covert training took place in Fort Benning, Georgia, at the notorious School of the Americas. <laughs> As we gather today at the main gate of Fort Benning, this is a very sacred moment. We cannot go about the business of killing without being changed. We cannot come back from Vietnam, Afghanistan, Iraq, and other wars and go on with our lives as before. No. You know, all these suicides, the PTSD that we're reading so much about now, the message is clear. We are not made for war. This is where SOA Watch started, right here. I realized something that was uh, staggering to me, but it was uh, something that all of you probably uh, completely understand without having to go to war, and that was that we're all one. We're all connected, and how could I possibly uh, participating in killing other people I did not know just because I was ordered to do it? So I learned how to be disobedient. When 525 Salvadoran soldiers arrived at Fort Benning, Georgia to start training there in combat, a small group of us went there to see not in our name. And what we found through the Freedom of Information Act was a school of assassins, as we learned it was well known in Latin America. A school for dictators. A school of torture. The Washington Post front page, along with the New York Times, had a very big article about the, the, the torture manuals that were used at the School of the Americas. Techniques of torture. This is serious. This is serious stuff. We've crimes against humanity here. And it was time 
throughout the world. Let's gather here every November that we came before Thanksgiving. And in the name of solidarity, let us come and call for the closing of this school of assassins. And something happened. We started with 10, and then the next year, you know, 100 came. And then the next year, 500, then 1,000, then 3,000, 5,000, 10,000. All of a sudden, we had 20,000 people gathering here. And when they sent us to prison, it just energized the movement. Uh, it just brought more people the next year. And when they sent us to prison, what we learned was that they could not silence us. The truth cannot be silenced. And we organized from prison. We went to Latin America simply to request that they stop sending their troops here. And I'm happy to report that five countries made decisions to pull out. Those countries being Argentina, Uruguay, Venezuela, uh, Bolivia. We went to Ecuador where we met with President Rafael Correa. And at that meeting, he announced that Ecuador was pulling out of the School of the Americas. He, he said something very important, President Correa. He said, this school should not exist. <laughs> We cannot live without cooperation. It's the most important characteristic of human survival. When we become so arrogant, we justify doing anything we want as if there's no consequences. It's insanity. We've come to a level of divorcing ourselves from the reality of war. The West has taught the East how to solve problems. So you should all look at um, Cold War in the Heartland. It's a new, very important website out of the University of Kansas, Heartland, talking about farmers. And um, his talk was going to be patriotic descent in the Cold War. He has it on film. Um, he's going to be submitting testimony a little later, but he, he had to leave for his, his kids. Um, but I just want to say again, that heartland perspective, we really need to reach uh, rural America. And just if you think about it, a lot of the Trump um, commercials really highlighted the cost of war to American veterans, to people who died, to families, a lot more than the Democrats ever did. I really found like a lot of sympathy they were using um, that. So interesting. Um, and we can too with the truth. This is the international portion of our program. Um, and just so you know, it is so late. We started at 1, a, 1 p.m. Western time because four months ago when we were starting to plan this, we thought we'd be watching Frank's movie for the last two hours, sitting, chilling, and all of you on the East Coast would be fine. Uh, turned out a little different, um, but we're delighted. So, um, Nuri, Frank, you are going to introduce um, Nuri, please. Okay, thank, thanks, Rachel. My friend, Nuri Rocky, was born in Iran. After the CIA coup in Iran in 1953, her family, excuse me, was forced to migrate to the United States. She got her master's in economics from the University of Wisconsin. She's been a member 
of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom for 50 years. She was a member of the National Alliance against Racist and Political Repression. She established the Free Palestine Organization in Hawaii and was the founder of Education Not Incarceration in Oakland. And she is the co- current co-founder of the U.S. Department of Peace. Nuri is a fantastic woman. She's bought thousand copies of the Nicky Dwarf, and she gives them away for free, everybody. And she's such a wonderful woman. Nuri, are you there? Yes. Thank you. Thank you for And Al. I, I really wanted to save you all that time. Thank you so much, Rachel. Thank you, Frank. Uh, and uh, for Go, but there are some interesting things that I would like to yeah, mention. I was born in Iran. And when I was 10 years old or younger, Mossadegh came to power. And so during Mossadegh, British, of course, because of our oil, always is because of resources that United States wants to go and rob those countries, the same as uh, uh, everywhere else. So British um, went to war against Iran and uh the U.S. didn't come to help Iran, so we are used to sanctions from seven years ago when I was a child. And uh, then um, uh, CIA, then Dr. Mossadegh nationalized oil, which was Iranian resource and others. So uh, U.S. during Eisenhower, Eisenhower, I was 13 years old, they carried coup d'etat in 1953 against Dr. Mossadegh and overthrow him. Um, while Mossadegh asked Eisenhower if he could uh, go between United, between Iran and British and be mediator and make peace. And Eisenhower not only didn't do that, but uh, they also sanctioned Iran, didn't help financially, and they carried coup d'etat in 1953. Well, I was very young. My whole family had to migrate to United States. My brother was almost executed. He was physician, just graduating, and he was about to uh, be killed. That a friend of us saved saved him. Then we had to come to U.S. Then I when I and I became active in United States with American Soviet Friendship Society and um, other uh, so. From childhood, I was active. Then um, my father died in 19... Um, then when my father died during Shah, who was... Shah became... Shah uh, was put back in power by United States. And the first thing did, our resources was used to attack Dofar, which is uh, western Yemen. So Yemen that we know the war is going on now... 70 years ago, or 68 uh, years ago, uh, Shah of Iran, with Iranian resources on behalf of the United States, became gendarme of the region and started killing Middle Eastern any resistance. And uh, so many, 30,000 Tofari people were killed with Iranian money for United States uh, and then they created Sabak and Evin. Sabak was famous uh, torture center in Iran, and Evin was the prison 
that uh, were uh, imprisoning our progressives. And I never forget as a child that there was a uh, music um, uh, that was created by someone that they were going to execute him, and he was uh, asking his child, his daughter, kiss me goodbye for the last time. This became a music for Iranian for so many, many years, of so many that they were executed by Shah. Um, and kiss me goodbye was the famous <laughs> song of so many that they were. So then I we had to come to U.S. In U.S., when my father died in 1978, as American citizen, I had to go back. And when I went back, they arrested me and put me in solitary confinement in Evan Prison. And I thought, wow, am I really that useful and that good that United States or Iranian government um, is afraid of me and putting me in solitary confinement. I was there for two and a half months, but then the revolution was taking place in Iran, and they had to get rid of me. I didn't worth all that. So I would see in prison, I would hear that they would pull the young men, that they would torture them, and they couldn't walk. You would hear um, and you could see if I had a little hole in my prison, once in a while they wouldn't drop the thing that they were in control to drop it that I, that I couldn't see outside. Once in a while they would forget and I would look and I would see that they are pulling these political prisoners that they tortured already to take them to their cell after the torture or you know that kind of things that you could witness, that I would witness so, so regularly when I was in solitary confinement. So then I came to U.S. and then, um, then, the, then um, the revolution happened. And when the revolution happened, U.S., we had so many leaders from National Front, from Dr. Masadek, during Dr. Masadek, that they... Um, were candidate by people to become a new leader, but United States felt at that point that Khomeini, who was enough anti-communist while the revolution was taking place. I, I shouldn't forget to tell you that there was a theater in Abadan that 600 young people that they went for watching movie, United States, they blocked everything and they burned the whole theater and so many other things. And then at the time of hostage crisis or so-called hostage crisis, I have to look at what to show. Um, you will see that, what did I do with the book? I want to show um, uh, during hostage crisis, um, hostages, nothing happened to them, but, and they were, but 
the bo- six books. It was really spice center in Iran, the American embassy. And they shredded the books. And, and Iranian students, they put these shredded together and it's right here. Yes. Yeah. They, they put the books, they shredded, uh, thing that, uh, American embassy, top secret documents, they put it together and they created six books. This is number four that they translated to Persian. And this is, this alone is what U.S. was doing for so many years in Afghanistan. So, um, yeah, and then also, um, when I came to U.S., when hostage crisis, so-called hostage crisis happened, I was saying that send Shah back so that hostages would be released. So they came from CIA, threatened me that they will. They came to my home and said that they have orders to kill me if I continue to talk. I was Medical College of Virginia in Richmond, Virginia. I was studying for my medical record administration that, um, then they had to, supposedly, college had to protect me. Uh, so now, now, and then, um, now what should we really do? I was thinking that we have been to hundreds of countries killing so many, many people. My whole family had to come to U.S., and there are millions of Iranians, not only all resources, the intelligent and education of all those countries, seven in my family, MDs and PhDs and masters, they all live here, and their children was drawn, drawn from uh, those countries and Iran and everywhere else. So I'm hoping that... Um, uh, what to do would be maybe Destination Nicaragua was something that uh, that Barbara Trent uh, movie made. Uh, Americans were going to Nicaragua and let us make friendship delegations from all those countries, Soviet Union, China, Iran, and bring them here and we go visit them. They would love the people-to-people delegations and uh, exchanges and educate we get our education of what, our, what is our government doing around the world. And the nuclear disarmament that 122 countries they passed and now uh, it is ratified. Uh, it's a world thing that we, need, we could focus on and really stop that danger that everybody talked. I wanted to thank you again. Uh, Rachel as and Frank, it's such a beautiful thing, and I'm going to use these days and weeks for many, many, many people to come. And and by the way, it is New Year, Persian New Year. It's the first, second day of spring. Yesterday was Persian New Year, so happy New Rose to all of you. The first day of spring is Persian New Year, and we have have seen, which is seven S's symbolic of. Uh, love, symbolic of uh, health, symbolic of all of these I put together that maybe I can, I don't know if I can show it to you. Um, here we have, these are 
These are the, uh, our seven S's symbolic of, uh, we have fish, apple, uh, greenery, and all of these things symbol of love and peace and harmony and richness and wealth, prosperity. Uh, let us, <laughs> let us focus on friendship and love and getting together. Thank you so much. I talk too much. <laughs> no, that that was so beautiful. Thank you so much, Nuri. As part of Peace Weeks in the L.A. Harbor area, um, Christy Guzman, part of our organizing team, we put on for every Peace Week. We choose a country. And we have a whole cultural night, and everyone comes to the Zoom or comes to the live meeting when before the pandemic. And we share food and we hear stories. And, and the first one we did was on Iran uh, two or three years ago. So we're doing that annually. We're going to do it much more. It's a beautiful, beautiful way, definitely. Thank yeah, softens, softens hearts. <laughs> Thank right. you. Eating yeah. together and enjoying. Of yeah. course. Yeah. That's, that's what we all want. Okay. Thank you so much, Mary. Um, Frank, uh, our next testimony. <clears throat> okay, thank you, Nuri. Thank you so much, Nuri. I love you all. Um, she's always loving and smiling at me. Okay, uh, next uh, uh, speaker, test- giving his testimony is Peter Phillips. He's a political uh, sociology professor from Sonoma State University. He is the author of uh, 14 private censored yearbooks from 1997 to 2011. Um, he is, his most recent book is Giants, The Global Power Elite, Seven Stories Press, and I'm pretty sure uh, Peter was the director of the Project Are you there, Peter? Uh, uh, yeah, hi. Okay, Peter, you were the director of Project Censor for many years, I believe. Fourteen years, yeah. Fourteen years, okay. And Peter, I love you, Matt, take it away. <clears throat> well, thank you, Frank and Rachel, for an inspiring program. Uh, I've really been enjoying the last few hours I've been here. I know you've been here all day, so I will be doing this as quickly as I can. Um, the main point of my book, The Giants, The Global Power Elite, was that we look at what the Cold War and the U.S. military empire is about. It's primarily the protection of concentrated global capital and the ability for people with money to move it anywhere in the world to invest without any interference from other governments or local populations. That's what a military empire is about, what it's for. That's the primary, that's the primary reason. So driving this engine of global wealth concentration are giant transnational investment companies like BlackRock, who control seven trillion dollars worth of capital. Uh, they, in 1917, I mean, in 2017, there were 17 trillion dollar investment companies that were collectively worth 41.1 trillion dollars in capital. There's about 20 now and it's closer to 50 trillion. These firms all directly invested each other. So there's this huge cluster of centralized capital managed by only 199 people. So part of my goal in my book was like, well, who are these people controlling this $50 trillion worth of wealth? And, and how, what are they doing with it? And, and who helps them? 
So it, when you think about Jeff Bezos, you know, worth a hundred billion or more, um, he's incredibly wealthy. But what we're really talking about is the, the idea that the mantra that, that Occupy gave us, the 1% versus the 99%. Yeah. But even 1%, several hundred million people in the top 1%, is still a huge, huge amount of people um, out of 8 billion in the world. That they, they own almost everything. And so what we're really talking about is who are the managers of this money? How, how do they get the U.S. military empire to support them? What are the policy makers and the direction? So these, these elites, and there's about six or seven thousand of them, um, who go to Davos, that, that go to the big world bank forums and all of that. Um, they're, they're the, they're the core the transnational capitalist class and global capitalism. These elites interact through governmental policymaking organizations, heavily funded by large corporations, which include the Council of 30, the Trilateral Commission, and the Atlantic Council. Now, the Atlantic Council just came out with a policy statement on China. They want to see regime change there in the next 20 years. They had come out with a policy statement on, on Putin. They wanted to see regime change in Russia. So you have a policy group funded by corporate money that's making recommendations to governments, um, the NATO, the intelligence services, security services, the Pentagon, transnational government groups as to how they're going to manage global capital and what needs to be done. And that includes uh, regime changes around the world. So they also inform, they're also talking to G7, G20, the World Bank, International Monetary Fund, International Bank of Settlements. This is very core. It's global. Massive amounts of, of, of money involved. Trillions of dollars worth, worth of wealth. And the power elites are in support of capital investment. They're collectively embedded in a system of, of mandatory growth. Failure for capital to achieve continued expansion leads to economic stagnation, which can result in depression, bank failures, currency collapses, mass unemployment. The power elites are kind of trapped in a web of enforced growth that requires ongoing global management and the formation of new and ever-expanding capital investment opportunities. They really would like to get into Siberia and, and invest there wildly. Um, you know, they want total control and penetration around the world. That's what this capital is essentially about. So the biggest problem the global power elite face is that they have more capital than there are safe investments and opportunities. So this can lead to risky speculative investments like the subprime mortgage, uh, the battle that we had in 2008, an almost total collapse of the world economic system, but also it leads to permanent war spending. A major part of the profits and the continued growth for global capital of $50 trillion, uh, is war spending. So wars wars meet that goal. They, they, they buy up products, they, they blow up bombs, they destroy things that have to be rebuilt. Um, it's a massive profit-making mechanism. And so we see that. And then also the continued privatization of the commons. So everything that we hold in commons is up for grabs and privatized. 
So the world's total wealth is estimated about uh, 250 trillion. So we say, well, 50 trillion is, you know, is only part of that wealth, but that's true. But this is the free floating money part. This is a concentrated global capital money that can be invested basically anywhere that they can get a good return. And so that is what drives our military. That's what drives our governments. It drives all capital governments and it drives the, and it's the motivating force behind um, the intelligence agencies and what they're doing worldwide. So we have 80% of the people in the world are living on less than $10 a day. The poorest half of the population is on less than $250 a day. So the inequality is just massive. It's incredible. And then one, more than 1.3 billion people in the world live on a dollar 25 a day. So, and then each day, every day, um, 30,000 people die from starvation and mal- malnutrition man, internationally. And that's a staggering loss. 10 million fatalities a year just from chronic hunger. And hunger, that we have more than enough food in the world to feed everybody. Hunger is a failure to distribute that food. People can eat it and have access to it. There's, in my book, Global Power Elite, I identify 300 people individually with their bios, their, their net worth, where they went to college, how they're interconnected, what policy groups they're on. This is the they, when we say they are doing this to us. And I, for years, heard, you know, they did this, they did that, they assassinated Kennedy. This is who benefited benefits from military empire and global power. And these are the activists within that system, these 300 people. So I think it's really important to know who they are and be able to act on that in a real open way, sort of like pulling the covers off the global elite and saying this is who they are and we need to be in their faces about what's happening in the world. So the danger is that global power elites will fail to recognize the inevitability an economic uh, disaster. Um, capitalism, it, it will collapse again. And next time we may be in for, for a global war that goes wide with that, massive unrest and starvation. We already know what a pandemic can do to the world. And so that's these are very important issues that we all face. So without significant corrective adjustments by the global power elite themselves, Mass social movements and rebellions will occur, and they have to occur. They will they will occur and expand and challenge the global power elite, who already many of them are seeing the writing on the wall. That's what the Davos uh, <clears throat> uh, refit is all about. The you know we're going to remake capitalism and and have the top corporations of the world take care of everybody. Um, that's not going to solve it. That is not going to be the end all and, and, and solve that whatever. No, it requires action at all levels. I'm certainly inspired about all the people here today. Uh, we need to be aware of who the elite are and what they're doing. And uh, we need to be challenging them very openly, very directly, uh, in person whenever possible. And um, that's and following a, a common code. And I end my book with the with reprinting the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which I think is one of the best moral instruments out there for us in terms of a guidance for whatever social action uh, we're engaging in. So I'll rest with that. Thank you.
And with that, we rest. Thank you. And your testimony will be submitted into the record. Thank you very much. Okay. And just for an upgrade, just the Rothschild clan started off with 500 trillion. He said today there's 250 trillion amongst. What did he say? A couple of hundred thousand people. But, uh, and then he didn't account for the fact that there's 5 billion people missing from that 8 billion number. So we're down to 3 billion and it's building a little bit because people have babies. Yet, uh, uh, I have in a sense that the accountability is exponentially going to increase now. Is that true, Rama? Yes. Okay, so are you ready for to yeah do this next piece? Yeah. All right. And again, mm. it's called Vedic Origins of Civilization. Impossible knowledge of the cosmos in ancient India. And uh, we already made the comment that it's a 16,900 year cycle from 22,500 BC to 5,600 BC. In various examinations which have a section of general studies often ask a question or two about the Vedic civilization. Um, and it's just got all this list of places to go and listen to more things mm. and read more things. Books by Ryan, what's this person's name? Um, by Ryan Nora Romney. Oh, <laughs> okay. Nora, um, Nora Romney. And oh, by my, by Ryan Moran, M-O-O-R-A-G-N. And then another section where there's books by Nora Romney. Do you know who that is, Rama? No, I don't know any of these. And then people. another section of books by Henry Romano. And then one more section of books by Stacy Dalton. Well, we'll send this to Penny, and then as people have the inkling to be drawn to checking some of these uh, sites out, you might, and then give Rama a call or something and say, hey, you got to play this one. <laughs> All right. This is an hour and 24 minutes, so let's get started.
The Rig Veda, Sama Veda, Atharva Veda and Yaja Veda represent a highly developed religious system. These four Vedas were primarily used to encourage material satisfaction by worshipping the demigods or those divinities known as Vedic gods. Hence, the Vedas contain many directions for adequately performing the worship, sacrifices and rituals in worship to these devas and gods to gain blessings that would help one increase in power and position, reach heaven in the future or for other reasons. The devas mediate all universal activities and management, including the weather and opulence such as riches, a beautiful wife or husband, a large family and good health. Indra, Agni, Durga Devi or Vasus might be worshipped for long life, good fortune or plenty of rain, and the Indra might be worshipped for power or wealth. These instructions are found in the Karmakanda section of the Vedas, which many consider the basis of Vedic knowledge. It serves to help people gain the essentials for living a worldly life. Various actions or karmas are triggered by our desire to achieve specific results. Mm. It is part of the Karmakanda section of the Vedas. There is still more to the Karmakanda segment that provides the rituals for purifying one's mind and actions while pursuing one's desires and not merely living to gain all of one's material wants and necessities from the demigods. Purifying one's habits and thoughts is achieved through faith and steadiness in performing the ritual. Through this method, one gains needs and works out desires while simultaneously becoming purified and free of them. Purification of consciousness can lead to a higher level of spiritual activity. Karmakanda rituals have this higher purpose. The point is missed if one remains attached to rituals to pursue material desires, which will drag one further into material existence. Vedic texts provide information about all levels of spiritual understanding, the heights of which deprive a person of material desires for comforts or the need to pray to demigods for blessings and achieve entry into the spiritual domain, the highest spiritual goal. There were texts such as the Upanishads, Mahabharata and Bhagavad Gita, Puranas and others. These Vedic Shastra or spiritual books elaborate on the Vedic truths and emphasize different deities such as Krishna or Vishnu that can help you attain higher spiritual awareness and complete liberation from material existence. The other demigods cannot provide these liberations. Therefore, such texts strengthen rituals and prayers to understand one's spiritual identity and relationship with the Supreme as other Vedic literature was compiled and presented. Different Ways to View the Vedic Divinities Vedic divinities are viewed in two ways by followers of the Vedic tradition. Impersonalists believe the Supreme is not a being but an impersonal force from which everything is created as the great Brahman effulgence. They believe that all Vedic divinities are different forms or manifestations of the same supreme truth. It does not matter if one worships Shiva, Krishna, Ganesh, Murugan or any other Vedic god or goddess because they all represent the same absolute truth or god. There are similarities between Lord Krishna's avatars but differences also exist. 
Various Vedic deities offer varying blessings and results from worship, so it matters which divinity you worship. They all serve different purposes. According to some, the absolute truth is ultimately a personality. People often wonder why Hinduism or Vedic culture has so many gods, and if that is the case, which one is best to worship? In Vedic philosophy, we understand that each Vedic divinity has a distinct purpose, and there is merely one supreme being who has many demigods who help manage the various aspects of the cosmic creation, the natural forces present in it. They may also grant the person's particular wishes if they are approached adequately with prayers and worship, just like anyone else. How can they do this? Consider the following factors. Some say that 33 Vedic gods exist, or 33 million Vedic gods exist. Indra and Prajapati, Brahma, are among the 12 Adityas, 11 Rudras, forms of Shiva, and 8 Vasus, gods. In addition, there are minor or significant devas. Several aspects of universal affairs are administered by the devas, not imaginary or mythological beings, but agents of the supreme will. The devas also represent and control various powers of nature. They manifest in our existence on physical, subtle or psychic levels from within and without. The transcendentalist understands that every facet of nature has its personality. These gods' names are considered offices or positions rather than factual names. For example, the president may be referred to by his name or simply as Mr. President. The position itself gives him certain powers or influence. A living being can earn the status of a particular demigod only after accumulating pious credit. An individual may then become an Indra, Vayu or Brahma, or attain another position to gain specific powers or control various aspects of material energy. Therefore, such beings are not gods, and they are demigods. They hold a position within this material creation so long as that creation remains, though some may refer to them as Vedic gods to ease conversations. Another example is that when you walk into a big factory, you see so many workers and all they do. You may think that the factory workers cause everything that happens there. The supervisors, managers and executives who oversee and direct the activities and workflow are more important than the workers. You will find people with varying degrees of authority among them. There will be someone in charge of designing the products. The CFO or a leading accountant may also be involved. Others may be responsible for personnel. Even so, others may be in charge of factory maintenance. The most important person is a chief executive officer. A company may not exist without him. It may not be easy to see the president right away, but his influence is felt everywhere, since all projects are carried out following his decisions. As agents of the organization, managers and supervisors keep things moving accordingly. As regards the functions of nature, all the gods act in the same way, as all of them represent some aspect of the supreme will. In Hinduism, there are sometimes said to be 33 million different gods. The super-soul has also been referred to as the form of god within every living entity. 
There are currently over 8 billion human beings on this planet. So if you consider that over 8 billion gods inhabit this planet, there are many forms, avatars or aspects of God, but there is only one ultimate God. There is only one source of every other thing, God. Vedic devas are also sometimes interpreted as demigods or a collection of aspects of our understanding of ourselves, primarily through the practices of yoga and meditation. Yoga is related to Vayu, the wind god, because we control our breath with pranayama. Mm -hmm. Associated with fire is Agni, the god of consciousness and awareness. In yoga practice, Soma refers to the bliss that results from Samadhi. Many Vedic gods are associated with the chakras in the subtle body and represent special powers of yoga. According to conventional belief, as one raises their awareness through the chakras, they will achieve the level of awareness, power and health associated with the particular divine personality related to that chakra. According to the scriptures, the Lord of all beings created men and demigods and the sacrifices offered to Lord Vishnu. According to the Lord, these sacrifices would enable men to prosper and attain desirable things. By performing these sacrificial duties, you will please the demigods, and the demigods will also please you with all the necessities of life, and prosperity will flow to all. Bhagavad Gita 3.10-12 explains the reciprocity between demigods and society. Whoever enjoys what the demigods give without offering something in return is a thief. People were advised to perform sacrificial rituals in order to obtain their desires. By performing such acts, they should realize their dependence not only on the demigods, but ultimately on the Supreme Being. In Bhagavad Gita 3, 14-15, all living beings are nourished by food grains created through rain, produced by performing prescribed sacrifices. Vedic literature describes these prescribed duties, which are a manifestation of the Supreme Being. Under this, the Supreme Being is eternally established through sacrifice. Demigods may accept worship from human beings and bless them with benedictions based on the sacrifices performed, but they still do not reach the level of Vishnu, the Supreme Lord, an expansion of Krishna. Lord Vishnu is the Lord of material liberation, which is why most sacrifices were directed toward the demigods in the four Vedas. Bhagavad Gita 17.23 also explains, From the beginning of creation, the three syllables, Om Tat Sat, have been used to represent the supreme absolute truth, Brahman. Brahmanas uttered these words in praise of the supreme during Om chanting and sacrifices. In this way, by uttering Tatsa, which is stressed in Vedic texts, the performers of the rituals to worship the demigods were also offering obeisance to Lord Vishnu for their success. Lord Krishna, however, points out in the Bhagavad Gita that men of little knowledge, captivated by worldly desires, enjoy the flowery words of the Vedas that prescribe rituals that provide power, wealth or rebirth in heaven. As long as they enjoy themselves, they say there is nothing else. As the super-soul in everyone's heart, Krishna makes that person's faith in that God steady, 
Even when the person wishes to worship a particular demigod for the temporary and limited fruits he or she may provide. Since no demigod has power over any other, all benefits are given by Krishna alone. Krishna explains that people who worship demigods go to their planets, but people who worship Krishna go to his spiritual abode. In the Vedas, the prescribed duties for worshipping the demigods are unnecessary for anyone with such knowledge and self-realization. According to the Bhagavad Gita 3.17-18, once one becomes fully self-realized, fully satisfied within themselves, and thoroughly delights only in themselves, there is no need to perform the prescribed duties of the Vedas, since they have no purpose or material desires to fulfill. Thus, as one advances in understanding, it is expected that he or she will gradually give up pursuing temporary material pleasures and endeavor to reach the goal of Vedic knowledge. Lord Shiva and Goddess Durga's identities. As we have seen, different Vedic gods serve specific roles or functions and represent or control different forces of nature. Therefore, there are differences between them. Each has specific powers in the arrangement and management of the universal creation. Most of them have specific roles and purposes to aid in the universe's creation, maintenance, and even destruction. Vishnu, Brahma, and Shiva are the three most prominent Vedic gods. Brahma created the world. Shiva helps in its destruction. Vishnu maintains it. Those who follow the Vedic path can be divided into three major categories. Those who worship Shiva and are Shivites, those who worship Shakti or the goddess and are Shaktas, and those who worship Vishnu are Vaishnavas. Let us look at the identity and functions of Lord Shiva and Goddess Durga. Shiva is one of the most important Vedic gods. One of the most notable goddesses is Durga, Shiva's wife. Many other names also know her. Parvati and Sati, both meaning chastity, are other names for Durga. Shiva is an auspicious name. Many names also know his function. For example, he is known as Ishwara expressing himself through time and space. Sadashiva is a person who functions through the air, which incorporates both sound and touch. Shiva is referred to as Rudra when he operates through the fire, which combines the principles of sound, touch and form. Shiva represents and controls Tamaguna, the mode of darkness, inertia and annihilation. Through this, he could destroy the cosmic creations in the end times and the continuous forms of death and destruction we see around us. Shiva, however, can also be viewed as a renewal, as demise and dissolution are part of his character. In the Srimad Bhagavatam 4.2.2, 2, 
Lord Shiva is described as the spiritual master of the entire universe. Having a pleasant personality, free from animosity, and is always satisfied with what he does. Among the demigods, he is the most powerful. By showing how to worship the Supreme, he is the spiritual master of the world. All devotees regard him as their best. Therefore, the Rudra Sampradaya is his spiritual line or lineage directly descended from him. The Vishnu Swami Sampradaya or Vallabha Sampradaya practice it today. He may not be the Supreme, but he is almost as powerful as Lord Vishnu, who is described as the most powerful. The goddesses, goddess Kali and goddess Durga, help him benefit everyone in this universe, as he has nothing to gain in this world. Shiva sometimes has to lie down in front of her to pacify her from killing all the demons. Shiva thus controls the material energy. Besides controlling destructive energy, Tamoguna, Lord Shiva is assisted in his duties by Kali and Durga. Durga helps him keep most living beings in the darkness of ignorance. This darkness is only avoided by those serious about spiritual life. That is why Durga and Kali are described as dangerous potencies. Shiva is commonly depicted as a handsome young man with long hair, through which runs a spurt of the Ganges River, a symbol of purity, surrounding a crescent moon. Often with four arms, a symbol of universal power, he also holds a trident, a sign of his authority over the three modes of nature, a damaru, a small drum that represents a language or an alphabet, and shows the mudras, hand positions of avaya, protection, and varada, blessings. The drum represents shristi, the creation. The hand of avaya in blessing represents stithi, preservation, and the foot that presses down represents tirubhava, or the veil effect. And the foot raised means blessings, anugraha, especially in seeing through the veil of illusions caused by ego. Samhara, or destruction, is symbolized when showed with an axe. He may have eight, ten, or even thirty-two hands. Among these are an akshamala, rosary, which symbolizes his mastery of spiritual sciences, the katvanga, magic wand, and dapana, mirror, which shows how the creation reflects his cosmic form, a chakra, disc, a noose, a staff, a bow, a pashupata spear, a lotus, sword, and so on. Sitting on a tiger skin or wearing it is often his habit. As the tiger skin represents his control over desire, ordinary men are consumed like tigers by their desires. There is often fear associated with snakes. Often Shiva is depicted with serpents wrapped around his arms, waist, neck and hair. Death surrounds him, yet he is beyond its power with these serpents. It represents Shiva's freedom from fear. The snake also symbolizes time. It is only a matter of time before a poisonous snake dies after biting someone. Additionally, everyone must come to terms. Therefore, Lord Shiva is the Lord of time and death. Shiva's complete renunciation of the world is symbolized by ash. Shiva's body is also covered in ash from the cremation grounds. Vibhuti is the name for it, symbolic of death and lust, it represents a separation from the world. Our bodies, being inert matter in their elemental form, will also become ash when we die, 
and if the body is cremated. To realize our real identity, we must rise above bodily identification. In his dancing position, Shiva is known as Nataraja, the king of dancers, and is one of the most beautiful forms of Lord Shiva. The upper right hand of Shiva, as Nataraja, holds the Damaru drum. It shows nothing, but it represents universal development. Meanwhile, the lower right hand holds a flame of destruction. Together, they represent the opposites of all material existence, creation and destruction. He holds his right hand in a protective and blessing position. As Nataraja, he also kills tigers and wears their skin. By killing the ego with the Guru's knowledge or by the wisdom of Nataraja himself, one destroys the ego. With one foot, Nataraja stands on Mahamaya's body, the personification of the illusion, which is the source of all suffering. Raising the other foot signifies that the Turiya state extends beyond the boundaries of waking, dreaming, dream sleep, and the influence of the mind and creation. This means that he is entirely free. There are many stories about Shiva's appearance. There is a third eye between Lord Shiva's eyebrows on his forehead as an example. It represents wisdom or inner vision. The other two eyes represent love and justice. Shiva views everything with the proportions of love, justice and inner knowledge. Thus, he is neither too harsh nor lenient. Shiva's three eyes also symbolize the sun, moon and fire, how the universe is illuminated. Shiva's wife, Parvati, covered Shiva's eyes with her hands one day, and the entire world was enveloped in darkness. That is how Shiva got his third eye. Shiva ordered the third eye to manifest, producing light, heat and fire. Shiva accepted the heavenly Ganja river on top of his head once when it was on its way to earth, and in doing so, temporarily protected the world from being crushed by its force. According to Hindu tradition, the Ganja River entered the universe when the Supreme Lord, in his avatar as Vamanadeva, kicked the outer shell of the universe with his toe, letting some of the spiritual water of the Karanadakashai Ocean into the universe. As a result, this became the Holy Ganja. This water is kept on Shiva's head. Therefore, it is regarded as a footpath. Shiva's Ganja water also symbolizes devotion and knowledge. One interpretation of Shiva's spout of Ganja water is that he is a devotee of Lord Krishna, Lord Vishnu or Lord Rama. <laughs> By bathing your Lord Vishnu's feet in the Ganges river, the water has purified the three worlds and become transcendental. Through the grace of that water, the sons of King Sagara attained heaven. It is also said that many objects were produced from the ocean of milk when the demons and the demigods churned them. In Shiva's hair was the moon produced by the demons and the demigods. Shiva is not affected by the phases of the moon or passing time, so it is merely an ornament for him. As a symbol of spiritual harmony, a crescent moon can also symbolize happiness in life. It is said that the moon's rays stimulate spiritual growth, just as the moon's rays nourish the vegetable kingdom. As a symbol of knowing the self and living from that knowledge, it represents the cooling light of knowledge. 
Nandikeshvara or Nandi, joyful, is the bull Shiva stands beside or on. Unless such impulses occurred, Nandi represents the Jivatma, the individual soul, and its tendencies toward material existence. Nandi represents the animal urges, such as the urge for coupling, which Lord Shiva tames and makes docile. Therefore, he rides on Nandi as Shiva's obedient servant. Nandi also symbolizes strength and virility. Shiva temples often feature him reclining in front of the main shrine, gazing at Shiva's image. Shiva is dear to Krishna devotees, and they are dear to Shiva. In order to advance spiritually, Shiva works for the benefit of all beings. He has a disciplined succession line. I am very dear to anyone who is surrendered to the Supreme Personality of God, Lord Krishna, the controller of everything. Therefore, he says this to the sons of King Pratsinibari. While searching for a suitable place to perform austerities to worship Lord Vishnu, the king's sons found Lord Shiva. The luster of his body was like molten gold. His throat was bluish. Glowing musicians accompanied him. Lord Shiva guards the holy and the gentle. As a result, he was delighted to speak to the princes in such a way. He went on to say, in unalloyed devotional service, a person who directs surrenders to Lord Krishna or Vishnu is immediately promoted to the spiritual planets. After destroying the material world, I, Lord Shiva, and other demigods attain these planets. All of you are devotees of the Lord, and you are as respected as the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Thus, I know that the devotees also respect me and are dear to them. Therefore, no one is as dear to the devotees as I am. Devotees of Krishna do not disrespect Lord Shiva, but worship him as the greatest devotee of Lord Krishna. Krishna Bhaktas, devotees, also pray to Lord Shiva, but they ask that he assist them in attaining Lord Krishna's favor, not solely for material gain. Likewise, Lord Rama says in the Tulasi Ramayana, With joined palms, I lay before you another truth. Man cannot attain devotion to me without adoring Sankara, Lord Shiva. Therefore, Shiva can assist us in attaining devotion to Lord Krishna and his expansions. Shiva refers to a particular mantra to the sons of King Pratsinibari for their benefit, which is pure and auspicious for anyone seeking the goal of life. Shiva's song comprises verses 33 to 79 of the 24th chapter of the 4th canto of Srimad Bhagavatam. Here is how he begins his prayer. All glory to you, O Supreme Personality of Godhead. It is you who are the most exalted of all self-realized souls. I wish you to be auspicious to me, since you are always auspicious for the self-realized. Your all-perfection instruction makes you worshipable. This is what you do. As the Supreme Living Being, I offer my humble obeisance to you as the Supersoul. This prayer concludes with Lord Shiva praising the Supreme Being for his many attributes, characteristics and powers. Having repeated this prayer every day for many years, the sons of the king, called the Prasetas, saw Lord Vishnu himself. 
I will give benedictions for those who offer the prayers composed by Lord Shiva both in the morning and evening. They will be able to both achieve their desires and attain good intelligence. Shiva's greatness is also apparent in the Bhagavatam 4.6.42-53. Daksha, who showed great dislike to Shiva and Shiva's wife, immolated herself in a fire during the disastrous ritual of Daksha. Sati was the daughter of Daksha, and she was angry at her father for insulting Shiva. In her anger, she erupted in flames when she was in meditation. The demigods went to pacify Lord Shiva after that. When Brahma consoled Shiva, she addressed him as, My dear Lord, and the Supreme Creator of the Universe, the combination of the Divine Mother and the Supreme Creator of all things. Brahma praises Lord Shiva as his superior, since he is part of the Creator of the Universe. The purpose of this is to appease Lord Shiva, since it is known that his anger can destroy the Universe. When Daksha offered the clarified butter to the mantras from the Yajurveda, Lord Vishnu appeared as Narayana in his original form. All demigods, including Lord Brahma, Shiva, the Gandharvas and sages, immediately offered their salutations to Lord Vishnu upon appearing in the Bhagavatam. Everyone else's luster diminished in the presence of Lord Vishnu's dazzling effulgence from his body. All of them prayed to him, My dear Vishnu, my mind and consciousness are eternally fixed on your lotus feet, which are worshipped by all liberated sages as the source of all blessings and fulfillment of all desires. I have become unperturbed by blaspheming me for my purported activities, since I am fixed on your lotus feet. As you exhibit compassion toward all living creatures, I am not bothered by their accusations, and I excuse them out of compassion. He replied to Daksha, Brahma, Shiva and I handle the material manifestation. Since I am the creator, maintainer and destroyer of this cosmic manifestation, I act through my material energy and according to different grades of activity, there are different names for my representations. The uninformed believe that demigods like Brahma and Shiva are independent or that living entities are independent. Average smart people do not think the head and other body parts are separate. I also do not differentiate Vishnu, the all-pervading personality, from any living entity. Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva and the living entities are not separate from the Supreme Being, and whoever knows Brahman will realize peace. Others will not. It shows the demigods' interdependency on Lord Vishnu. It is Vishnu who is given the power of creation. Lord Vishnu gave birth to Lord Brahma, who became Lord Shiva from Lord Vishnu. The universe is created and destroyed by the energy of Lord Vishnu as Lord Brahma and Shiva. Lord Brahma manifests in creation, while Lord Shiva aids in annihilation. The two work together as one. Each of them plays a significant role in the affairs of the universe, but all depend on Lord Vishnu. Real peace is achieved when all living beings are extensions of the Supreme Lord and his energy. Markandeya's praise gladdens Shiva, the Supreme Demigod, and shelter of saintly devotees in the Bhagavatam 12, 10, 19-22. 
According to legend, Lord Shiva, Brahma and Vishnu worship sages and devotees who possess equal vision. Lord Shiva was in a yogic trance when he saw Markandeya during his travels. Markandeya asked Shiva for any benedictions the sage wished for. Smiling, he addressed the sage, Brahma, Vishnu and I are the best among all the gods who give blessings. Anyone who sees us becomes immortal. All the inhabitants and ruling demigods of all planets, including Lord Brahma, Supreme Lord Hari and myself, pray and honor those Brahmanas who are saintly, free from material attachment, compassionate to all living beings and endowed with equal vision. Lord Vishnu, Lord Brahma, or I am not distinguished from them, nor are they distinguished from other living beings. As the Supersoul, I am the self-effluent witness. In impersonal terms, Brahma, Shiva, and I are the same. We worship you for your saintly devotion. Shiva himself tells his wife Sati in the Bhagavatam 4.3.23 that he is constantly worshipping the Supreme Personality known as Lord Vasudeva, Krishna, who is revealed in pure consciousness by offering obeisances. Lord Shiva is subordinate to Lord Vishnu, Krishna, in that he is also a part of Lord Krishna's universal form as described in Bhagavad Gita 11.15. In the text, Arjuna says, O my dear Lord Krishna, in your universal body are all the gods and various living entities. Brahma and Lord Shiva sit on the lotus flower along with many sages and divine serpents. Lord Shiva has desired to become a gopi to dance with Krishna at the Mahadeva Gopisvara temple in Vrindavana. Krishna's pastimes in Vrindavana showed that Lord Shiva also attempted to join the Rasalila dance between Krishna and the cowherd damsels, the gopis. So, Lord Shiva was trying to get an insight into Krishna's most cherished pastimes and devotion. According to another interpretation, Lord Shiva is the brother-in-law of Lord Krishna. In Vrindavana, during Krishna's birth pastime, Yasoda bore a daughter, Katyayani, and Mother Devaki bore his son. Vasudeva, Krishna's father, brought Krishna from Mathura to Gokul and exchanged him for the daughter of Mother Yasoda, taking the daughter back with him. The eight-armed Durga appeared in the air and chastised Kamsa when he went to pick up the newborn from Mother Devaki. It can also be said that Shiva is Krishna's brother-in-law because Durga is Lord Shiva's wife and Lord Krishna's sister at this pastime. Moreover, Lord Shiva acknowledges his weakness in understanding the illusory nature of this material creation at another point in the Bhagavatam 8.12.10 when he first saw the Supreme Lord as a beautiful woman, Mohini Murti. My Lord, I am the best of the demigods along with Lord Brahma and the great rishis headed by Marichi, who are born of good. We are bewildered by your illusory energy and cannot understand this creation. Besides us, what about others, like demons and humans, in the base modes of material nature, Rajoguna and Tamoguna? Would they be able to distinguish you? A trance is how Lord Shiva meditates, often depicted in meditation. The Supreme Personality of Godhead, who is the unborn master of everyone, has now been revealed to you. 
Despite being one of his primary expansions, I was illusioned by his energy. However, what about those who rely entirely on Maya? I was asked whom I was meditating on when I finished performing mystic yoga for a thousand years. The Vedas cannot explain the Supreme Person to whom time has no entrance. Lord Shiva described his subservient position when he was cutting off Banasura's hundreds of arms when battling with Banasura, another devotee of Shiva. Banasura's life appeared in danger when Lord Shiva, who had also been part of the battle scene, approached Lord Krishna to save him. The Bhagavatam states, Bhagavatam 10.63.34-45, Srila said, I am the absolute truth, the supreme light, the mystery of the word, manifestation of the absolute. Only those with pure hearts can see you, for you are pure like the sky. In the following ten verses, Lord Shiva also addresses Lord Krishna in other ways. Your descent into the material realm is aimed at upholding justice and benefiting the complete universe. The seven planetary systems are developed because of your grace and authority. There is only one original person, one without a second, and it is self-manifesting and transcendental. You are both uncaused and responsible for everything. In his prayer to Lord Krishna, Udhava says, Even Lord Brahma and Lord Shiva are only your instruments in cosmic creation and annihilation, which ultimately you, the Supreme Lord, do in your invisible aspect of time. The following is a description of a significant difference between Shiva and Krishna. Sri Shukadeva Goswami said, Lord Shiva is always united with his energy, the material nature. As he manifests himself in three ways in response to nature's three modes, he embodies the threefold principle of the material ego, which encompasses goodness, passion and ignorance. The sixteen elements have transformed this false ego. When a devotee of Lord Shiva worships one of these elements, opulence is obtained by the devotee. Thus, a worshipper of Lord Shiva gets the results conditional on the effects of material nature, while a worshipper of Lord Krishna is released from the effects of material nature. Lord Hari is not connected to these material modes. Known as the Supreme Person of Godhead, he is the all-seeing eternal witness, transcendental to material nature. Sri Shukadeva Goswami states, Lord Brahma, Lord Vishnu, Lord Shiva and others can bless or curse. My dear King, while Shiva and Brahma are quick to curse or give benedictions, the infallible Supreme Lord is not. Another aspect of Shiva's position is his purpose, closely connected to how he appears. It is explained in the ancient text of the Brahma Samhita, verse 15. According to the scriptures, the same Mahavishnu created his next expansion of Vishnu, Gaurabhada Kashai Vishnu, from his left leg, Brahma, the first progenitor of beings, from his right leg, and from the space between his two eyebrows, Shambhu, Shiva, the supernatural masculine who manifests a halo. Srila Bhaktisiddhanta elaborates that because of the mundane creation of the universe, the principle of Shambhu is born as Rudra from the space between the two eyebrows. Vishnu, Shambhu, embodies the materialistic ego. 
living beings identified with material body are subject to material and bodily happiness. Thus, Lord Shiva's power comes from Lord Vishnu. The Brahma Samhita describes this in verse 10. The person embodying the material causal principle, the great lord of this mundane world, Maheshvara Shambhu, as his male generating organ, is joined with his female consul, the limited energy, Maya, as the efficient causal principle. Mahavishnu, the lord of the world, manifests himself in him through his subjective portion, his glance. So, when Mahavishnu gazes upon the shadowy power of Maya, Shambhu, the lord of the unmanifest materials, but same as Rudra, consummate his relationship with Maya, the cause of mundane energy, during the process of the material creation. Shambhu cannot act without the energy of Mahavishnu, who represents the direct spiritual power of Krishna. Consequently, the principle of material creation becomes active only when Mahavishnu, the plenary portion of Lord Krishna, is conducive to the active endeavors of Maya, Shiva's consort, and the principle of mundane causality. In the Brahma Samhita, verse 10, purport is given. Mahavishnu and Shiva as Shambhu are defined more clearly in the Brahma Samhita, verse 45. Just as milk is transformed into curd by acid, but whose effect is neither the same as nor different from its cause, viz. milk, so I admire the primeval Lord Govinda, whose state of Shambhu is a transformation for performing the work of destruction. In this verse, Srila Bhaktisiddhanta clarifies that Shiva is not a second godhead other than a Krishna. A discriminatory attitude is a grave offense to the Supreme Lord. Concerning Govinda, Krishna, Shambhu, has a subordinate position. Consequently, Shambhu is not different from Krishna. Shiva manifests from his initial cause, Krishna, through Mahavishnu, just as yogurt manifests from its initial cause. By adding a specific adulteration, as God attains a distinct personality by taking the form of Shiva or Shambhu, the Lord is brought into contact with the material energy, since Mahavishnu is never in contact with mundane energy. Shiva lacks the ability or initiative to act independently. Accordingly, Shiva, as Shambhu, interacts with material energy as an agent of Mahavishnu, who has no contact with it, but only sets it all in motion. Srila Bhaktisiddhanta further explains that Govinda manifests himself as a plenary portion, or in this case, Oguna Avatara, as Shambhu, Lord of Tamoguna, or the mode of dark. Consequently, Shambhu, through the energy and time that he devotes to his consort, Durga Devi, obeys the supreme will of Govinda. The difference between Govinda and Shiva or Brahma is that Krishna embodies God's attributes. There is something mundane about Shiva and Brahma, however slight. Despite Vishnu's appearance in goodness, he is not adulterated. The supreme divinity manifests itself as Narayana, Mahavishnu, Gaurabodakashayi Vishnu, Vishnu's expansion in each universe, and as Shiroda Kashai Vishnu, Vishnu's expansion as the super-soul within each living being. The three guna avatars, Brahma, Shiva and Vishnu, and all the other gods, are possessed by him and serve him. 
the multiple manifestations of the Supreme Being, Govinda, mirror the identical light that appears in different candles, all shining from the spiritual potency of Govinda, Krishna, the purport of verse 46 of the Brahma Samhita. Therefore, Shiva and Brahma's forms and positions are eternal, but only in material creation. After the material creation is destroyed, their forms and positions are no longer needed. Shiva is the lord of Tamoguna and the material realm, but not the spiritual realm. Srila Bhaktisiddhanta explains that Lord Krishna has 60 divine qualities in their totality. Besides 50 of the divine qualities of each jiva soul, Lord Brahma possesses five more qualities. These 55 qualities are also present in greater degrees in Lord Shiva than in Lord Brahma. Therefore, Shiva's position within the material creation has been described based on his purpose and function, and his form is an expansion of Krishna. More information about Lord Shiva's natural position and identity is in the section of this chapter called How Shiva and Durga are considered the mother and father of the universe. Lord Shiva's appearance in this world. From Mahavishnu as Shambhu, Lord Shiva took part in the creation process. According to Brahma, the universe was filled with many lives. Lord Shiva appeared in this universe as Lord Brahma. As described in the Bhagavatam 3.12.4, at the beginning of creation, Lord Brahma manifested four great sages named Sanaka, Sananda, Sanatana and Sanat Kumara. Because of their elevated status, they were unwilling to participate in materialistic activities. They refused because they were already attached to Lord Vasudeva, the Supreme Lord, and focused on achieving liberation, moksha. Therefore, they were unwilling, causing Lord Brahma to become angry. Despite trying to control it, the anger in Lord Brahma's mind came out between his eyebrows. Within moments, a mixed-colored child appeared. Lord Brahma immediately cried out, saying to the child, O destiny maker, teacher of the universe, please designate my name and place. Lord Brahma then pacified the individual by saying, O chief of the demigods, you shall be called Rudra because you have cried so anxiously. After that, Brahma gave Rudra the following places for his residence, the heart, the senses, the life air of the body, the sky, the air, the fire, water, earth, the sun, the moon, and austerity. Rudra was then informed that he would also be called Manu, Manu, Mahan, Shiva, Vitatvaja, Ugrareta, Baba, Kala, Vamadeva, and Tritavrata. These names represent the other manifestations and activities of Lord Shiva. Usually tall, well-built, and with long hair, Rudra wields a thunderbolt, bow, and arrow, the protector of humanity against its enemies. Besides being a doctor, he has many cures for diseases. In addition, Brahma told Rudra that he would have eleven wives, namely Di, Driti, Rasala, Uma, Nil, Sapi, Ila, Ambika, Iravati, Svada, and Diksha. Many offspring resembled Rudra in color, strength, and fury. When they gathered, 
they sought to devour the universe. In response, Brahma instructed Rudra to accept these names and wives, and as a master of the living beings, he should now increase the population on a large scale. In response, Brahman asked Rudra not to create living beings of this nature. Ideally, Rudra should engage in penance or meditation, auspicious for everyone. In this way, he could create the universe as it was before. One can only reach the Supreme Lord by penance, which is within every living being and beyond the reach of the senses. Brahma, Rudra's father, advised him to perform austere penances in the forest. Shiva is often pictured in mountain forests engaged in meditation, therefore. Shiva is also known as Dakshinamurti, which means a universal teacher. Next, there is Trilochana, three-eyed, Nilakantha, blue-throated, Panchanana, five-faced, Chandrashikara, moon-crested, Gangadhara, bearer, the Ganges. Bhairava, the terrible destructive aspect of Shiva, Girisha, the god of the mountains, Jatadhara, the wearer of matted hair, Stanu, the immutable, Utesha, the lord of ghosts or elements, Visvanatha, the lord of the universe, Hara, removal of death, Shambhu, abode of joy, Shankara, giver of joy, Bhava, existence, Mahadeva, great god, Ashani, thunderbolt, Isha or Ishana, the ruler, Pashupati, the herder or friend of animals, Jaya, conqueror of death. The Shaivite religion. Lord Shiva is worshipped in Shaivism, one of the major traditions of the Vedic system. Shaivites are those who accept Shiva as their supreme deity. Shiva's worship predates recorded history, but references to Shiva in the Vedas and Puranas can be found. Shiva devotees in India usually wear vibhuti or basma, sacred ash on their foreheads, as well as rudraksha malas around their necks. Rudraksha beads represent the third eye on Lord Shiva's forehead. Shaivite worship should include the chanting of Om Namaha Shivaya and the worship of Shivalingam with leafy bilva trees. According to localities, Shaivism encompasses many Hindu philosophies ranging from idealistic monism to pluralistic realism. It involves letting go of anger and greed, meditating deeply, and repeating Om's sacred syllable. Several Shaivite sects have been established over the years, the earliest of which is the Pasupata. Indian villages have been greatly influenced by Shaiva cults, which practiced asceticism for spiritual advancement. Besides having long matted hair, many Shaiva aesthetics wear their hair piled up in a bun or wrapped around their hair. Their foreheads are often marked with a horizontal three-light tilak. As well as ash from the sacred fire, they often have in their camp or from crematoriums. Many start and Nagababas smear their bodies with it. In order to become free from the bonds of material existence, they chant mantras and sometimes dance and sing to induce trance-like states. Depending on the school of thought, some of their practices have been unorthodox, and therefore some have met with opposition at various times. The Shiva Purana provides much information about Shaivism's practices. Shaivism's earliest sect was the Pasupatas. 
These ideas turn to two works attributed to Kondinya, the Pasupata Sutra, written between 100 and 200 CE, and the Pankavabhasya, 400 to 600 CE. Most of their efforts were focused on Gujarat. Despite accepting the idea of a supreme controller, the Pasupatas do not use the Vedas. In their belief, the supreme, whom they accept as Lord Shiva, is not the original cause of the material world, but is the operative cause since he used material ingredients that already existed in the cosmic manifestation to create the material world. Lord Shiva and Shakti, or Mother Durga, combine their power to create the universe. The classic Vedic literature maintains that demigods such as Lord Brahma and Lord Shiva are created by and subordinate to Lord Narayana Vishnu, the material worlds and their ingredients. From Narayana, Brahma was born, and Brahma Shiva was born from Brahma, as stated in the Brahma Purana, Bhagavata Purana, and many others. Demigods are therefore not God, but only dependent agents who work under the direction of the Supreme. In almost all prayers to demigods, such terms are used such as Shiva, Ganesh, Surya, and Indra. Many Vedic verses confirm this truth. In their etymological sense, the words refer to Narayana or Vishnu, the source of the demigod's power. Shiva represents the Supreme Lord as Pasupati. Ganesha represents the Supreme Beings as Ganesh. Surya represents the goal of the wise. And Indra represents the Supreme Ruler, all of which ultimately refers to Lord as these demigods are his agents and represent the power of the Supreme. Vedanta Sutras, or Sri Basya, 2, 2, 35-41, demonstrate various contradictions in the philosophy of the Pasupatas or Shaivites. Vedanta Sutras, or Sri Basya, 2, 2, 35-41. There is no point in following this questionable philosophy if you are serious about gaining spiritual enlightenment and liberation. For even though the Shaivites are known for their austerity and lifestyle, their fate after death is not defined. Even though they worship Shiva as the Supreme Being, they believe God is an unembodied void they try to merge. In their view, Shiva or any other deity is simply a material manifestation of that void. Therefore, they misunderstand the absolute truth and their process for spiritual realization is misguided. However, we should point out that the Vedic literature recognizes Lord Shiva as one of the topmost devotees of Lord Vishnu or Krishna. In the Puranas, Shiva is often pictured in meditation, and many verses claim that he is constantly contemplating the supreme Sri Krishna. Shiva is, therefore, a Vaishnava of exceptional stature. Moreover, he is one of the essential demigods in the universe. Therefore, it is safe to worship or pay respect to Lord Shiva or visit the temples dedicated to him as long as one understands Lord Shiva's natural position and avoids the personalistic philosophy that most Shaivites follow. A devotee of God can help one along the way by offering respect to a superior devotee of God. As we have explained earlier, Shiva is valid for this type of advancement. Another sect was the Virasaivas or Lingayatas. Vasava, a Brahmana from Kannada, 
was the first to develop this sect. The Kalamukas may have developed from them and worshipped the Linga. Another South Indian sect, the Shaiva Siddhanta, originated in the 11th and 13th centuries. Sanskrit texts were used initially, but the Nayanma poet's Tamil texts soon overshadowed them, contributing to the bhakti-oriented system. Furthermore, the Lakulisha Pasupatas were also aesthetics. On the cremation grounds lived the Kapalikas. Aesthetics like the Pasupatas were Kalamukas. Trika Shaivites or Kashmir Shaivites had a threefold concept of God. Shiva, the Shakti energy, and the Anu or individual. According to the Smriti literature, Manu Samhita and Kalpa Sutra, the Smarta or Orthodox of Shaivism practiced Varnashrama. Goraknatha established the Natha or Kanpata Yogis, a Shaiva sect. A combination of Pasupata and Tantric practices were used in this system. The primary belief of Shaivism is that Shiva is the absolute, transcendental to time and space and pervades all matter and energy. Shiva and Durga are often worshipped to gain blessings for material well-being. Once Maya and Karma are removed from their lives, Shaivites believe they will be free of the bonds that prevent them from perceiving that they are equal to Shiva. Shiva blesses his devotees with material opulence if he is pleased with their worship. Devotees regularly chant Om Namah Shivaya or simply Namah Shivaya. God is also quick to please or be angry. Shaivism, particularly the Saiva Siddhanta school, is summarized 1. Maintaining virtue 2. Serving 3. Meditating 4. Gaining knowledge and then 5. Attaining enlightenment and self-realization The first step is to maintain virtue and purity, which means not to harm any creature. Not harming any creature, doing no stealing and conducting oneself with honesty, truthfulness, patience, compassion and self-control. These are the basic principles of Kama Yuga and the building blocks of any spiritual path. The second step is keeping discipline in sadhana, spiritual practice and habits. We control our minds and absorb our consciousness for the higher purpose of life and activities during this process. It is also known as a Kriya, regulated through exercises and methods. It includes taking part in the puja, worshipping, listening to Vedic wisdom, chanting and singing in the temple or ashrama. It is also possible to worship the divine image or the deity to awaken dormant spiritual love. A third step involves pranayama, which involves the use of breath control to calm the mind and senses, and pratyahara, which involves the withdrawal of the mind and senses from external distractions. The practitioner then realizes God within through concentration and meditation. The kundalini may also become active during this practice, rising through the chakras. As a result, ecstasy and divine energy are aroused. Doubts, faults, mental weaknesses and ignorance, even past karma, are reduced. In the end, this leads to nirvikalpa, samadhi, or the experience of the timeless and formless parashiva. When people become enlightened and self-aware, they have completed the fourth step. One is that every action is guided by divine wisdom in this state.
Even though the person is still in this mortal world, he knows he has no part in it. Because of his practice, austerity, sadhana, and divine love, he belongs to a higher plane of existence. Yogis no longer experience the limitations of their minds or ordinary intellect. Jivan Mukta, the soul that is liberated, is free of it. No matter how you apply it directly to Shaivism, this process includes the basic steps you will find in most forms of yoga. The difficulty of perfecting this system is complex, and attempting to do so may be misleading. The basic steps of this process include qualities and practices that can enhance any person's life and assist them on their spiritual journey. Shiva's night is a festival marked by three steps, preparation, purification, and realization. Shivaratri is a festival that all Shiva worshippers celebrate. It is usual for people to fast on the festival day and spend the day meditating and chanting Om Namaha Shivaya. During that time, the mind remains focused on Lord Shiva. Shiva then becomes the inner light of pure consciousness at the stroke of midnight. A climax at night represents us overcoming darkness and obtaining purified spiritual knowledge. The mind and senses are conquered by staying awake all night and entering the state of steady awareness that leads to spiritual awakening. Shivaratri's true meaning can be experienced by following this process. Lord Shiva is often represented as a lingam, and you may wonder why. A lingam is a symbol or sign. The lingam represents Lord Shiva's shapeless universal consciousness. After the annihilation, Shiva also refers to a dormant creation. The Lingam represents the dormant universal consciousness in which all created things rest after the cosmic annihilation. It is also represented by Pradhana, the potential but unrealized ingredients of the material world. Shiva can also mean auspicious. As a result, the Linga represents the great god of auspiciousness mysteriously. In this way, the shapeless unknown is brought into focus. All things are created through the manifest energy which arises from the unmanifest. Symbolically, Lingam and Yoni represent the base of the spine, the Muratra Chakra, upon which the Kundalini rests, waiting to awaken. The Yoni upon which the Lingam sits most times represents the manifest universal energy. In combination with the Lingam, the Yoni represents the eternal union of the paternal and maternal energies, or the static and dynamic energies of the Absolute Reality. The Shakti is the eternal consciousness and the dynamic power of change, the source of all actions and changes. Combining the vibrant energy of Lord Shiva and his Shakti represents the creation of the universe. In this way, Lord Shiva and Durga are regarded as the parents of the universe. As described in the Puranas, a few versions of how Shiva became a Lingam and worshipped as one. I will relate one version. There had been a grand sacrificial ceremony. Hundreds of years ago, the great sage Narada Muni had been invited to it and asked who would receive the effects of the sacrifice. There was no answer. So the sages who were present asked him who should receive it. Among Sri Vishnu, Brahma and Shiva, Narada said they were all eligible, 
but they had to find out which one possessed the most patience and purity to receive the sacrifice. The great sage Brigu was chosen to teach him the answer. Brigu possessed a variety of mystic powers and traveled to the domain of the demigods. First, Brigu visited Lord Brahma, but Brahma was preoccupied and did not notice Brigu's arrival. The insulted Brigu cursed Brahma. You are so proud of your power of creation that you did not notice my arrival. For this reason, you will have no temples on earth. Brigu then went to Kailash to meet Shiva, but Shiva was unaware of Brigu's presence. In response to Brigu, Shiva was cursed to only exist on earth as a lingam. Because of this, Shiva is primarily worshipped as a lingam instead of as a personal deity here on earth. After that, Lord Vishnu did not recognize Brigu's presence when he went to see him. Brigu was so angry that he kicked Vishnu's chest. Brigu began praising Lord Vishnu when Lord Vishnu apologized for hurting his foot. In an instant, Brigu felt pleased and understood that Vishnu was the most qualified recipient of the sacrifice. In contrast, Lakshmi Devi, the goddess of fortune and Lord Vishnu's wife, was deeply hurt by Brigu's action and, as a result, does not show much mercy to the Brahmanas a result, has little money. An egg-shaped Barnalingam represents Ishvari as neither beginning nor end. During Shivaratri, Shiva is believed to have manifested the Lingobhavamurti form of the Linga, which is the prime manifestation of the formless form. During the Shivaratri festival, everyone stays till midnight until they worship that form. Any critical Shiva temple will usually represent the Lingobhavamurti in a niche on the outside wall of the sanctum. In temples, Lingas are often arranged in three parts. Brahmabhaga or Brahmapitha, which represents the creator Brahma, is the lowest part. Vishnubhaga or Vishnupitha, which is the octagonal part in the middle of the stele, represents Lord Vishnu. The two parts together compose the pedestal. Rudrabhaga or Shiva Pitha, also known as Pujabhaga, is the top cylindrical portion. It also symbolizes the fire flame projecting from the top. It also symbolizes God's preserving power and his destructive characteristics. When Lord Shiva is worshipped, Ganges water is often poured over the lingam since it represents the Ganges descending from heaven onto Shiva's head. The legend says that when the Ganges flowed from the heavenly region to the earthly planet, its force would have destroyed it. Shiva allowed the river to fall on his head before forming into a river to prevent this. In addition, it is explained that worshippers pour milk or ganja water on lingas as ghee is poured on the sacred fire during a yajna or fire ceremony. By doing so, we are paying homage to God. Linga Purana contains a story about the Shiva Linga. According to the text, Lord Brahma, the god of creation, and Lord Vishnu, the god of protection, disagreed about who was more impressive. As those two great gods fought between themselves, Lord Shiva appeared as a massive flame spread throughout the universe. Brahma and Vishnu were told Brahma would be more significant if he found the head or foot of his form of flame. Brahma took the form of a swan to reach the top of the flame. 
To reach the foot of the fire, Vishnu took the form of a boar. They could not find the limits despite their efforts. They were stunned by Lord Shiva's greatness when they realized their error. Shiva cannot be approached through the ego, but he responds with love to those who surrender. Lord Shiva appeared as the fiery lingam during this pastime for their benefit. This gave them insight into his oldest form. Shiva, who emerged from the flame, is called Lingurbhava. Other texts tell us of this story as well. The large puddles of water show heavy rains. In Sanskrit, Linga means mark. The lingam symbolizes Lord Shiva's divinity, showing that it is neither formless nor a form. It denotes something else, like the form of formless and omnipotent. Durga, the Goddess India has worshipped the Goddess for at least 4,000 years, and even further back to ancient times. Parvati is the wife of Lord Shiva, and Durga is the Goddess of the universe. There are as many forms as she has names. The forms of the Goddess represent different pastimes, powers or aspects. The different Durga is called by various names, including Ambika, Bhadra, Bhadrakali, Aryadurga, Vedagaba, Shemakshemakari, Naikabahu, Bhagavati, Katyayani, and others, like Sati, which is the goddess of chastity. She is worshipped as Kanya, Kamakshi, or Mukamba in her gentle aspects. The consort of Lord Shiva is known as Uma, Parvati. Prakriti represents matter, Uma. Unless there are objects to destroy, Shiva is the god of destruction. His partner is Uma. Many other names of Durga are mentioned in the Narada Purana, 1, 3, 30-50. Due to her connection to the Supreme Lord, she is referred to as His Shakti and is known by Uma, Bharati, Girisha and Ambika. Her divine titles include Durga, Bhadrakali, Chandi, Mahesvari, Kaumari, Varahi, the great potential of Lord Vishnu, Aindra, Shambhavi, Brahmi, connected with Brahma, Vidya, spiritual knowledge, Avidya, science, Maya, illusory energy of the Lord, and Paraprakriti, the supreme primordial nature. Durga is also known by other names, each with its own story. Although we will not relate to every story, a few more names can be summed up. Lalita is a beautiful goddess who lives eternally on Mount Meru with her partner, Shiva Kameshvara, in Shripura. She is the form of Parvati who blesses households with foods as Anapurna. The name Parajita means the invincible Durga. Bala stands for the child. During Daksha's battle with Virabhadra, the embodiment of Shiva's wrath, Bhadrakali was born because of Mahakali's wrath when insulted by her husband, Shiva. Devi Brahavi causes terror and is one of the ten aspects of Shiva's energy. She is also known as Bhavani. Bhutantma is the mother of all ghosts or Bhutas. Durga is Dakshayani, Daksha's daughter. Gauri means the golden or yellow wife of Shiva. Indra worships Indrakshi because he has eyes like Indra's. Her excellent hymns can also cure incurable diseases. Jagadratri sustains the world. Originally, 
Katyayani was the daughter of Kata. She is the daughter of Parvata, the personification of the Himalayas. Rudrani is Rudra's wife. When he is the ruler of death, Shiva's Shakti is Tripura Bhairavi. Durga is usually depicted as a beautiful woman in red clothing. She might have four, eight, ten, eighteen, or twenty hands and three eyes. She can hold objects representing her original powers. A conch, a disc, a trident, a bow, an arrow, a sword, a dagger, a shield, a rosary, a wine cup, and a bell. You can also see her standing on a lotus or riding a lion. Power and the animal instinct to seek food and other sensual objects are associated with the lion. The lion on which she rides shows that she is completely controlling all these tendencies. The mother of the universe can be approached through love. Giving love to her children is also natural for her. In Sanskrit, Durga means one who is difficult to understand. The Devi Bhagavat, or Durga Saptashati, which is part of the Makandeya Purana, contains the full details of Durga. Durga represents material energy in which all materially conditioned living beings are absorbed in thought, action and identity. She represents wisdom and knowledge as well. The universe is filled with her energy. She represents sacrifice or penance as well. Lord Vishnu rests during his cycles of creation in Vishnu Nidra, the power of sleep. Despite being beautiful, she is fierce and terrible. The demons do not stand a chance against her. Mahishasu Ramadini is another of her popular forms. It is usually pictured in this form with eight arms, each holding a weapon and killing Mahishasura in his bull form. Demons like this represent the egotistical tendency to gain power through brute force. Durga destroys the buffalo demon, symbolizing Tamoguna, the dark quality of laziness, ignorance and inertia. Tamoguna destroys the power within us, which is very hard to overcome. Her other quality is her wrath, which sometimes manifests itself as war. These wars cleanse the world of the many harmful elements accumulated by a sinful society. Shumba and Nishumba petitioned the goddess again when they challenged the gods. Kaushika Durga, also called Ambika, manifested herself this time from the side of Parvati. Afterward, the demons attracted Ambika's beauty and wanted to marry her. All of those attempts ended in disaster, as she vowed to marry the one who could beat her in battle. The giants Dumralochana, Chanda, Munda and Rakabiya could not help them. Durga then manifested the fierce dark goddess Kali, who became known as Chamunda after she beheaded Chand and Mun's demons. She had to exert specific effort to fight Rakabiya because of his powers, which caused each drop of his essence to become a new demon. Kali prevented any other demons from manifesting by drinking all of his flowing essences. Durga could thus kill him. Nishumba was then quickly killed by her, but Shumba claimed that she had accepted aid. She then gathered all her emanations into one form and battled and killed Shumba. The original cause of Durga is also known as Vaishnavi Shakti, the creative power of Lord Vishnu. Vindhyavasini, 
the one who lives in Vindhya Mountains, Rakthadanta, the one with red teeth, Shatakshi, one who has a hundred eyes, Shakambari, one who gives vegetable life force, Bhima, the ferocious, and Varamaramba, the one who has bees, are some of her other names. Maheshwari is another manifestation of Devi that followed the three modes of material nature, manifests itself as Mahakali, Mahalakshmi, and Mahasarasvati. The goddesses Lakshmi and Sarasvati are different. Mahakali has been considered the personification of Tamaguna, or darkness, sleep, or inertia. The illusory energy of Lord Vishnu is also in her. There is evil and division within this Maya. These two things need to be removed for us to become spiritually awake. As often portrayed, she has ten hands, each holding an unknown weapon, including swords, discs, maces, arrows, bows, iron clubs, lances, slings, human heads and conches. Mahalakshmi represents the emotional aspect of Rajaguna. She is red in this aspect, symbolizing her determination to fight evil forces. Her hands are adorned with rosaries, pots, clubs, lances, swords, shields, conches, bells, wine cups, tridents and discs. Mahasarasvati is the sattvic aspect and embodies goodness and purity. She holds a bell, trident, plows, conch, castle, disc, bow and arrow in her eight hands. She represents beauty, work and organization. As with Koshika Durga, it is she who manifested from Parvati. These are aspects of the ego principle that she destroyed, including Dubralochana, Chanda, Munda, Raktabiya, Nishumba and Shumba. In temples and pictures, Kali is another form of the goddess. In these images, her hair is usually scattered, her complexion is dark, she is giving blessings and offering protection with the other two hands. Her essence tongue protrudes from her mouth. Dead and mutilated bodies often surround her in cremation grounds or battlefields. Shiva is sometimes seen standing on her husband's white or blue body. This is how he implores her to prevent her from destroying everything. Kali represents time, which terrifyingly devours everything. She is naked because she is free from the veil of ignorance that the universe represents, which hides our real spiritual identity. Because she represents Tamaguna, the void that swallowed everything, including space, time and material nature, she is black. Despite being an excellent form, her hand gestures offer freedom from fear. She wears them because she is happy with the offerings of our work. Furthermore, it represents the inward potential for manifesting outwardly. She represents her freedom by having her hair disheveled. She wears the garland of 50 skulls to symbolize the 50 letters of the alphabet, or the sounds from which it has sprung and which are, as a result, in a state of destruction. Moreover, Goddess Kali stood on Shiva because she once engaged in a battle where she destroyed all the demons. The wilds trembled in destruction as she danced in victory. Shiva came to appease her by stopping her from dancing further. When Shiva noticed she had stepped on her husband, she put her tongue out in shame as she lay like a corpse at her feet to 
absorb the shock of her movements. She was so engrossed that she could not see him or hear him. Durga's identity and the difference between Yogamaya and Mahamaya. It is also believed that Durga is the maidservant of Krishna, who is the personification of material energy. She conducts herself following the Supreme's will. The shadow of her is the material energy, Maya. Durga is pictured with ten arms representing a material that acts as a demigoddess. In her lion, she shows her heroic abilities. By trampling the demon Mahishasura, she subdues vices. A symbol of beauty and success, she is the mother of her two sons, Katikeya and Ganesha. In the Vedas, twenty weapons denote the various pious activities that should be practiced to suppress vices. The snake represents the wrong time. Another meaning of Durga is the fort or prison house. It is hard to escape the material world because it is like a prison. The word Dur means difficulty and Ga means to go. There is no way to escape this material world without experiencing many hardships. You can escape the illusory nature of the material world if you take shelter from the spiritual potency. Consequently, when living beings forget their spiritual nature and the service of Krishna, they are confined in the material prison of the universe. The cosmic creation presided over by Durga is represented by this aspect. People who are devotees of the Lord and on the spiritual path to regain their true nature are freed from this prison-like environment. They are not affected by Durga. Yoga Maya is Durga's spiritual form. Mahamaya is Durga's external form, which is the illusionary energy. Krishna's sister, Ikanamsha or Subhadra, is Durga's spiritual form, which functions on Shuddha Sattva, pure transcendental existence. Subhadra means auspicious. Subhadra also paves the way for the devotee's spiritual progress by supplying auspicious elements and removing all inauspicious elements. There is material energy at the edge of this spiritual form of Durga. However, it is essential to note that Durga works in the material world. Lord Krishna's sister, Subhadra, is the spiritual or internal energy, and she does not work as the material Durga. Therefore, their energies are initially the same, but she now functions in a different capacity within the material realm because of her expansion as Durga. Lord Krishna's pleasure potency, Vladini Shakti, is the personification, essence and origin. Radharani, Lord Krishna's consort and spiritual energy essence, ranks higher than Subhadra. Lord Krishna's pleasure potency expends into Radharani to enjoy the most intimate spiritual pastimes in Goloka Vrindavana, the highest spiritual planet. Krishna's potency expands further into the forms of his queens on the other Vaikuntha planets and his sister, Subhadra, for other purposes and pastimes. As well as this, Durga is an expansion of this inner or spiritual energy. Durga can also be thought of as an expansion of Radharani. For this reason, Radharani is the source of all pleasure on a spiritual level, while Durga pleasures on a material level. Yoga Maya manages the spiritual sky, 
whereas in her partial expansion as Mahamaya, she manages the material world. Thus, we can see that Mahamaya in the material world expands Yogamaya in the spiritual world. By covering the devotees in the spiritual world, Yogamaya enables them to forget the Lord's greatness and engage in loving pastimes with him as his friends, parents, servants, and so on, without being overwhelmed by his omnipotence. Through the principle of forgetfulness, Yogamaya helps bring devotees into various relationships with the Supreme Being, while Mahamaya keeps them apart or seems to keep them apart. As long as people are not spiritually inclined, Mahamaya keeps them from remembering their true eternal nature. It makes them content with material happiness only superficially. Oof. Deep stuff. Yes. <laughs> oh, thank you. No, that's good. It went in. This is what the stories my father told me from the time I was three till the time I was five had to do with these kinds of stories. Every day before going to sleep, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's how you get to see these beings in the physical. Okay, so... We're going to shift now, everybody. Uh, we're going to go listen to our brother Paul Stamets on how mushrooms can, can say, can save bees, B-E-E-S. Huh. Yeah. And... Inventor Paul Statements discusses the use of mushrooms. Okay, well, here we go. Five years virtual. On Island Diaries, Tuesday at 9 p.m. Eastern and Pacific. This is such a special pleasure to have Paul Stavitz rejoin us for the 2020 maiden voyage of the Bioneers Virtual Conference. <laughs> um, Paul first spoke at Bioneers in 1996 when he was unknown. He showed up with this wild proposition that mushrooms can save the world, and yep. it turned out to be right. <laughs> it was clear from the outset that he's the rare genius and visionary citizen scientist who can actually um, manifest his vision in the most practical terms. Since that time, Paul has earned richly deserved major awards and worldwide recognition, including the prestigious selection as a National Geographic Explorer. He's the central protagonist in the recent hit film that originated here at Bioneers, Fantastic Fungi, by Bioneer Louis Schwartzberg. We'll show a short clip after this keynote segment. Paul has built a great company, written foundational books on mycelia, I'm sorry, and sparked a global mycelial awakening. His astonishing inventions in mycotechnologies are addressing some of the world's most urgent global ecological and health crises, from remediating toxic sites and farmlands 
to preventing bee colony collapse disorder, to supporting our immune systems in these dangerous times. Today, Paul will address the deepest underlying crisis of all, the crisis that resides between our ears. It's a crisis of consciousness that's precipitating the widespread awakening that we are a part of nature, not apart from it. So please join us in welcoming our beloved friend, colleague, and mycelial ambassador, Paul Stamets, live from British Columbia. Yeah, it's been a long journey, folks. Um, I have been on this uh, planet now for 65 years. Um, my first interest in, um, in mushrooms was uh, finding psilocybin mushrooms. And, um, and indeed, I uh, wrote my first book when I was 23. I just pulled it out and dusted it off. Psilocybin mushrooms uh, and their allies, it contains the genus Psilocybin contains the majority of the psilocybin mushrooms. There's around 216 species uh, in the genus Psilocybin. 116 species are psilocybin active, which means they contain uh, the tryptamine compounds, psilocybin, and psilocin, and some other interesting analogs that I'll speak about. So, um, you know, this has been an interesting course in my life because I was originally my interest in this subject. When I went to conferences, I was treated like a leper. People avoided me. They were, felt uncomfortable with the subject. But my times have really changed. So I would like to, uh, first, I'm just going to, I have a slide deck that will be available to all of you. Uh, but I'm going to first really show you how much those times have changed. Um, and what I want to show is three slides showing the universities that are currently engaged um, in research on psychedelics and more specifically on psilocybin mushrooms. So if we have that first slide up, that would be great. These are, these are the institutions currently doing research on psychedelics. The next slide shows the, the institutions specifically doing research on psilocybin mushrooms. Now, this is extraordinary to think that these institutions were approved by the FDA and the DEA, the FDA is over the DEA, um, for clinical trials uh, because they satisfied several important criteria. Uh, one, unlikely to do any harm. Uh, two, being able to address a critical medical need that's not currently being addressed by conventional medicine. I'm just going to read a few of the names. Purdue, Stanford, Harvard, Harvard UC San Francisco campus. Um, UTH Health, Mount Uni- Sinai. Uni- Uni- U- Utah University Health. Uh, Mount Sinai, yeah. New yeah. Mexico University. Um, UNM. Yeah. There's a bunch of more, but New York University. Oh, uh, shall we go on? That's good. Here we go. And three, is it scalable? Uh, can it be brought uh, in as a medicine at an affordable uh, price? So, indeed, these benchmarks have been met. Uh, there's now up to 40 institutions um, that are currently going uh, clinical studies um, on psilocybin. And even in Europe, I think there's around, next slide if we could, we have about uh, 20 institutions in Europe also. So this is a global movement. Um, what's astonishing about this is the course of conclusions all steer towards the same uh, endpoints, that these are some of the most powerful psychoactive and psycho uh, 
psychiatric medicines um, ever been discovered by medicine. But indigenous peoples, and we all are indigenous to this planet, but indigenous peoples in Greece and Spain and North Africa and South America and Central America, Mesoamerica, North America, had long ago discovered that these were sacred medicines to be treated with respect and they can help the community psychologically. So looking at the toxicity scales of different drugs, psilocybin is unique and that is one of the most extraordinarily non-toxic medicines that the FDA has ever considered. So we are now seeing a revolution across the planet. Literally, as Nina and Kenny like to say, a revolution from the underground. Well, that's exactly what is happening. So many of you know that um, Oakland was the first to decriminalize uh, psychoactive plants and psilocybin in particular. It was followed by Denver and more recently in Washington, D.C., in the belly of the beast. I think more than 70% uh, of the voters voted for the decriminalization of psychedelics. And then more, most recently, of course, in Oregon, ballot measures 109 and 110 on the therapeutic use of psilocybin uh, to be legalized um, and the decriminalization of drugs, uh, ballot 110. So this is the will of the people. So the politicians and government officials take note. This is the will of the people. The people are voting to decriminalize these sacred substances so they can be responsibly used, you know, for helping people in need. What is so extraordinary about these, these medicines is that their widespread effects, um, address many issues currently, uh, that are not being addressed by conventional medicines, especially with PTSD, uh, with trauma associated, um, with other challenges that we face in life, with addiction, with opioids, with tobacco. A more recent study from Johns Hopkins uh, showing that a heroic dose of psilocybin combined with therapy shows up to greater than 60%, 60% um, reduction, not only in the tobacco use, but in the two-year window, subsequently, people were able to break their tobacco addiction, one of the most addictive substances um, that we're aware of. Mm-hmm. And so I want to just, you know, emphasize the importance that, you know, the tides are changing. We have come to a point now to recognize that psilocybin and psilocybin mushrooms um, are appropriate medicines for our time. We all suffer from some form of trauma right now because of COVID. Uh, we are stressed, many of us, to to our limits. We've never had these challenges like this before. Many, many indigenous peoples have suffered from much greater challenges than that which most of us are suffering from now. So this is unfortunately, the, 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 road, the road has been unfortunately paved by the trauma of many people before we've seen COVID. But we are all on this first shift together. So it's important that we act in unity and in compassion. One of the things that's so interesting about psilocybin mushrooms is that from the experience of psilocybin mushrooms, there's an enormous reduction in depression and anxiety. We have actually launched a app 
at microdose.me is for the Apple platform. Um, it's been a, it's anonymized. It's gone through a board review uh, to make sure that it conforms uh, to health professional standards. And we have had over 14,000 subscribers to microdose.me. It measures uh, mood, anxiety, depression, um, agility. There's a tap test that's important for determining if someone has pre-Parkinson-like symptoms, the, the ability of you being able to tap your fingers as quickly as possible in 60 seconds. It's got hearing. It's got sight. It's got memory. And we have now just uncovered some of the data sets. And the data sets from microdosing with psilocybin mushrooms uh, are revealing profound results. Although many institutions, in fact, all of them that I know of, have been using pure psilocybin or psilocin, psilocybin dephosphorylates into psilocin, so when you take psilocybin, either pure substance or in a mushroom, it becomes psilocin and that crosses into the blood-brain barrier. It's a 5-H2A agonist, which means it substitutes for serotonin, your most predominant neurotransmitter. So in looking at the clinical studies using pure psilocybin or psilocin, is it clearly shows tremendously positive effects and offsetting depression with long-term positive results. What's interesting about some of the Johns Hopkins studies with PTSD is that with the psilocybin experience, an intensive one, with therapy, with follow-up therapeutic uh, consultations, uh, many of these patients have resolved their PTSD, uh, PTSD trauma. And what's so interesting about it is re-remembering the, the curative session with psilocybin appears to supplant the PTD, PTSD experience. And so the mere act of re-remembering it has a therapeutic benefit. Now, this is really interesting because it suggests that there are a different a chain of, of, of neurons, the neurological sequences that become then resonant. And this becomes a predominant reflection upon your life. You will remember how wonderful it was to have that resolution of, of your trauma through a high-dose guided psilocybin trip. Now, this also brings into focus some other issues that I want to bring up, is that are psilocybin mushrooms less equal or more beneficial than psilocybin in pure form? There is a rush right now to commercialize psilocybin. At least 20 companies have been created for the commercialization of psilocybin into a pharmaceutical drug. And though I do applaud everyone's effort to be able to use psilocybin to resolve many of the issues I just described, I am also very, very concerned about the commercialization of a sacred substance. With the microdose.me app, it was not with pure psilocybin. It was psilocybin mushrooms. And our results thus far, using the uh, DAS scale, which is a, a, a depression and anxiety uh, index, the standard practice by psychiatrists, and the PNAS scale, which is another scale that measures uh, mood um, and positive mood and negative mood, with both these scales using microdosing. And microdosing is defined as taking a sub-sensorium dose of psilocybin. That means below a threshold that you would experience it. So if you take some cells out of mushrooms and you feel them, that's not a microdose. 
So a microdose of a psilocybin cubensis is around one-tenth of a gram. Uh, I have lift off myself, I'm pretty experienced in this, but I have lift off around a third to, to a half a gram. There is normalization over time, so if you take a dose of psilocybin, even if you have a lift off dose, later on you normalize. But the subsensorium microdose translates into about one-tenth of a gram of psilocybin cubensis, the most commonly uh, available psilocybin mushroom uh, currently. And with those microdoses, which is done as periodically through the week, and in our microdose.me app, there's three confounders to our data that I want to underscore. Num- number one, you have variability in the potency of the psilocybin mushrooms you're obtaining. Are they a year old? How are they grown? How are they stored? You know, et cetera, et cetera. Then you also have the variability and the receptivity of the individuals that are taking the psilocybin mushrooms. Some people are non-responders. Uh, this is hugely important. And then the third, which I just sort of alluded to, was the frequency of how often you're taking them. Are you taking them once a week, three times a week, five times a week? Despite those three confounders, uh, when we unveiled the data, we found that the p-values of significance, and many of you know what this is, but for those that you don't, the p-value is a statistical measurement of predicted significance. And if the p-value is 0.05, you have 95% confidence. Our p-value is 0.00001 unambiguously significant. So the fact that psilocybin mushrooms are giving such positive results that are competitive or comparative, depending on your point of view, to pure psilocybin being promoted by these new pharmaceutical startup companies, I think is an example of people medicine versus profit medicine. Now, I would like to take both sides of the fence here in this argument. What is people medicine? Well, people medicine is Psilocybin mushrooms are available for the people. People can grow them at home. You can grow them in your backyard. There's lots of opportunities for acquiring them without having a physician uh, permission or prescription. So the problem with psilocybin mushrooms, as I mentioned, is the variability. The problem also is the fact that you don't know um, the chain of custody where it came from. You have an adverse reaction. Who do you talk to? And then the standardization not being certain means that the variability can be substantial from one experience to another. So there's obviously quality control problems. And another one that's a big issue with me is taxes. The underground psilocybin mushroom economy is not paying their fair share of taxes. They use the roads, they use the fire department, the police department, all the social benefits from the post office, etc. And they are basically going commercial transactions tax-free. Okay, I think that can be solved through the decriminalization and the licensing of quality control psilocybin mushroom suppliers. That, I think, will be happening in Oregon first. So, but the other side of the coin, in, in, in defense or in favor of the pharmaceutical grade psilocybin, is the fact that you can get a standardized amount. You do know the chain of custody, where it came from. You do know where to go if you have an adverse reaction. And, of course, it is taxable. There is a tax revenue uh, going back for the sale of these substances. But nevertheless, I think the benefits of psilocybin mushrooms far outweigh uh, the benefits of psilocybin. And that's specifically because of the entourage effect. For the past several years, we've been looking at the psilocybin analogs 
Psilocybin mushrooms contain several other tryptamines that are metabolically in the chain of production of psilocybin or degradation, beocystin, norbeocystin, or spinocin. We have found that beocystin, norbeocystin, or spinocin, which are not psychoactive, they won't get you high, but they produce strong neurogenesis. And in the slides that you can see, we uh, we do experiments uh, compared to controls, uh, saline controls, uh, brain-derived nerve growth factors, BDNFs, and then we spike these neurons from pluripotent stem cells growing in vitro uh, with aliquots of biosystem, norbiosystem, norcyclosystem. All those compounds are legal. And we found something extraordinary. Not only did it stimulate neurons that grow within 7 to 12 days, but when we started stacking them, and especially with the lion's mane, we had greater than the arithmetic predicted effect. And what that means is when some of these neurons increase by 8% or 12% within our sample, the additive effect would be 20%, you would think. No, we got 36% increase. So the entourage effect of these naturally occurring psilocybin analogs, and we have found stacking up with lion's mane mushroom mycelium, uh, based uh, products then creates an entourage effect of neurogenesis. This is so important because I think psilocybin is an Einstein molecule. Psilocybin makes you smarter. Psilocybin makes you kinder. Psilocybin makes you more courageous. <laughs> and in the slide decks that you'll see, there's several meta studies that are extraordinary. A single dose of psilocybin is really is closely correlated with a reduction to partner-to-partner violence, reducing larceny by more than 20%, uh, violent crime by 18%. Now, association is not causation, but it can be, and the more these studies uh, progress, it looks like psilocybin mushrooms do make for better citizens, better people. When someone is traumatized, they not only traumatize themselves and the victim, but it traumatizes their families of both. And not only their families, but their neighbors and their communities and their cities and their countries. So this is a worldwide uprising, I think, when people realize that psilocybin mushrooms can resolve trauma. And so I hope all of you come to understand that these need to be used responsibly. Uh, it's very important that we don't lose this opportunity. In the 1960s, it was lost. We have to treat these substances as sacred medicines. We have a panel later on today. We'll talk about the indigenous use of these sacraments and, you know, how do psilocybin mushrooms fit into that context with the indigenous history of the use of these sacred substances. So with that, because time is so short, I want to say thank you very much, Kenny and Nina. Um, I'm just speaking into a box here. (laughs) Um, So thank you so much for everything you've done for the community. Thank you for giving me this voice. And um, I hope all of us um, survive this shared um, crisis together and we come out as a better people, a kinder people, uh, more courageous and with greater wisdom. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Wow, everybody. Okay. We have a few minutes, so I'm just going to read a little bit from our Sister Robin LaPlante, um, this is from Weave the Web. Is that weavetheweb.com, Rama? Mm-hmm. 
It's a... I know it's whitewolfjourneys.com. Okay. Yeah, right there. Thank you. Okay, whitewolfjourneys.com. Slash weave the web with a hyphen between each word. Slash July offers the opportunity to make a course correction. And then it's got a number two at the end of that. Okay, so here we go, and there's a hyphen between each word. Every July, a natural phenomena occurs. As the earth is the farthest it will be from the sun for the entire year. This is known as the aphelion, A-P-H-E-I-E-L-I-O-N. This back This distance the earth experiences from the sun provides the opportunity to step back and review where we are and where we are going. This year, the aphelion occurs on July 4th, the exact day America celebrates its independence. That's this Monday. This can be a highly emotional cycle and with the added influence of so many retrograding planets, this is a month of course correction. Sit with the emotions and listen to your own internal guidance as you are triggered. I continue to remind everyone of the message of the Hopi prophecy. That at this time in our history, we are to take nothing personally. When we do, we write a story from our ego. Mm -hmm. We judge the situation or person. And we step into the lower vibrational energy of fear. This blocks our opportunity to grow. And we find ourselves swimming in murky waters trying to hold on to the sail and to the excuse me to the safe and familiar shore it is not so safe anymore i personally feel i am so far away from the shore that there is no choice but to keep going remember great ships weren't built to stay in the harbor They were meant to venture out into the world. July is all about a shift in lifting your spiritual vibration. What is it you truly want? uh, Six months have passed since the beginning of 2022. We are at the beginning of the final phase of this year and have an opportunity to re-evaluate the six previous months focus on your spiritual growth this month and take the time to reflect on the following are you in right relationships are you in right service and are you in right work that makes your heart joyful are you living in the right sanctuary to support your spiritual growth Are you living your truth? 
are you are, are there decisions to be made that require you to be bold a huge thank you to our star child natasha for her insight into the influences the celestial dance of the planets will be doing this month and the impact it will have on all of us the astrology of july 2022 will have intense moments occurring back to back it is important to be gentle to be compassionate and to be compassionate with yourselves this is a month to take deep breaths and find stillness in process through the emotions we are all trying to navigate through in a world that makes no sense mm-hmm. some things you just can't explain nor will you be able to justify it i encourage you to take the time and read this to its entirety as it provides powerful information on what is coming i have been processing through my own sacred anger as events unfold here in america nature continues to be my gift yes um and it helps restore balance as i find myself on shaky ground i do not run from the emotion instead i dive straight into it as i see this as an opportunity an opportune time for each of us to complete old cycles and move forward on pathways that truly illuminate our gifts as we seek to be of assistance i take extra time to be in stillness and i look for signs a powerful sign appeared after releasing my prayers to the ocean for a kinder gentler world where we live our truths a white rainbow formed from the fog white rainbows are messages of hope bringing a sense of encouragement to keep going even during times of uncertainty and confusion a recent journey to the oregon coast brought beautiful encounters and magical moments i am truly humbled with the experience we are blessed to be part of sitting down for breakfast with dear friends another family sat down next to us an exchange of humorous comments where they were dividing up the various bills amongst them guy handed ours to them in a humorous direct gesture what none of us were expecting one of the gentlemen took the bill and paid it mm-hmm. we of course all expressed this was not necessary as mm-hmm. it had only been meant to be funny the gentleman paid the bill anyway and left us with profound wisdom i try to do one act of kindness daily okay it's just about i'll read one little more piece here 
words to live by. We cannot change the circumstances we are witness to. Often, we cannot understand why or how they could take place. We are observers, and when those emotions are triggered that stir deep inside of us, we can channel it into acts of kindness daily. We can create beauty in a world that needs more love, more kindness, more joy. That alone can raise the vibration of the planet. Use the month of July and all that the celestial bodies will gift us to do your inner work, preparing for a new world and a new expression of you. Okay, that's good for a break. And that's what we will be doing right now. And we will be back in 10 or so minutes, 15. And we will be looking at the stars with our brother Richard, our sister Tanya Gabrielle, and Cape Hacha. So for this moment, thank you for this time together. Until we see you in a few. Namaste. Namaste, everybody. Pass the talking stick to you, Richard. Testing one, two. It's the 2nd of July. <laughs> Greetings. Hi. 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 Oh, my, oh, my, oh, my. Look at this chart. How? Oh, let's start. Let's start. The new moon was uh, four days ago in early Cancer, and since then we've we've suffered through moon opposite Pluto. Pluto at twenty eight Capricorn. So moon opposite. Pluto. That was the that was the first thing that happened, and then we got a little break. And now, right now, tonight, today, we got Moon opposite Saturn, and that is pretty close. That's within a degree of being exact. So, uh, Moon opposite Saturn that'll carry through tomorrow. So we got that opposition. And in addition to that, we've got five other squares. Five of them. Moon is square Uranus, Leo to Taurus. Pluto is square to Mars. Mars has moved up to 29 Aries. Pluto square Mars is talk about war. Saturn square the North Node. Uh, That's uh, trouble with human destiny. Forget not. Humans make their own destiny. Then, next, coming along the circle here, uh, Neptune is now retrograde, along with uh, Saturn and Pluto. Neptune is square Mercury.
person called crazy. You know, when moon when the moon when the moon gets into Virgo in about let's see here in about uh, a day and a half moon will square Mercury. Right now it's sextile Mercury, but a day and a half Monday could be a crazy crazy day. Because you'll have Moon square, Mercury square, Neptune. Next in line is Jupiter. Jupiter at 8 Aries square the Sun. Jupiter has been squaring the Sun this week. And the Sun's at 12 today. And Chiron's at 16, so... Uh, this week's Sun will square Chiron. Okay. And uh, the next square is uh, Uranus square the moon tonight. So we got a T-square going on right now with moon opposite Uran- uh, Saturn with Uranus in the midpoint. Um, that's that's just difficult. It's just difficult in so many ways, you know. Uranus, you know, Uranus and Taurus is uh, bringing unexpected happenings to the Earth plane, and Taurus rules agriculture. And it's summertime, and there's heat waves, and there's uh, earthquakes. And uh, we're looking at famine ahead in uh, Africa and points over in that zone. That's, that is, unless, unless something miraculous happens, we'll start here. More stories about uh, food insecurity. Uh, okay, now uh, we did that. We did that. All right. So we got the Sun square Jupiter and Mars square Pluto and Saturn square the North Node. Now we got. We do have a, a Moon Moon trine Mars tonight, but that won't last very long, it's just, uh, I don't know, makes, I think the, uh, I think the weekend, the the weekend uh, fatality report come Monday will probably be high, Uh, because you'll have accidental fireworks uh, going on. So uh, humans continue to kill each other. That's not new. Uh, Saturn trine Mercury. That's okay. That that generates ordered ordered thinking, ordered rational, logical thinking. So that's a, that's a good point. That's probably the best aspect of the whole chart. Is uh, Mercury and 
ruling Gemini and in Gemini at 26 degrees. Okay, let's take a quick look. As we go through the week, when we get to next Saturday, the moon's going to be over at 26 Scorpio. And it'll be opposite Uranus and the North Node. So next next Friday, 1926. Yeah, ne- next Friday, moon opposite Uranus. But the uh, day before that, it'll be opposite Mars. That'll be Thursday-ish, Friday-ish. And then it's going to be... Uh, Let's see, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Monday, moon, 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 opposite Neptune. And, and, uh, yeah, that'll be Friday and then Tuesday. It's, it's just, it's just, the sun will be opposite Pluto. It'll start its opposition to Pluto next Saturday. So the week. We won't have to deal with Sun opposite Pluto until Saturday, because uh, with, with Pluto at 28, next Saturday the Sun will be at 18, all right? So that makes it 10 degrees before ab- ac- absolute opposition. <laughs> but then the following week, we're going to have Sun opposite Pluto. And that uh, that will not be comfortable. Let me just put it that way. And also next week we're going to have one, two, three, six squares. Because when we get to late Cancer, we're going to have squares to Neptune. Mars next Saturday will be at four Taurus. So it'll still be square Pluto, but moving away. And uh, Venus will be square Neptune. That's no fun. No fun at all. So uh, there's a grand trine uh, next Saturday. That grand trine is Moon and Scorpio and the Sun and Cancer. And that good old Neptune and Pisces. And actually, it's going to be a kite because the sun will be opposite Pluto, and Pluto will be sextile the moon and sextile Neptune. So we haven't seen one of those for a while. And with the pointer being of Pluto, more changes more changes and uh, let's see also next Saturday you're going to have uh, yeah I said moon opposite Uranus and sun opposite Pluto so that's that's the big thing Um, all I can say is uh, be careful out there now I am told that Kaipacha runs 43 minutes So that's why we started a little early tonight. And so I'm going to turn it back to Rama. 
so he can put Taipacha on for us. And then, uh, then maybe I can take a quick, may say, a quick word between him and uh, Tanya. Go okay. so back to you, Rama. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Kaipacha with a weekly Pele report, and this is for June 29th of 2022. The moon is in Cancer, water, and here is a mountain stream, which will come in handy later in today's report. <laughs> She stays in Cancer through today, but then by tomorrow, Thursday, she goes into Leo, the fiery lion, Cancer, Leo, new moon phase, she's definitely waxing from a tiny, tiny, tiny little crescent, you know, she's going to be growing, 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 uh, and we're not going to have the uh, first quarter until uh, next Wednesday, next Paley report, but she's going to be moving through you know, uh, Leo, and she's going to trine Jupiter on Friday, square Uranus on Saturday, oppose Saturn on Saturday. Then she's going to go into Virgo, trine Mars on Sunday. Because what? Because... Mars goes into Taurus. Yes, indeed. Mars in Taurus. Monday, same day as Mercury, goes into Cancer. We have two personal planets changing signs this week. You're going to feel a little change in the energy. I can't wait to jump in this freaking river as soon as I'm done with this report. Look at the curly whirlies. Uh, this is, uh, you know, the, the swirls of water uh, just like make those natural bases over there. And that is where the Maidu Indians or, or the native uh, indigenous peoples of this uh, area would uh, uh, crunch their acorns. There's tons of uh, oak trees and acorns around here and stuff. And uh, that was like their major food. And the river would help them. Just such a beautiful example of humanity working in harmony with what nature has provided us. But uh, let me just get back to whatever I was talking about. Aspects. Yeah, well, before Mars goes into Taurus, he's going to square Pluto. It's a 90-degree square. It's the first quarter square. It has to do with activating, okay, what came around with the Mars conjunct Pluto, and that was March 2nd. Think back. What were you doing March 2nd? Because now I'm going to talk about power and force, and this is, you know, this is Mars and Pluto. So, uh, yeah, in the meantime, what else? You know, Mercury trines Saturn, 
squares Neptune on Saturday in conjuncts Pluto on Sunday before Mercury goes into Cancer to join the Sun and Black Moon Lilith. <laughs> okay. <sighs> Got to take a big breath here. I'm a little rattled. Because I came this close to a freaking rattlesnake. <laughs> I'm on the freaking path, climbing over these rocks, man. And I look down, like, right at my foot, you know. There's a good-sized freaking rattler, man. And I freaked out, <laughs> which I should not do. I mean, right now, it's like snake energy. It's powerful energy. It could be because what? I'm wearing my snake skin... Uh, I, I mean, of all the days I decide to wear my snake skin bracelet, <laughs> I get a, a snake threatening me on the freaking path, and so I, I freak out and I jump up, and I go running away from it down the rocks towards the river, my Birkenstock flies off, falls off the rock, down <laughs> Thank God there was another rock just before the river, man. And my shoe landed on that rock and it didn't go into the river. Because you can see, I don't know if you can see, this river is going by fast. My freaking shoe would be gone. <laughs> Even worse than that, you know, if I was, and this is what I want to be talking about today, the unconscious Consciousness and unconsciousness. The moon. Luna. Lunacy. I've got my dark side of the moon t-shirt on today here. Cancer. Ruled by the moon. Moon people. <laughs> Reminds me of Frank Zappa. But anyway. Yeah. It's... uh The, the, what it boils down to, and I didn't really want to get into this immediately, but I will, because I'm, you know, just check this out. Well, okay, I've been preparing. I'm actually doing a uh, a Zoom uh, call interview with uh, Mat Matthias, uh, the guy that uh, uh, the psychologist from Belgium that uh, came up with, you know, is talking about this uh, mass formation. July 11th, I'm going to be doing that, and I'll, I'll record it and, uh, you know, let you know more about it. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm preparing a little bit about it because I really feel like the mass formation has a lot to do with what? Wetico. Wetico, Wetico, Wetico. So I'm checking out this book by Paul Levy. Okay. Very super powerful because, let's face it, there is no difference between the mass formation, the mass psychosis that is happening, and Wetico. One and the same. But they're framed differently. They're from different perspectives. One is a psychological perspective, and the other is a native indigenous people's perspective. And the native indigenous people's perspective really takes a lot more of the spirit into account. 
and talks about evil and talks about this Wetico as being this force of evil. And this force of evil is like the snake. It's like the serpent energy, the world serpent. Okay, whether it's Marduk, the serpent that always, you know, tried to swallow the sun and kill it, you know, with the Egyptians, or in the Norse mythology, the world serpent, you know, wrapped around and ate its own tail. There's this whole energy of this. It's it's at the bottom and the root. The snake, you know, is on the bottom. Even yes, Lilith. I posted that picture of you know uh, Lilith was the you know the snake in the garden, and she's in Cancer now. And we're looking at this whole kind of serpent energy. And what is this serpent energy? It's this dark eros. It's the dark feminine. It's the dark, you know, uh, deep down inside all of us. I'm not talking about women. I'm talking about feminine. Okay, the yin, day and night, yin and yang. Yeah, masculine and feminine. We are all. We are both. I'm going to get more into that. But what it's saying here is, and what Paul is saying is that what's going on now is very powerful because it is a great awakening. This is the birth of the age of Aquarius. We do need to wake up. We are waking up. And when we are unconscious... Unconscious actions equal destruction. Conscious actions equal construction. We are always functioning and doing and acting in either a constructive way or a destructive way. How about that? Sit with that for a little bit. Meditate on that for a little bit. And what this whole... Virus, this whole bullshit going on right now, we could say it's, I don't want to blame humanity for being overly passive or overly lazy or overly unconscious or overly inactive. But just look at what Carl Jung says, right? The unconscious shadow gets projected out and the Wetico is a projected out that actually becomes a reality. We've been asleep through this age of Pisces. We've been largely unconscious, going with the flow, escaping, avoiding, you know, doing this, taking that substance, this, da, 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 you know, watching the TV, getting on our phones, just kind of like, flowing along like me on the path today, just walking along. La da da oh it's so beautiful out here. <laughs> wake up. Wake up. This is a huge wake up. And we are waking up and things are changing. We never thought we would see what's going on today. Right. It's very super powerful. And it is a call to be conscious. And this call to be conscious is also a call to action. It is a call to, you know, energy. It is a call to awakened, determined, willful, the healing of the masculine, Chiron and Aries, 
Jupiter in Aries, Mars finishing its pass through Aries, coming into our power. I talked about it a little bit last week. Right? You know, I gave homework, I think, you know, is that, you know, yeah, you have to do something. <laughs> oh, baby. And then let's look at power versus force. I'm, I mean, I'm, it's, it's just really amazing. If we go back, if we go back to ancient, ancient, ancient times, the ancient philosophies, okay, the Tao, the holy rishis in India, we go, we go back, you know, far, far back in time. There was this energy and the root of power in these philosophies was that the earth was created by the dynamies, okay, by the curiosities. There were hierarchical powers of spiritual entities that created this earth, and they were agents of even higher cosmic forces, what the Freemasons call the great architect, source, creator, divine intelligence. And this divine intelligence was, whether it comes through the, you know, the center of the galaxy and you know, I, I mean, we're only one of billions of galaxies. So there's also the great attractor, which I like even better. It swallows galaxies. It's around four degrees of Libra. <laughs> you got to check that one out. <laughs> if you think the galactic center is a black hole, this sucker just like, I mean, light just disappears into it, bends around it. It's, it's, it's an amazing, you know, it swallows galaxies. <laughs> But I see it, it, intelligence comes through this galactic center, and then it, you know, and then it's spread out through the galaxy to all the stars, to our sun, and then it, you know, the intelligence—it's like a step down. Okay, it's like a transformer, right? You know, step down, step down, step down, high voltage, high voltage, lower, 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 so that these humans can stand it in their in their physical bodies, you know. <laughs> so it's this plasma energy of intelligence, you know, coming all the way from the core, from creator source. This is spiritual power. From the sun to us. Versus what now scientists are looking at as explaining everything is that there are just a bunch of different forces. Ah, there's the force of gravity, and there's the force of attraction, and the force of repulsion, and the force of this, and the force of that. And it's just a bunch of forces and, and, and explaining, you know, and, and the, even the artificial intelligence and everything that's going on right now. Ah, oh, yeah, you know, it's this force and that force. And, you know, we just force things and, you know, manage the forces and you've got power. It's, it's, a, it's a corruption. It's a distortion. Okay. It, it, it is dangerous. <laughs> because what? It's unconscious. It's destructive. They're unconscious of the spirituals, uh, the spiritual reality. And this is what we are about. We are about the union of spirit and matter. 
So we, it's, it's being aware of both our physical, emotional, sexual, you know, material bodies and our astral, etheric, spiritual Buddha bodies. And bringing these two together, this is, this is the human experience. And this is this beautiful sun and moon coming around through Cancer. I gotta say, Cancer and Leo are the most personal human signs. The inner child and, you know, that wants to come out in Leo and play. And there's also a certain amount of unconsciousness there also. Right? And this unconsciousness breeds fear. So there's a lot of fear here in the emotional body. There's a lot of insecurity. We could say that, you know, Cancer, Leo are probably the most insecure of the signs. Yeah, the fourth and the fifth house. This energy is, is very, it's, it's, it's midnight down here, you know, in the dark, dark side of the moon. <laughs> what was I saying? So, you know, the unconscious and the fear leads to a denial or an escape, or, you know, an avoidance of dealing with my shadow, with my unconscious, with my fears, with my insecurities, and therefore I kind of get swallowed by them, and they get projected out into external forms, external authorities. And it goes back to a little bit what I said last, you know, last week. If you don't do your dishes, somebody's got to do your dishes, <laughs> right? If you don't manage your money, somebody's going to come in and manage your money. Yeah. If you don't create your life, some force, some power is going to come along and create your life. If you don't manage your sexual expression, your the other, you know, you your sexual expression will be managed. <laughs> you know, it's like when we are unconscious and we are not masters of our totality, masters of our reality, taking, right, exercising our spiritual power within, then we are victims. And this is this this is we are coming out of this age of Pisces into this age of Aquarius. Pisces is the sign of the victim, of the martyr, of the passive, accepting and believing and hoping and wishing and dreaming into Aquarius, which is lightning, third eye, awakened awareness that is completely objective. The bird's eye view, the eagle eye view. This is this Aquarius. And this is what, this is our next step. Because let's see what's happening here. In the outside world, and I'm going to put a link to an amazing, excellent article that just kind of goes and mentions everything that's going on with this Wetico, with this mass psychosis, and where it's leading. And make no mistake, it is leading somewhere, and there are some very conscious, I want to call them entities, more than humans or people, driving it. But we want to understand here 
that we can get lost in the one pole. And here's what Paul Levy says. We can get lost in pessimism. We can get lost in victim. We can get lost in, you know, the, the outside is real. And this is really happening. This is where we don't create our reality. Okay, we're not actively creating this. We're, we're, you know, experiencing, we're victims of some. But what he's speaking of is that it's a dream. It's Maya. This is an illusion. That each of our souls creates exactly what we need to evolve. So we are evolving through this. And I just kind of thought about it, you know, just think of what happened here and what is happening. The, the expansion of technology. And yes, it's being used, you know, facial recognition. It's being used for, you know, surveillance and, you know, uh, passports and electronic this and lockdown that and, you know, you know, you know, blah, 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 blah. But just think of all, just think of all the, technology that is rapidly being developed. There's computers designing computers. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, the artificial intelligence is like, you know, the guy from Google, you know, that says he's got sentient, you know, robots here. I mean, it's, it's, it's really going to town and it's going to be going even more. So let's think about, you know, what if, this was all created, okay, and out of that, just think if there was someone else at the helm, someone else in control, some other people at Davos and the WEF and, you know, running the show and, and this, that, and the other. <laughs> think if there, there were, you know, you know, spiritually awakened, you know, not greedy, power hungry, you know, grabbing and consuming in a destructive way, you know, and all that Gaia has to offer. <sighs> but those were replaced with awakened people, which can happen, which probably will happen. We're, we're going to get through this. We're going to move through this. We're going to evolve through this. It's only a question of how much damage and destruction happens prior to the awakening. The awakening of humanity, which is inevitable, just as Matthias was talking about, totalitarianism d never makes it. It never lasts. It self-destructs. It destroys itself. Because why? Because it's not natural. It's not, it's not part of natural law. It's not part of the law of one. It's not taking into account Spirit. It's only looking at the matter and the material. It's, it's, it's materialism in its utmost form. It's the end result of materialism. And Rudolf Steiner talked about the incarnation of Araman. This, in, you know, Araman is this, you know, this spiritual entity that is absolute ice cold, rock hard, diamond, super intelligent, cold-ass material Satan energy. 
And so we see this, and this, and this, this had to happen. This is part of the earth evolution. And I even looked at the astrology to see how it's going to play out, when it's going to play out, how long it's going to play out, because I got to give a bunch of talks here on, on my trip. <laughs> yeah, I'm going over to Europe. I'm going to be giving a lot of these uh, talks on what the bleep is going on. And it's like, okay, well, what, what the bleep is going on? <laughs> and I'm kind of pulling it, I'm pulling it on, I'm seeing it, I'm seeing it. And yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be a little while. You know, it's going to get darker before it gets light. But here's the thing. In the meantime, with Venus moving through Gemini, with Mars coming into Taurus, with Mercury moving into Cancer, what is our role here? Oh, you know what I did? Is on the, on the chart for today, I put the Earth because somebody said, hey, I don't like it that there's no earth in these charts. Let's not forget that the astrology charts that uh, that I do and most Western astrologers do, the tropical zodiac, even the sidereal zodiac, they do what's called geocentric. So the earth is the center. So when we look out, okay, the sun moving through Cancer is what? The earth moving through Capricorn. And this is why the Earth is coming around the bend. It's going to pass up Pluto, right? And we'll have Sun opposite Pluto. Then it's going to pass Saturn, and we'll have Sun opposite Saturn. And then it's going to pass through, you know, Pisces, and we're going to have the Sun opposite Neptune. And that's why all these planets are going retrograde, is because the Earth is coming around between them and the Sun, passing them up, like a, like a fast car on the freeway. So now we're really getting into this polarization. Yes, you know, there's been the kind of a unity in the, and now, you know, it's the, the, the sun, Mercury, Venus, everything is like breaking out. And what it calls for is we want to understand that where this is going, where this is leading, this is leading to the age of Aquarius. This is our next step. This is Pluto. Pluto is going back and forth. It's going to first enter Aquarius next year. And then it's going to play around for a couple of years before like really jumping fully into it. Yeah, by 2024, 2025. And then we've got 20 years until 2044 when Pluto goes into Pisces. Okay, of this age of Aquarius. And, 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 and what, what is, you know, what is about this is this is a very intrinsic development where we need to see the human as human and not machine. It's not about merging ourselves with machines and the transhumanism in order to improve ourselves, they're now even talking of artificial babies so that people can raise artificial babies online, save a lot of money, put on their little virtual set and have this little, you know, and, and they can control how fast they grow. I mean, it's, it's like what, 
our wildest dreams, okay, are manifesting externally. And what is up to us to do is to internally take hold of our own subconscious, our own lunar forces, our own Cancerian inner child. And we need to be Capricorn, the earth moving through Capricorn. We need to step up and step into the creative powers, okay? As, you know, the moon has gone through Leo, the sun will be moving into Leo. But here is... What I really want to get to is we can also look out on the horizon and say, you know what, there is a great future happening. Because if we just look at it, you know, there was a time period, and I've, I've done a little bit of historical research, but I'm not a historian. But just look at after the last totalitarian Hitler, okay, okay, you know, the forces of freedom you know, descended upon and ended the fascist regime of Adolf Hitler. And what arose out of that is a new map, a new map of Europe. And those who were being persecuted, the Jews, were given their own place, Israel. They were given their... So there was a place made for those who were persecuted. You get this? If we go back to the last time Pluto was going through Aquarius and Pisces, that was when, okay, you know, after the, uh, you know, after the Constitution and the, you know, the rebellion in the, you know, 1776, you know, happened, the extermination of the native indigenous peoples of North America occurred. Yeah? You know, the, the white man just wiped out the red man and red women, let's be cool here, and set them and put them on reservations. Now we're making FEMA. <laughs> FEMA's got a few camps <laughs> that are ready. I mean, you get this idea, you know, Hitler had these camps for the Jews. It's, it's like, you know what, there is this kind of separation, and but, but the out of that is a birth of awareness, a birth of consciousness. And, and this is going to bring an awareness and a consciousness and a new society and a new culture that will be global. We are moving into Aquarius's global consciousness. So this is not a country like Europe, a, a, a conglomerate, a union of countries. This is not just the United States, one country. Now we're doing it on a global level. You see what I'm saying? So there is great reason to believe, to hope, to be optimistic, and to say that this virus is carrying with it this evil dark force is actually a force bringing enlightenment bringing forth the light. And now here's the final catch. Not to get lost in either one. Not to go into despair by witnessing what is going on. Not by being, you know, 
you know, hopeful and, uh, you know, optimistic and, oh, it's all going to be good and it's all going to be all right and this is all just da, da, da. But to not get lost in these polarities but move to the metaphysical, the meta. <laughs> not the metaverse, <laughs> but the metaphysical space, the law of three, that polarities when in balance, can lead to the pyramid, can lead to a place where I, I see all potential possibilities and I will not take sides. I will observe. I will step outside of this camp or that camp. This religion, that religion, this belief, that belief, this political party, that political party, this liberal and this da da da, the LGBTQ. Look at what's going on now. We have such polarization going on. God, I could talk forever. <laughs> this Cancer Capricorn is the gender selection axis. It has our karmic history, our family history. Our genetic history is the Cancer Capricorn, Moon, Saturn, Axis. And you can tell if you've done a recent gender switch by having Pluto or the Moon's nodes in Cancer Capricorn or the 4th or the 10th house. Pluto's been in Capricorn since 2008 to 2024. We have a whole soul group incarnating right now that has done a recent gender switch. And so we have this whole movement. Okay. And it's, you know, it's really tied in with, and then the, the Roe versus Wade in the United States, you know, overturns this whole abortion. This is so cancer, the womb, the women and the women's rights. Okay. And should we go, is abortion legal or illegal? Is it moral or immoral? Is the way that we treat the trans people and the gay people and the, the, the queer people, is this, are we, are we liberal or, you know, are we Democrat, Republican? Are we this or that? Blah, 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 blah. We can go back and forth and back and forth. And what we're calling for and seeing is that the age of Aquarius, Uranus, Aquarius, 11th house energy, this awakened energy is stepping outside the game, outside the polarity. It's moving into the witness, the third eye. And it's seeing all the possible futures, all the possibilities. Yes, it could go extremely downhill into a totalitarian state, or we could have a re massive rebellion and everyone, or we could, but there are an infinite number of futures awaiting us. But primarily, they depend upon what? Each single one of us. The more that each individual becomes their own authority, the more that we take hold of our consciousness, of our mind, and we are not unconsciously sapped into, sucked into, drawn into, 
manipulated into, coerced into, hypnotized into this or that or this or that or this or that. But we are the authors of our own lives. This is creative, using our energy creatively, consciously, constructively. And that brings me to, <laughs> even though I could go on, <laughs> we'll go into this week's mantra. The ever-changing answer to the question, who am I? Reminds me I'm the author of the story of my life. This is a story. Let us not forget we are eternal, infinite, spiritual beings having an earthly experience. This is Maya. This is a story. Don't make it real. <laughs> Create your own. That's what I'm into. The parallel societies. We don't need to wait for a camp or a reservation. We make our own communities and we witness from outside the madness. <laughs> What's going down, baby? Ow! know what I'm talking about. So, yeah, speaking of me talking, man, I'm uh, I'm getting ready to be taken off for Europe. My first, uh, my first presentation will be in Ibiza. I can't wait to go back there. It's one of my favorite places. Ah! Then up to Turkey and down to Greece, Denmark, the Netherlands, Glastonbury, each place having a different... Energy, each place having a different presentation, a different focus, a different workshop. It's about doing the work. This is the time to do the work. We need to gather together in live flesh and blood circles. Yeah. And do this consciousness building, creative, energizing, supporting each other in self-realization together. I hope to see you. And if I don't see you, I hope you're getting together with your own friends. Ah, which just reminds me, family. Boy, there's so many people dealing with so much family stuff. It's not just circles of people and like-minded souls. Let's understand we have karma. We have cause, we, there is the cause and effect. There are consequences. What goes around comes around from reincarnation. If you don't understand, okay, how or why you are being confronted and faced with, you know, monumental energies or challenges at this particular time, a lot of them come through the family dynamic. And so cancer really brings up, and it's the past, and the moon rules the past. Yeah. And our habitual responses, our habitual patterns, our automatic unconscious reactions. We want to be really careful of this now. And we want to just like not react 
but pro-act. And, you know, take it up and have this compassion for ourselves through this time period, knowing that it is emotionally trying, that every birth, okay, most every birth involves yeah, some real squeezing, some real pushing, some real will, some real, you know, pain. And and, and and this can be a very painful time. And our hearts go out. Our compassion goes out. And we come together. Oh, which brings me to the song for this week. I am all over the place today. <laughs> It's my moon in Gemini, Venus on the moon, I guess. I'm just like, blah, 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 blah. anyway, uh, I've got a feeling by the Beatles up on the rooftop in London, their last live appearance. The link is below in the notes on YouTube. Check it out. Ow. I've got a feeling. Cancer's got a feeling. We're all having feelings. Feel those feelings. They are the intrinsic, unique, authentic you. And, and it's from these feelings. Out of cancer comes Leo. Out of these feelings comes creative self-expression. Feel it, own it, maybe cry about it, sink down into it, knowing that you will, just like the sun at midnight, rise again. The ever-changing answer to the question, who am I? Reminds me I'm the author of the story of my life. May you write a good story. <laughs> Namaste. Aloha. So much love. Talking stick to you, Richard. Okay. Uh, something uh, that uh, we all need to remember is that uh, we still have a lot of leftover Piscean type people. Uh, until Neptune gets out of Pisces, we still have to deal with all of the uh, the conditions of the Piscean Age, which include uh, devotion and uh, idolization of individuals. We have ideologies. We have we still have multiple religions. So we still got all that 
Piscean stuff that needs to be dealt with. And that's uh, that's just that's just the way it is, you know. So it's going to be a while, you know, as we as we uh, work our way through the birth canal into the Aquarian age. So uh, that's all. That's all I got for right now. You know, we still got leftover Piscean age stuff to deal with. Okay. Back to you, Rama. Okay. This is Tanya Gabrielle. Hello there, it's Tanya Gabrielle, Wealth Astrologist, and welcome to Star Codes. This is the podcast where we look at an important astrology numerology event coming up in the future so that we can align energetically and receive the wisdom of the message behind the cosmic event. In this case, it is the Capricorn full moon with the sun in Cancer. And there's so much going on with this full moon, not only in the stars, but in the numerology code for the day and for the actual lunation. So let's start with the date. It happens on July 13th. 2022 and July in 2022 is a 13 universal month. So what this does is set up a double 13 code, which is really extraordinary because 13 represents the divine feminine, 13 represents life, death, rebirth, and tuning in to that inner voice that always will guide you through the major and minor transformations and changes in your life. And the divine feminine aspect is activated because 13 aligns with the moon in a big way. There are 13 lunations in a year. There are 13 weeks in a calendar season. And so 13 is so connected to nature and the natural rhythms of life and also to women's cycles as well. And, you know, the, the empowerment that happens when you're tuned in to natural living and rhythms and honor those in your life. So this full moon in Capricorn and Capricorn represents in ancient astrology, the father, it, it merges the feminine and masculine, the left and right, the the opposites with each other. And of course, a full moon has the sun and moon opposite each other, where the sun in ancient astrology represents the father and the moon represents the mother. So, and it is in Capricorn and Cancer with the sun in Cancer and the moon in Capricorn. So we have so many themes here that embrace this incredible balance between the divine feminine and sacred masculine within us and that it is super important right now to accept both into your life, to not abdicate or push away one or the other. Truly, it is about the balance between both in your world. 
Now, we have this double 13 code, and I will be doing an extended episode on this number. So our next Star Codes podcast will be about the number 13, just because in July it is activated, and it's very important because of the full moon tie-in here. But we have another double numerology code also activated, and that is for the sun and moon. They are going to be both at 21 degrees, 21 minutes. So this is really amazing. It sets up a quadruple 21 code. The moon is at 21 degrees, 21 minutes in Capricorn, and the sun at 21 degrees, 21 minutes in Cancer. And 21 is, of course, representing our 21st century. It is the number of truth and joy and creativity and connection. It reduces to the number three, which represents that social interaction, that self-expression, that creation that really sets us up and lights us up with life. If you think of the three as the triad, of the mother, father, child. So here again, we have the archetypes of the divine feminine, sacred masculine, in this case, the creation archetype, when there is an actual creation. In this case, the symbol is mother, father, child. So 21 is activated multiple times. The number 13 is activated in the July month and in the day, July 13th is when the full moon happens. So we have an intensification here. So it's going to feel even more intense than other full moons do just because of all this incredible numerology that is triggered and activated. Now, one more thing we have for the year, we have, we are in a six universal year in 2022. And 21, another number that's activated for the full moon, reduces to three. Three and six are in the triad of numerology that I call the creation triad. It is a triad of growth, but, but really through self-expression and love. And so this triad is really heart-centered. And then another connection in the numerology code is that the number 13 which is the second number that's activated, reduces to four. Now, four is connected to the home. It represents the square. So we have that activation for the home and family and security, Your, you know, the physical buildings, uh, architecture, feng shui. And then in the sixth universal year, that represents your emotional family, so nurturing your family and love and compassion. So we have a big family code activated as well. And the reason I bring this up is that the sun will be in Cancer at 21 degrees and Cancer represents the home and family and love. So all of these archetypes that are just so important for our human life family and love, the connection between the feminine and masculine, being connected to the lunar cycles and nature. This is all coming together in this incredible lunation. So it's super exciting. So now let's look at some of the aspects 
that the planets make, that the sun and moon make, first of all, to other planets. And the moon is conjunct Pluto. So Pluto's at 27 degrees in Capricorn, the moon at 21 degrees, as you know. And this is a conjunction, and it really, really intensifies the impact of this full moon. So it purges, it helps us release, it helps us let go, especially emotionally, and getting into the most sensitive parts of who we are. So being more in tune with intuition and psychic awareness and dreams and visions and underlying truths also coming to the surface. Pluto really empowers. And so this will help you, the release process, the purging process will empower you to be present in a very, very magnificent way because you're not attached to the past or focused on the future, you're literally there, ready to just be fully available to those intuitive insights that guide you through the day. And so this is really exciting. Now, the sun is opposite Pluto because it is a full moon with the sun in Cancer. And so that creates a really big rebirth because there's a tension with the sun and Pluto that is asking you to just surrender. So if you feel any kind of tension at this time, it's really about relaxing into a new way of being and allowing yourself to breathe and to rest and to let bygones be bygones and meditate and get into nature. Remember that 13 code that's really an invitation to partake in Mother Nature. Now, another conjunction, so the moon is conjunct Pluto, and the sun is conjunct Mercury. So Mercury is at 17 degrees, the sun at 21 degrees, both in Cancer. And so this really focuses your practical thinking on goals. So you you become conscious of them. And remember, the empowerment through Pluto makes you feel like you can accomplish anything because you're, you're, the moon and Pluto are just literally bursting with this courage inside your heart. So you can do many things. You can, with the Mercury conjunction to the sun, your, your intelligence, your intellectual processing ability is very strong. You're engaged in that way. You have a clear intellect. You have uh, clarity about positive outcomes as well. And so any kind of communication that you have during, around this full moon is going to be infused with positive um, encouragement and just a sense of being very optimistic. And so that's a good thing. Now, the moon is opposite Mercury, given that the sun is merged with Mercury. So this can create a moodiness at times. Uh, there is a conflict here between possibly your feelings and your brain, your, your thoughts. So it's a, it could be a, a sense of readjustment that needs to happen. And so, you, you know, because of the emphasis on home and family, getting things in order, getting your home and environment in order, uh, cleaned, um, really, so you feel at home and not in, in a sense of clutter. This is a wonderful feng shui full moon to begin with. So that would be a wonderful way to just tidy your life, tidy your space. And then finally, the moon is trying Uranus, and that means the sun is sextile Uranus. And so we have 
a big activation here in terms of freedom and breakthroughs and imagination and intuition, interest in astrology and numerology, uh, unusual experiences, and just yearning for emotional freedom as well because the heart-centered breakthroughs that are going on all over the place here are just really favored. You're just letting go, releasing, and yearning is taking you into the future without a without baggage, right? Um, and, oh, I forgot, we have the sun, trine, Neptune, and moon, sextile Neptune. There's so much going on with this full moon. It's just incredible. So this Neptune connection really increases compassion and empathy, sensitivity, very similar to the number 13 as well. And the Pluto conjunction is so sensitive, so tuned in. Your psychic abilities are just through the roof, you're meaning listen to your intuition, listen to the inner voice, you feel very creative, and your inner artist just wants to come through. And then, just to put the cherry on top, we have the moon and sun square to Chiron, which creates a T-square to the planet of healing through love. So if you feel drawn to talk to a friend about, talk through something or get some kind of therapy or cranial sacral Reiki. This is a wonderful time. Massage. It's just a fabulous time to pay attention to unresolved energy at this time. There are other transits as well. Venus trying Saturn is happening. So you get more serious about love, about finances, about beauty. It's, it flows. It's a trine. So, you know, Saturn is, is the wise teacher, and so there can be this sense of valuing things in your life that you may not have valued, especially regarding relationships and finances and anything that uh, gives you pleasure to put just your attention onto those. And we also have Venus square to Neptune, and so that brings a little bit of uncertainty and insecurity unless you use the discipline of Saturn to come through and focus on those values and focus on those responsibilities and guard against being too impressionable, right? Too caught, too, too caught up in the, uh, the imagination, the unreality that is, that is taking you away from what's actually happening in front of you. Though if you do want to create, this is actually a wonderful additional way to bypass some of the tension because Neptune and Venus are connected to creativity, especially music. So if you could channel your energy into those or into being affectionate and tender and into what brings you pleasure, but without overdoing it, without going overboard, uh, this is another way to really have an incredible experience with this wonderful full moon. This is really filled with empathy and compassion and, and a wake up for us to just tune into our hearts where the sun is in cancer, which really is about that compassion and nurturing. And then the moon in Capricorn just really is focusing us on what we're here really to do. Like, where is your heart? Where are you leaving your heart? What really lights you up in terms of your mission and your destiny and your purpose? And because Capricorn naturally rules 
the area of the astrology, which is the career. And so what fires you up? Just really dig into that and focus on that and give it your full attention. And if you then go with the flow, you know, Capricorn is ruled by Saturn. Saturn is timing. And you just allow the, t- the natural timing of your life to unfold always making sure that your heart is engaged, that you're listening here instead of here, right? Because here is for practical, but here is for inspiration and guidance. And so, yes, you need your mind to translate and to get along with, do all the practical things during the day. It's really here where you receive the spiritual sustenance. So I hope you have a beautiful, beautiful Capricorn full moon. Really enjoy this one. The the codes are just stunning. And uh, also enjoy your own code. You have a star code too. So if you want to discover yours, your astrology, numerology code, your destiny, your purpose, the numbers, the degree numbers in your astrology and how they line in, how they how they align with your numerology code, Go to starcodeclass.com where I have a free masterclass for you. It's about 90 minutes long and it's just an introduction into who you are at soul level, who others are at soul level as well so you understand them more and are in a place of non-judgment regarding their decision-making process and their way of life. And it, it includes, by the way, a handout. So that'll help you to just be completely immersed in the material that's presented. Again, it's free and you can get instant access at starcodeclass.com. Have a beautiful Capricorn full moon and I'll see you in next week's Star Codes podcast. Lots of love. It's time to go to the conference call, everybody. Uh, we got a full uh, full plate here today. So, Rama, what's the number? Uh, 720-716-7301. And the pin code is 353-863-POUND. Okay. Want to say that one more time just to make sure everybody's got it. 720-716-7301. And the PIN code is 353-863-POUND. Okay, everybody. Beautiful Capricorn full moon coming up. I guess it's on the 13th of July. But we're going to enjoy the moment here in this 13 universal month. The Divine Feminine coming in strong to bring the balance to the masculine. And so we will take a break and then we'll be conferencing with one another and Then we'll be right back here at BBS Radio Station 2, the best radio in the universe. Better.
best in the West. <laughs> okay, namaste. See you there. See you on the conference, everyone. Tell us our brother's name again, Rama. Uh, Dr. Paul. <laughs> Caroline had him on as a guest yeah. on our show. It's such a beautiful song. It's after nine here, and I'm just thinking, you know, wherever you are, I mean, if you're in California, it's not time yet, but wherever you are, that it's after nine. I mean, just even while we're listening and stuff, you can step out the door, just call in the ships. Dr. Greer made a strong suggestion like that. Yeah. And, uh... I think Penny has that, right? You have, has Dr. Greer's little three-minute piece. Did you send that to Penny? Yeah, I did. So um, you can go there and uh, yeah, uh, and take a look uh, on the screen. It's just about three minutes. We played it on Thursday. There's literally an angelic being, and Dr. Greer or somebody had a really good... Uh, zoom in camera and they could see the uh, rainbow vibrations around the head and around the heart as you've got closer view and it's pretty profound everyone just call the chips in because they'll show up in the proper place and we're just putting our two cents in for that tonight everyone we just got another Gentle rain. We are so grateful. And it cooled everything down. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's cooler than the day. And we're grateful for that. There's other times when it gets more humid, you know. But we are grateful. And uh, Rama picked this piece. Our sister Regina Meredith. And she's got something here for us to... Listen to it's called Sacred Geometry and Empowered Action. How can sacred geometry help us create better alignments with our energetic bodies? Robert J. Gilbert, Ph.D., returns to Gaia to delve into sacred geometry and how it can aid us in acknowledging and shifting patterns in our lives. Sharing his experience and research, Gilbert explains how we can create empowered action to transform our relationships and habits. Explore how we can expand our perceptions through understanding, understanding, overstanding these shapes and patterns as keys to ancient and universal knowledge. Robert J. Gilbert is the host of the Gaia original series, Sacred Geometry, Spiritual Science. So we welcome him back with Regina Meredith. Here we go. This is 47 minutes. 47 minutes. It's coming. Once I found that I could get new 
insights into the natural systems that life is based on, mm -hmm. it really got me onto the path of the sacred geometry work. What sacred geometry is is a modern term for what in ancient times would have been understanding the key to everything. Because once you know the pattern, that gives you power over the thing. People will often begin to recognize the different levels of subconscious motivation that is condemning them to repeat the same problems in relationship after relationship. But you have to like do a pattern interrupt. Are we supporting the other person's freedom or are we basing the relationship on, I want you to be the person I'm casting in this role in my psychodrama. It's really easy through the reactive mind to start wanting to manipulate other people. And you see this all day long every day in most relationships, That's it's a matter of degree. How are we going to balance love and freedom? That's the holy grail of being human and in human relationship. One of our resident geniuses is back with us once again. Robert Gilbert, who is now featured on Gaia with his new show, Sacred Geometry, is here to give us a taste of how we can use geometry to strengthen and empower our lives. We'll be advancing our previous conversation by digging deeper into sacred patterns. So welcome back, Robert. Thank you. It's great to be here. A really big part of what you're doing right now is pattern recognition. And this is something that is... Uh, not just useful, but kind of necessary for our, our evolvement as individuals <laughs> in society, right? Absolutely. I think one of the biggest problems humanity has is we keep repeating the same mistakes, right? Mm -hmm. Seeing a lot of that right now. Mm -hmm. So we're going to begin our conversation, first of all, by just a, a little bit about your background once again, because it was an interesting way to kind of back into biogeometry. U.S. Marine Corps instructor in the nuclear biological chemical defense field. One would not think of that as someone who's going to take up, you know, the mantle of a, an instructor in, in sacred geometry. So just give us a little background again on that. Okay. So in the early 1980s, I joined the U.S. Marine Corps, and I was made an instructor, as you mentioned, in the nuclear, biological, chemical defense field. Now, that basically deals with the practical applications of physics, biology, and chemistry. But unfortunately, in a very negative way, basically to create weapons of mass destruction. Yeah. And I was on the defense side, so I was teaching people how to survive in battlefields where these things could be deployed. At that time, I became interested in understanding more about how do we antidote things like the exposure we have every day to radiation, the exposure we have to toxic chemicals, the biological agents that we're exposed to. These are things that are always dangerous for humanity. And in my own research in it, I found that a lot of the scientific discussions of it are very abstract for people, and many people simply can't connect to the scientific studies because they're based on very dense algebraic equations. And most people still have some type of post-traumatic stress syndrome That's from high school. That's my hand, in, algebra. Uh -uh. <laughs> in dealing with math, you're not going to go there. No. But I found that there was a whole series of scientific documents that had been created by organizations like NATO that study natural systems based on pure geometry, based on pure shape. And so when it's based on pure shape and geometry, you can see the pattern directly that all these things are based on. And I found that people could absorb that almost instantaneously. And this was applying to um, counterterrorism type of antidotes or to the actual weapons themselves the chemicals themselves, all all things going back to these same simple geometrical pa um, 
symbols or patterns? Everything is based on a pattern. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at a basic chemistry textbook, you'll see these particular diagrams where they're showing many geometries that would have been recognized in the old Greek school 2,500 years ago or in Egypt even before that as classical patterns rediscovered in modern times that all of these natural systems are based on. And so once we began to understand in modern science and technology that the knowledge of the ancients of these types of patterns are what's being rediscovered in modern scientific research and technology, that's what really got me on this path. Once I found that I could get new insights into the natural systems that life is based on, based on pure geometry, and how well people responded to having it taught to them that way rather than in dense mathematics, Mm -hmm. it really got me onto the path of the sacred geometry work. And I was able to take that further when I left the Marine Corps and I got my PhD in international studies. Because in the time in international studies, I could study classical systems all around the world Mm -hmm. and how they, in their advanced healing, advanced spiritual practices, would apply various types of geometric patterns, which in many cases overlap with the patterns you find in modern science and technology. And then from there, I began to teach publicly the research I'd done to connect modern science and technology directly with the same pattern to ancient spiritual teachings and began to teach sacred geometry. And then around the year 2000, I met Dr. Ibrahim Karim from Cairo, Egypt, who's the Mm -hmm. founder of biogeometry. And biogeometry, in terms of what people in the West think of as sacred geometry, biogeometry could be thought of as the hidden, lost energy science inside of sacred geometry that you almost never hear about anymore, but was really the heart of the ancient sacred geometry. And so biogeometry is really nature's design language. How nature uses shape, sound, color, motion, angle, proportion, number to be able to create everything in the world Mm -hmm. and create the very specific vibratory characteristics based on those quality scales. So that's the background at which I'm coming toward Hmm. the work in sacred geometry and really emphasizing the pattern recognition Because sometimes sacred geometry is taught in such a way that it can be very heady, very intellectual, or very connected to a lot of math that, although very useful in that form, many people don't really connect to it in that way. But if you understand sacred geometry as the recognition of the patterns of everything in our life, including our emotional life, our relationships, our diet, as well as advanced spiritual practices, who am I, why am I here, what can I do with my limited time in my life on earth to actually move ahead in spiritual evolution. All these things are based on pattern recognition. Yes. And as we said, this is something that we would probably do well to invest our a little energy into. And as you're talking every now and then I'll go off on a goofy little foray. Okay. <laughs> a little esoteric foray. But when you were talking about all things being made from these elements, um, I was having a meditation one time based on the nature of manifestation into physical reality. Mm. And it was showing that uh, in the upper dimensional fields, and you could almost align them with the chakras above the head, mm-hmm. in three tiers above the head, mm-hmm. that from the point of the thought, you know, the thought of the desired thing, outcome, whatever, it showed how exactly what you're talking about, at what stage the geometry and the numerics came in and the light and the color came in, and it showed the process of how it coalesced into what we would call a tangible or 
uh, tangible result, which then from the eighth chakra started coalescing and then dropping down to uh, down into our conscious awareness and ability to uh, verbalize, articulate it, and begin actually creating it in this dimension. And I found it absolutely fascinating the step down process from thought through every single element you mentioned to creation itself in our dimension anyway don't know how it works in other planets but (laughs) i love that and i'd like to say a few things regarding that this is very connected to a lot of the research i've done and things that i've seen in classical traditions Mm -hmm. particularly what you find in the himalayan tradition in nepal what you see in their tonka paintings They're very clear about the importance of the energy centers above the head Mm -hmm. and the flow coming down Mm -hmm. into the central energy system. Mm -hmm. And so one part of that is understanding the energy centers of the human body and the particular flow patterns of the human energy field. So I personally feel that the most important energy axis of the whole human energy field is the vertical axis coming from above our head, from the crown, down the exact epicenter of the trunk, down to the perineum, and then down into the earth. Mm-hmm. I'd agree. And with that being the case, there is the ability to not only develop the chakras and many chakras inside the body, but as you were saying, the ones above the head. Mm-hmm. And in many of the bodies of work that I uh, connect to, they focus primarily on the first three above the head, mm-hmm. just like you're talking yeah, about here. That's what I was showing. We do that in biogeometry. We talk about the three above the head yeah. and how to activate it with shape, how to activate it with sound, things like this. Yeah. And I was really fascinated during research with this back in the 1980s with this whole question about how do we deal with these energy centers above the head and picking up higher information. Exactly. That gets transmitted, not one word after another, but in a type of eureka moment, a type of instantaneous transmission of a tremendous amount of content in a tightly packed format. That when I trained at the Clear Vision School of Australia, with Dr. Samuel Sagan many years ago, he referred to these as packed thought forms. Mm -hmm. That's what it looks like, yeah. And above the head is where we can receive or transmit these packed thought forms, which is, again, an instantaneous transmission of densely packed information that you get in a second. And the centers above the head are specialized to be able to connect to these and receive them. And then we have to transmit them down the vertical column. And then it comes in through the crown center, and unpacks into thoughts. Yes. It's very interesting that a Nobel Prize was awarded a number of decades ago to a man named Eccles, whose work was based on finding the origin of thoughts in the human mind. And he said at the end of it, he found that there was no one part of the brain that was responsible for starting the process of having a thought in the human mind. Instead, what happened is that a type of higher dimensional field, he said, interacts with the human head at the location of the Mm -hmm. supplementary motor area. Well, the supplementary motor area, if you look on an anatomy diagram, is exactly where the crown Crown center is. Absolutely. (laughs) Exactly. And then we take it in from these higher points as a packed thought form, and then we unpack it through the firing of the neurons into thoughts into the brain. Exactly. And so this is actually a key, I think, to really advanced forms of spiritual initiation. I think it is too, and it was interesting because I don't even know what I was meditating about. I was poking around asking questions, right? Mm-hmm. And so when I do that every now and then, that happens, you know, I'll, I'll be downloading mm-hmm. something and be shown the mechanics of something. But the reality is I was simply looking at the mechanics of how it works, but that doesn't make me a master of knowing how to utilize the upper three. 
chakras. Mm-hmm. And so that, as you say, this is where some higher spiritual initiation can take place. And then I would have to guess that that's because that's interfacing with, in hermetic parlance, the higher mind or the higher self or the soul spirit complex. And so is this a different kind then of a different quality than of manifestation? Because this complex here would be listening to something of a more refined nature, i.e. the higher mind, higher self, soul complex, in that what it may want to be manifesting. Does that make sense? Rather than a common thought like, I want to manifest a blue dress. You know, that's, you don't have to go through all that. So the process, the practical function and use of these upper chakras for higher manifestation, that would be the question. How do we do that? So one of the ways to understand how to work with it is always based on sacred geometry, because everything has a pattern, including how to activate the energy centers of the human body. There are multiple patterns involved here, but the most fundamental one is what you see in all the classical traditions as a point in the center of a circle. Mm -hmm. And so that point in the center of the circle, the point is zero-dimensional, and it's our, in biogeometry, it's referred to as a transcendental gateway beyond space and time. And that's meant quite literally. It's like a portal. Exactly, in biogeometry. And then the circle around it is the movement from that center expanding outward, like the singularity in physics, Mm -hmm. moving outward to become manifest creation, creating space and time with it, to create the perfect form of sacred geometry, which is the sphere. Mm -hmm. Because every point on the surface of the sphere is equidistant from the center. But the center is always the key. The center is how we connect to dimensions of the highest possible level. Except for the Earth, of course, it's flat. <laughs> and so that's the biggest argument for the fact that the Earth is not flat because everything operates in a spheroid, so to speak. And that's because if you're going to go from zero dimensionality to create a container for physical creation yes. to be able to manifest in, the perfect container is that of the sphere. Always, yeah. And so if we become aware of any energy center in the human body, so for example, if the person viewing our interview here was to put their attention on one of the easiest energy centers to feel, which is the one between the eyebrows slightly inside the head, the Ajna center of the Himalayan initiation. If you put your attention on that, just close the eyes, and you put your attention at that point, then one of the processes from the Himalayan tradition that I learned with Dr. Sagan at the Clair Vision School a number of years ago is that of move all of your energy and attention into the center of the center of the center of the center of that point that you feel that energetic vibration of that energy center in the body or even outside the body. And so there's a movement inwards. And as you go inward, you start to connect to the actual core power of that energy center. And at a certain point of moving into the absolute center not only will it activate the energy center, it has a kind of effect of flicking an energetic switch in the body of energy where the energy then begins to move back out in a counter movement. And at that point, you'll feel a movement of light and energy out from the energetic center, forming a sphere around it, or potentially even like a sun, radiating light and energy in all directions around that energy center. And so this is the most primal movement, the one into the energy center and then allowing that to expand back out. Now, when it expands back out, does it bring with it new understanding, feeling, knowledge? 
it can. And in fact, the movement back out doesn't even have to take place to access the knowledge. You can access the knowledge with the movement inward. Mm -hmm. But that movement outward is then taking that vibrational quality, that essence that you touched moving inward and allowing it to expand back out. But the thing about this that people need to understand is that as the ancient mysteries went into decline and we came into modern materialistic times, what we got transmitted in metaphysics tended to be fragments right. of complete systems. Mm -hmm. And so what you'll tend to find is that in one system versus another, they will teach only one part of the movement. So I studied with many different traditions that only teach the movement into the center. And that's it. You go into the center and you stay in the center. Then there were others that started with putting the attention on the energy center and immediately expanding it out to be a ball of light or a sun. But it really only works to its full capacity if both stages are together. It's a type of pulsation movement. And so to move our attention into the center of the energy center is absolutely vital. But then there also has to be the counter movement back outward. And in that case, the consciousness that we access by moving into the center moves back outward in the form of light. And then that's when you begin to activate the light around the energy centers, around the body, forming the halo, mm -hmm. all these types of things. And it then leads to the fundamental understanding that then becomes experiential for a person that consciousness and light are the exact same thing. When you experience it in the inward journey, it's consciousness. When it comes back out in manifestation, it's light. And so always the light auras around masters that you see in spiritual depictions are a representation of the level of consciousness that they achieved as it comes back outward in its external expression as light. Fascinating and helpful and useful. Uh, we won't go into those upper, upper chakras, uh, uh, other upper chakras at this time because that's more highly esoteric and we actually have on the ground information to use here and pattern recognition in our lives, in our relationships. Mm -hmm. So this is a question I have. You already talked about the relationship between biogeometry and pattern recognition. Everything has patterns to it. It all has its own geometry to it. And so you, you, one of the things you say is that pattern recognition allows us to move out of patterns of suffering into fully conscious choices. Please explain that, and then I have a couple follow-ups. Okay. So in my addressing this, it's going to be more based along the lines of the sacred geometry show we'll be doing at Gaia, more so than the biogeometry from Dr. Kareem. The biogeometry from Dr. Kareem does touch on some of these things, but it's really an energetic science, mm -hmm. nature's design language. So from the sacred geometry perspective, everything is a pattern. And when we can see it as a pattern, one of the places that it has the strongest initial impact in a person's day-to-day -day life for whether our lives are a misery or whether they are joyful and whether our lives we consider to be a success or to be a failure is all based on understanding the patterns behind things. So we have fragmentary understandings of these patterns when we use modern terms like life hacking. I'm going to do a life hack. But those life hacks are most always based on applying a specific pattern or seeing what a pattern is and applying a part of it. Also, when we hear about we need to have mentors and the mentor is going to teach us certain things, well, the mentor is going to teach us the pattern that they've learned, that when you do this pattern, this particular result happens. And so particularly when it comes to things that people find really go the deepest into their heart, the deepest into their experience, things having to do with love and relationships and support. All of these things are based on patterns. 
And one of the first patterns that we'll see is that every person is born with deep subconscious drives in particular directions. And this is all based on preserving life. This is the area I was going to get into next with you, so let's just dive in. Okay, great. So we have these very deep subconscious drives that have to do with fight or flight and survival mechanisms, and then also with reproduction and sex, and all of these things that people find very visceral and very exciting to deal with. But our actual motivations with them often are very deep in the subconscious, and we're not really clear what's there. We know we're attracted to this person, but not that person. But if we go more deeply into it, we then begin to find that all of these subconscious poles or drives that we have in certain directions in our life can be modified through the application of our clear consciousness. And so what you'll find is that spiritual traditions all over the world understood that one of the first steps of real spiritual initiation is simply to know thyself. And this is what in the Buddhist tradition would be considered to be mindfulness practices. So we need to be aware that a major part of mindfulness practices where you're observing yourself, you're observing your own mind, you're observing your own motivations. These are really based on pattern recognition. And that's really how it came into modern Western metaphysics. Today, if you enter into Western metaphysics, it's often based on various types of self-help methodologies and self-help books. People start reading them, these kinds of things. And you just start examining your life and seeing what patterns we've created that are dysfunctional and which patterns we have that are actually leading us into something better. And so people will often begin to recognize the different levels of subconscious motivation that is constantly handicapping their relationships or condemning them to repeat the same problems in relationship after relationship. And there are many of these, but one of the most primal and most publicized is the beginnings of psychology were based on with Sigmund Freud, of what we might refer to as bad mommy and bad daddy. And we're in relationship with someone and we begin to cast people in our own personal psychodrama. And so whatever unresolved issues we have with our mother, unresolved issues with our father, we then want to act them out with the external partner. And it often starts with the childhood traumas, what we're acting out with the partner. But then it can then begin to lead into issues of maturity or lack of maturity as we begin to discover by observing patterns that the things that I want in the relationship are completely different from what this other person wants in their relationship. They have a pattern in their mind of what they want the relationship to become that's completely different, perhaps, than the pattern that I have in mind. So in addition to casting people in our psychodrama, the bad mommy, bad daddy level, you also then have the whole issue as you get more deeply into these relationship conflicts that one person has the idea that the relationship is going to be completely static. Anything that you've ever said or represented will always be true, will always be present, and it's always based on never changing. The other person believes the relationship is to support both people in an evolutionary process, that there is no constant but change, and we are constantly evolving and moving forward. Those two things we begin to see, those patterns don't match. Mm -mm. And what we so often have is a blaming of one person or another in a relationship, like you did the wrong thing, I did the right thing. But for me, I've tried to get out of that as I've learned through the School of Hard Knocks how this works. And I've tried to make it simply a matter of either it's a match on particular levels or it's not a match. It may be a match physically, it may be a match sexually, maybe a match emotionally, 
maybe a match mentally or spiritually, but it's very common that it'll match on certain levels and not others. But to be able to observe patterns in relationships and to get our emotional needs met can help us avoid a tremendous amount of unnecessary pain and suffering. I couldn't agree more with that. I think everybody listening to this knows the empirical truth of that. And it does become complex when you're looking at certain areas matching and others not and feeling threatened at the core. Your survival feels threatened on some level. So then thus not wanting to acknowledge the areas that don't match, for example. But one of the things you mentioned before is a challenge is the word subconscious. Mm -hmm. So many of the patterns that you're trying to recognize are uh, below conscious understanding and recognition. They are subconscious. So, I mean, one way is to look at your reactions Mm -hmm. to life and start seeing a pattern in your own reactions Mm -hmm. and then back engineering what that may be. But maybe you have a better idea than just back engineering observation and reaction. How else do we actually gain truthful information, truthful interaction with our subconscious mind? Well, if we look at how the classical traditions did it, and again, I think Buddhism is a great illustration of this because mindfulness is so fundamental to their system. It simply becomes a thing to reach the same level of neutrality that we have in our our dealing with other people into observing our own inner life. That's it very tends, true. It tends to be that we will justify anything <laughs> yeah. that we want or we feel or our reactions. Of like, our desire. <laughs> exactly. It's justified yeah. because of this, that, or the other thing. Mm-hmm. But if there's somebody else, then we'd be critical of it. And so the first step is always to get into a type of neutral state. And really, as you said, reactivity is the core of it. Yeah. As long as we're in reactivity, it's almost a, a thing of two stages. We start out in reactivity, mm-hmm. then we become mindful and observe the reactivity, mm-hmm. and through a completely neutral observation, and at first don't even try to change the pattern. Just recognize it. Just recognize yeah. it. And one thing that the Buddhists observed that was so powerful is that if you have an addictive process to a particular thing, then just observe what you're thinking and feeling when you are addictively reaching out for that thing and really feel what that is fully. And that in and of itself starts to work toward breaking the addiction because it really can only work fully if it's reactive, if it's something that is coming out of the subconscious, not observed, and then becomes a deeply set mechanism. So this means that when we observe patterns, we can observe patterns that have become habits that we didn't even know we had. Yes, because it goes so deep. And then if you want to take it as far as continued life cycles and reincarnation, we have stuff that's in there. We have all of these pixels all loaded in that subconscious mind. In fact, I was addicted to mochas. I didn't drink coffee or tea until I was over 40. Mm -hmm. And then I was introduced I went down the hole. I was introduced to mochas, which what kid doesn't like hot chocolate, right? Right, right? An excuse to drink hot chocolate. So I became addicted, and I thought, okay, I need to break the addiction. This I'm doing this every day now. It's not good for me. I wasn't feeling that great. So um, I know how to work with the mind, and I'd had a hypnotherapy clinic, and I thought, okay, just show me. Let me just let me see where this is coming from. And uh, boom, I ended up in the most unexpected place well, lifetimes ago in, in a pattern of abuse that was happening. Mm. And what was available to me in that lifetime, I was in a culture that chocolate and coffee 
I could combine at that time were available to me in that culture. And that's what I used to boost serotonin to handle the abusive experiences. Mm -hmm. And so interestingly, in at that time, I was in a situation kind of like that. Mm -hmm. Not as bad. Mm -hmm. And so isn't it interesting? I developed the desire for the cure when the situation arose. Mm -hmm. And it was tied into a time, you know, a few hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. Just tossing it out there. Yeah. The cure, the problem rose together. Yes. In a, a far distant time. You know, there's a fascinating type of uh, exercise that's done in the European Rosicrucian tradition that's called the dissolving practice. And the dissolving practice is something where you could dissolve virtually anything in your mind to reveal the energy pattern behind it. Yeah, that's useful. Or the spiritual essence mm-hmm. behind it. So you could dissolve that quartz crystal mm-hmm. into an energetic pattern that it crystallized around to give it the form and pattern that it has. You can do the same thing to a human being. And in this particular resolution practice, you would dissolve away the image of the person mm-hmm. and then see the energetic pattern behind them, mm-hmm. which includes aspects of their consciousness and their mind, etc. Mm-hmm. And so one of the You things- do this through your desire? Or are you will to do so? Or is there a specific protocol or practice or pattern used to do that? There's a particular longer exercise that I teach in some okay. classes that goes step by step through it. But the basic concept is simply as a, a internal action, you are wiping away the person's physical appearance. Mm-hmm. And instead, what you're left with is the vibration yeah. of their voice Energy imprint. Yeah. and the way they hold their body, the way mm-hmm. they move their hands. As you go more deeply into it, you then see that certain energy centers are highly activated, others are not as activated, certain lines of energetic connection are present, that there are particular geometric forms in the connections between the energy centers and acupuncture points, etc., that form more complex geometries. And that is actually the one thing we take with us through the gate of death. Mm -hmm. We don't take anything physical with us. Mm -hmm. What we take through is the structure of the subtle bodies. Yes. And the thing that really affected me, I think, at the most core level as I was studying all these traditions was really to understand that it's the structure of the subtle bodies that determines happiness or misery in life, that determines our positive spiritual development or going into some terrible rabbit hole that is destructive. It's all what structures are we creating in the subtle body. And so this has many different aspects to it. But I would just simplify it for a general audience by saying, Every thought that we ever have, every emotion we ever generate, creates an energetic movement. And that begins to activate or to impair the action of particular energy centers in the body. It begins to move energy into greater geometric patterns. And so some very advanced spiritual masters and some traditions like the Himalayas, one of the first things they'll do when they're sitting with a new disciple is that they'll look at them mm-hmm. and they'll see what's the structure of the mm-hmm. subtle body and to what degree is that central axis fully developed. If it's not fully developed, they know they haven't done a lot of work before. Mm-hmm. But if that central axis is highly developed, then in a short period of time, they can activate the centers above the head, achieve the pack thought forms and be able to be fully conscious in realms beyond the physical. And so that structuring of the subtle body, I think, is so important. And it links to the type of karmic things like you're talking Mm -hmm. about, Mm -hmm. that those things created a structure in the subtle bodies Mm -hmm. that need to be illuminated and transformed. Mm -hmm. And the way to transform it is through light. And light comes from the consciousness that we place on it. Yes. I found the discovery very useful 
and I stopped drinking mochas. Mm. <laughs> I thought there that's not necessary. No, I see, yeah, practice. That was very, very <laughs> practical. It's like don't need to be doing that anymore. Exactly. Uh, but I just found the pat. The, again, the patterns are what's interesting. Those trap yes. patterns are what's interesting. Mm-hmm. And there were patterns on two sides here on problem and solution. Both had become patterns. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, again, often when people hear sacred geometry, it's very common in metaphysics today that you see the word sacred geometry and then you see things like shapes of platonic solids. Uh-huh. And and that's fine. That's a major part of sacred geometry. But I think sometimes because the way it's presented, people don't understand that what sacred geometry is is a modern term for what in ancient times would have been understanding the key to everything. Because once you know the pattern, that gives you power over the thing. Without knowing the pattern you can't begin to change it in any constructive way. Mm-hmm. So things that are absolutely fundamental to our lives, whether it's diet, exercise, the rhythm of waking and sleep, or again, what people find penetrates deepest to their heart with emotional relationships, these things are all based on patterns. And so it just becomes a question for a person, what do you want to explore? What do you want to move ahead in your life right now? But by becoming conscious of the pattern, And first, just observing it, don't try to change it. And then in observing it, it'll begin to become clear what parts of it you're not resonant with. Mm -hmm. And at that point, you can then begin to make a new choice for what's the new pattern I want to put into place. Mm -hmm. And that new understanding of pattern will then get ingrained until it becomes a habit. Best taken, as you say, in baby steps. Because otherwise, everyone wants to go all in. You want to fix everything at once. You get discouraged and you go away. You're more overwhelmed than anything else. So I like the way you describe it uh, or you explained it in terms of taking one thing at a time, examining it fully, that one thing first, until you can begin seeing patterns emerge. So when we're looking at trying to create a different kind of relationship by recognition of these patterns, how would that look in super practical terms? Okay, let's go back to your example before. You have this, this, and this in common. You do not have this in common. And perhaps that thing is important to both of you. How do you work with that? One of the things that, if we're talking about brass tacks here, is that you'll find that very commonly if you have two people getting together in a relationship and they both are liking the way it's going so far, you have to be very careful that one person says to the other, I want to be upfront with you and I'm looking for this. The other person may not be looking for that, but because they don't want to... Disturb the boat. <laughs> they don't want to rock the boat. They don't, don't want to torpedo the yeah. boat at the beginning yeah. before anything happens. They say, oh, yeah, sure, I'm, I'm into oh, that. Right. That's great. But one of the things that we have to develop sensitivity to is the energetics of the other person. And, you know, there's all these kind of different ways to do it. We can do it through body language and observing that. But it's also a type of energetic sensitivity. People who are naturally empaths, they already automatically do it. But for people who aren't gifted as empaths to begin with, it's always a question of how quiet we get inside. And one of the great things of any relationship that indicates it going off track is when grasping comes in. The way the Tibetans talk about grasping, you want to grasp it, you want to possess it, you want to control it. And so at those times, you have to train yourself to do something completely opposite. And it has to be fully conscious because otherwise it'll just go become a reactive pattern mm-hmm. and you won't even know what's happening. But you have to like do a pattern interrupt, like they'd say in neurolinguistic programming, mm-hmm. do a pattern interrupt and then get a break where you can go into complete silence and stillness and be fully conscious. 
Because becoming aware of other people's thoughts, feelings, etc., in the healthiest possible way isn't a matter of invasively going into their field and grabbing things. It's a matter of becoming so quiet inwardly yourself that it becomes evident what's in the energy field. But you have to be super quiet inside to be able to hear it. Mm-hmm. And so I think you hit the nail on the head when you talked about before about reactivity. Getting out of the reactive mind is the difference between a person who's on a path downward and a person who's on a path upward. I, this, I think that's totally true. However, the reactivity itself is giving you hidden information. Mm-hmm. So how do we use the information yet break the pattern? Well, one of the parts of the reactivity is that it's often connected to these subconscious drives, right. subconscious needs, but There's, we're trying to get a need met. Mm-hmm. And so we have to get clear in ourselves, why do I keep having problems in relationships based on this particular issue? Because often once the person is not giving us what we're wanting, mm-hmm. then it's a matter of blaming them. Right. Again, often this can come from bad, bad mommy, bad daddy, or other types of things that we want that they're not giving us. But it really comes down to, are we focused on a relationship that is supporting the other person's freedom? Or are we basing the relationship on, I want you to be the person I'm casting in this role in my psychodrama. You're supposed to look like this, so I'm going to tell you what to wear. You're supposed to talk like this, so I'm going to criticize your speech and tell you exactly the words you need to say otherwise. You need to do this, that, and the other thing. And it becomes more and more dominating. Getting that moment where we can go into the quiet, the silence, break the reactive pattern, see what that is, but also to go back into the heart and the silence to restore an appreciation for the freedom of the other person. Right. Because we have our needs, but it's really easy through the reactive mind to start wanting to manipulate other people. And you see this all day long every day in most relationships. Absolutely. It's a matter of degree. Absolutely. Very seldom do you see someone that is truly holds that enlightened place of genuine belief and thought that it is my joy to support your freedom above my my desires in the moment even. Absolutely. That's very that's a big one. That's that's the holy grail of <laughs> being human and in human relationship. Yes. There's a concept in the Rosicrucian tradition, particularly the work of Rudolf Steiner where he talks about all the higher spiritual hierarchies above the human being, the angelic ranks, and they all have these esoteric names. But the esoteric name of the human race in this form of Rosicrucianism is spirits of love and freedom. And our whole choice on the physical plane is how are we going to balance love and freedom? Because love is unity, and freedom is separation and free choice. And To have these work in a harmonious way mm-hmm. is very difficult to achieve. Yes. But it's what we're all striving With for. With human emotions involved. And distorted what, from whatever's in that subconscious of ours. Absolutely. And until we're fully conscious of that, right. what will tend to happen is we'll simply have a type of knee-jerk mechanism. Right. Where we're alone. Now I'm lonely. I want a relationship. I'm with somebody else. Now I've bonded with somebody else in a relationship. And good God, I I'm want not my, letting go. <laughs> <laughs> or it can be that then it gets too tight. Right. And like I have the love, but I no longer have the freedom. I know I want my freedom back. And then you become lonely again, and then right. you want to bond again. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about that place in between there, yes. where you have now come to recognize consciously that someone has just listened to you. Say, yes. geez, I, I tend to do that. I, I, I do tend to get a little needy. I do tend to be a little controlling, whatever the flavor is. 
now you recognize that and you don't really desire that you do want to live into this but what is the antidote inside oneself then that is going through that kind of suffering to release so that you can truly take joy in someone else's freedom even to the extent that that freedom could take them away from you one day so there's one aspect of it that i think you're pointing toward and what types of burdens do we carry internally yes. that have to be let go yes. so that we can be in that space? Yes. And what works along with that is then having an understanding of the pattern involved that we have both the need for love and connection and the need for freedom at the same time. Mm-hmm. And that means that rather than going into a pendulum swing, and you see this all the time, people yeah. get deeply into a relationship, yeah. then they don't have enough freedom, so they make it blow up. And they'll blow up one relationship after another. Then they get their freedom back and say, oh, thank God I'm out of that claustrophobic For a year or two and then and it's like, lonely. I'm so lonely <laughs> yeah. and i got to get back into it. Yeah. So rather than doing the pendulum swing, it's a matter of rhythm. And so this is another part of pattern. It's another part of sacred mm-hmm. geometry is having a correct rhythm with it. And people have different structures internally for like how much of my day do I want to spend with a partner and how much of my day do I want to have free that I can choose to do what I want to do. Right. And again, it's a matter of conversing with the partner to be clear about being on the same page. But I think everybody needs to be really clear that in the beginning of relationships, it's very common that one person will try to please the other and say, oh yeah, I'm totally into that too. That's what I'm all about. Or God forbid both of you are doing it so you have no baseline at all here. Until finally <laughs> it blows up. And it, yeah. it will blow up. Yeah. So I think a lot of this has to do with toxic mythology that we carry so much toxic mythology about relationships. And so we're going to cast in our psychodrama in the role of our perfect partner. And then, you know, we start to get upset with them at a very reactive subconscious level because you're not acting like my perfect partner. You don't look the way they should look. So I want you to go change your appearance to look like the person I'm looking for. Change your clothes, change how you speak, change your, your work, change who you spend time with. And it becomes more and more controlling. And so to get out of the toxic mythology that this one person is going to be the one perfect match for you and find how to go into that quiet space to be able to perceive who they are as a unique spiritual being and to give them the freedom to do what they need to do. Because it's been my experience that when you are in a relationship and both people feel completely free and they're both choosing to be together at that time, but they also feel completely free to express when they want to have alone time. Mm-hmm. This is at a very simple level. But that's when things tend to work out the best. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you've got a situation that's untenable. So it always comes down to me of not blaming one person or another, but it's simply, is it a match? And then to always realize it's not simply that the other person's not doing what I want, but what toxic mythologies am I bringing into the relationship What burdens am I carrying in my own soul for my own suffering that I'm wanting the other person to heal inside of me Mm -hmm. rather than my letting it go? Because this is another very common one. You have two people in a relationship. One of them subconsciously wants the relationship to heal all their old wounds. So Carolyn Mace would talk about his woundology. Right. And so they want the relationship to be, oh, I'm going to heal your wounds. You're going to heal my wounds. And the other person may be okay with that for a little bit. It's like, okay, let's deal with that and then it'll be done. The other person's like, well, no, that's the pattern. We do this for years. We keep working on those wounds. But the other person's real motivation is not anything having to do with healing each other's wounds. It's about having a partner for all kinds of exploration. Mm -hmm. And those are completely different motivations. Completely. 
And so, of course, even if they care about each other, it's going to blow up in the end with a lot of recriminations of why did you do this to me type of thing. And so we have to be aware for bringing into the relationship these internal burdens, these internal wounds that's making the pattern of our subtle bodies and our consciousness that are going to keep blowing up all of our relationships. Because in the end, the other person is going to lose interest in having to constantly be our counselor, be our healer, and play whatever role we're assigning to them. You know, they're going to want to be free at some point. Right, right. That's fascinating. And we're, we're about out of time. And look, we didn't get to some of these other topics <laughs> about sacred geometry. But as you're saying, it's all geometry. It's all a dance. It's all in the patterns. And you have another show that will delve much more deeply into the hidden energy of the geometry behind all of these dynamics. Is that fair to say? Yes, absolutely. In our sacred geometry series coming up, we're going to deal with everything from the energy science to the relationships yes. to the vibrational patterns that stand behind everything in manifestation. Yes, well, thank you for bringing such clear and articulate information, but also relationship advice. What an unexpected <laughs> treat for everybody. Because right now, apparently, if you, after a period of being cooped up together for a long time and not a lot going on, uh, relationships have been struggling greatly. Uh, domestic bu- abuse around the world is up. Um, you have to wait in line to get a ticket to get a divorce in the divorce court. Um, there are no counselors to see because they're tired and overbooked. And so the things that you've said, I think, are really important if someone wants to pay attention and pick it up on a position of self-responsibility. I think what you said was beautiful. Oh, thank you. And just as a very quick comment to that, I do think we're at an absolute crisis point in the yes, world now because we've we never are. had a, a global lockdown. No. It's never happened we before are. until now. Everybody who is in a relationship is dealing with the thing about, yes, I had the love, but I didn't have any freedom. I got right. locked in with this person. Right. So they're desperate for freedom. People who were alone and sequestered for this whole thing have their own mental challenges and emotional challenges that they felt completely isolated right. and abandoned for a year. Yeah. And this is something that understanding these relationship dynamics as people try to get whole and healed from this emotional damage They need to be clear about this love and freedom dynamic. I think you're absolutely right. And then you throw the powder keg of of politics on top of it, of disease and fear of, you know, illness and death on top of it. We're at a crisis point. And I think your thinking is very clear. I really appreciate it. So I look forward to seeing your pieces. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you, Robert. Again, you can watch Robert's work here on Gaia. If you enjoyed this conversation, you might also want to watch my previous interview with Robert here on Gaia. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on Open Minds. Looks like that was the other one, huh? I think so. Yeah. Well, we're going to take a look at uh, George Nury's uh, guest, uh, Isabu Maxwell. Declutter your intuition. How can you live a more authentic, blissful life? Isabu Maxwell, or you author of Cracking Open, Adventures of a Reluctant Medium, describes her journey of awakening to her abilities as a medium and spiritual coach. 
through her sage method, spirituality, alignment, growth, and empowerment. She now guides others to their own intuitive natures and the synchronicity around them. Maxwell explains that as we work to avoid the distraction of programming within our environment, we are able to declutter and clear our energetic body, attuned to the spiritual world and aligned to our individual purpose and potential. It's very, it's very rewarding uh, to me that there's so much convergence on bringing our divine self-governance into play here now. So let's do this one. And I believe this is 43 43 minutes. You're right, Rama. Here we go. with intuition is that we all have it. We all have We're born with it. We're all born with it. We just don't have to use it as much as we used to. Or don't know how to. Don't know how to. Doors just all of a sudden open to all of these possibilities that I had shut out. Anything that happens to you happens to your energetic body first before you even hear it with your physical body. We've decided to be here in this human form so we can have experiences that you can only have in a linear timeline. When you defocus, mm-hmm. that's when you can sink into the intuitive information because uh-huh. it doesn't uh, exist in the solid. It's a game changer and it brings a level of beauty into your life that no one could have ex- explained to me before I opened up. Well, welcome to Beyond Belief. You know, for the past 15 plus years, Isabel Maxwell has been helping people connect to their authentic, natural, intuitive abilities. Originally a skeptic, a series of events led Isabel to opening up her own intuition and revealing her highest purpose, humanizing spirits. Her book is called Cracked Open, Adventures of a Reluctant Medium. A reluctant, why are you called a reluctant medium? <laughs> because in the beginning I was very reluctant. What really? Absolutely. What changed you? I think the way, well, I probably should start by describing how I opened up intuitively. Sure. Like you said, I was a complete skeptic and my grandmother, who I was very close to, passed away and within hours showed up in my living room in spirit form. Oh. Now, for me, that wasn't, you know, the best day it was a very frightening moment because she was not completely solid, but close to solid. Clearly you could see an image of your grandmother. She might as well have been standing there, maybe Whoa. 30% transparent. It was very impactful. And I mean, it, it even physically sent me back a little bit, you know, into, into the wall. Were you scared? Yes. I was very scared. And uh for that moment I was scared. And I remember awkwardly yelling, don't do that again. You know, just a random shout. Then when it was done, I took a few breaths and thought, what if that was her? It had to be her. I mean, it was so Was strong. it quick? It was so quick. She was there three seconds, maybe. What was really interesting to me is that she was standing sideways and she turned and looked over her shoulder and smiled and winked and then left. And dissipated. And I just guess. gone. 
like, like a blink and gone. So honestly, the reluctant part of me was I didn't want that lifestyle. I had lived, uh, you know, 30 some years already believing that that wasn't real. And, you know, that was all just for show. And I didn't think that that was my path, but what I did want was my grandmother. So I, I, I missed her. Probably still do. I do. (laughs) I do. I can communicate with her, which is wonderful, but I missed her dearly. And I reached out to someone that the, the strangest person I knew, which happened to be a Tai Chi instructor at the time. And he was a sweet, sweet man. And he helped me start to communicate with her through yes and no And at first, honestly, I was doing it out of grief. And then when the proof started to come, I realized this is, this is not grief. This is real. Now you're not a medium at that point, right? Correct. Okay. Correct. At that point, I was communicating with her and received sensations through yes and no pendulum work type Mm -hmm. things. And I recall a day that I said to her, I'm worried that I'm making this up in my head to hold on to you. And I really need your help. So you thought you might have been losing it a little bit. I thought I was losing it. I was raising two small boys. I needed to be there and be present. And I remember saying to my grandmother, I need you to help me. You know, really, is this real or is this all grief? And a few days later, she came, came to me again. Now, I'm not fully into mediumship at this point. All I can do is feel that rush that goes through you. Are you a believer at this point? Uh, 50-50. And I'm still not talking to anyone about it or, you know, sharing it. I was very much on the fence. And uh, that rush came through me. I was driving. I pulled over. I got my pendulum out. And I started doing yes and no questions, which, by the way, takes a long time (laughs) to get a message. Um, But I was devoted to this. And after 20 minutes, I got a very simple message that my mom would have a financial issue that she needed assistance with. She would call me for help, but that a friend would help her instead. And I said, this is a solid enough message that I can track this. Track this. Yeah. And if it doesn't happen, I can go reach out for some, some grief counseling and help. That uh, afternoon, my mom called and said... I need cash moved from one bank to another. Just like that. Like that. And I remember shaking a little because it was very surreal. Sure. And I said, absolutely. I drove to the first bank, got some cash, drove to the set. I mean, but then there was that part of me that's like, you know, my mom is in the financial world. She's a businesswoman. This, this has happened before where a bank has done. Yeah, right. So maybe I'm remembering something and. I pulled into her bank with the cash to deposit into the business account. And she called and said, oh, hey, 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 don't worry about it. Uh, my friend Lisa already handled it. But and you already did it too, right? No, I hadn't walked into the bank yet uh, to deposit the cash. Okay. Yeah. So I was going to help her, but a friend did. And I sat in that parking lot for a good hour just weeping. There was joy. There was like doors just all of a sudden open to all of these possibilities that I had shut out. And honestly, George, I just thought I had my grandma by my side now. And I was just so excited because I never looked back. My belief was solid from that moment on. Locked right in. Locked right in. That was it. That It was just 
there was too many what people like to say coincidences for that not to be real. See, and I believe there are no coincidences. Correct. Absolutely. For a reason. Yeah, absolutely. I love calling them synchronicities. That's that's what I love calling the them. The late Rosemary Ellen Guyler yes. was an expert on mediumship experiences and research on the afterlife. I had a great opportunity to talk with her a few years ago. Take us through the moment of death. What happens on this crossover? I believe that we go to a between place, uh, a transitional place, because uh, even when death is not violent, like it happens in sleep or it's expected, like through a, a terminal illness, uh, we, we still need a time to adjust. So we go to a place that's, very familiar to us in all the literature that's uh, been channeled through mediums and through spirit communications. Uh, this seems to be something very much like Earth, like a park-like setting. In fact, it's often called the park. Are we aware that we're dead? Uh, in many cases, yes. Sometimes when we have violent transitions, unexpected through accidents, car accidents or uh, natural disasters or uh, even an unexpected uh, criminal assault, uh, we may not realize that we're dead right away. So we meet people from the other side and we're uh, greeted by family and friends, sometimes angels, divine helpers, and we're kind of um, shown the ropes. Uh, sometimes people travel through a tunnel of light. Sometimes they just find themselves in the park. Then we're allowed to adjust to the afterlife. I believe that uh, it reflects our thoughts and our feelings. And initially, people may want a place very much like what they left behind. What we're told by the dead is that the afterlife transforms itself instantly to our thoughts. So we can have the home we really wanted. We can uh, have the body that we feel is ideal for us. You know, the state of age where we felt we were at our best. And uh, then I believe that we evolve. We get adjusted to the afterlife, and we discover that there are other states of being. Ironically, Rosemary Ellen Guiley is now in the afterlife, and there are some people who claim that she has communicated with them. I wouldn't doubt that at them. all, yeah. So she knows that. What did you think of what she had to say? Spot on. That's exactly my experience as well. Uh, for me, I'm, I'm grateful that I was able to meet my first spirit guide shortly after, you know, settling in with my grandmother. I met my first spirit guide and for almost two years, I would sit with him and learn and he would, I, I would just journal everything that he taught me. And then I would go out into the world and hear, you know, an amazing person like this yeah. say exactly what I had learned too. So they eased me into it knowing that I was a skeptic and needed that kind of extra layer. And that's exactly how I experience it as well. For me, the transition and death for, for an individual is like an escalator. It's automatic. You know, there's a pull. And the further along you get in the transition, the more intensified that unconditional love is. And on top of that, you really go from a linear timeline to a nonlinear timeline and that's what she's talking about, the ability to create around you anything and everything that you need in that moment. What is your SAGE moment method? What is that? SAGE method was interesting. Like I said, I met with my guide for a few years and learned. He was the one that helped me to hone my intuition. And after doing that, I started to work as a professional medium because that's what I thought I should do. Sure. I, it was just the next natural step. 
And my guide came to me and said, you need to take everything that you and I did and put it together and give it to other people so that they can also hone their intuition the way you did. Because, George, if I can, (laughs) anyone can. Yeah, exactly. Because I went from nothing, you know, to to full on medium. Are you glad this happened to you, this experience? So grateful. So grateful. Those first two or three years, which is what the book uh, speaks of, were rough. They were you know, um, emotionally rough, emotionally rough. Uh, my life, you know, really turned upside down. I was fortunate enough that all the people around me loved me. I didn't have any struggles with that. I think it was more an internal change, but now I see things, uh, in a different way. There's, you see things through the lens of compassion. Sure. So what is energetic body practice? What is that? That is hands down my favorite tool to teach people my favorite practice. That is a a game changer. We are raised to be aware of our physical body. You know, we clothe it, we take care of it, but a lot of us weren't raised to take care of our energetic body. And our energetic body expands outside of our physical body. So it holds our physical body and and cares for it. What happens in our day-to-day life is that anything that happens to you happens to your energetic body first. So if somebody yells at you, for example, the anger energy is going to hit your energetic body before you even hear it with your physical body. So we're walking through this lifetime. Is it kind of a buffer for it's the like, physical body? It's it's more like your spirit, more like a, um, it, it's what carries this human body through the world. And we'll have times where we don't know why we're crabby or upset it's because perhaps we went to a market and walked through the market and passed a bunch of people that were crabby and upset. And you pick we up, pick up their energy into our back. energetic body. Yep. And that's not for us to carry or hold. How do you ground yourself from that? For me, it's GCP, ground, clear, protect. That pattern establishes um, care for your body for your energetic body and it sets the intent and really it's just that intent and awareness of your energetic body that allows you to keep it clear of that which is not supposed to be in there it makes life a lot easier and grounding is very typical uh grounding anchor to mother earth in some way that works best for you tree roots or cord shooting down into the earth something like that clear imagine water pouring through your entire system and clearing out what you don't need and then protect, not isolate, but put like a bubble around it. And it's it's more of a filter. Let in what's supposed to be on my path and keep out what's not supposed to be. Moving forward with that, you now have a clear channel and a clear energy body and only what you're supposed to be carrying. It lightens a lot of your path. Guys, Lisa Gar on her program, Inspirations, had a chance to talk with Sonia Grace about these kind of techniques. People think of meditation and a lot of times they go right into their third eye and think, oh yeah, you know, that's where I teach a completely different form of meditation because I'm a firm believer that why we're here on earth is to ground our energy into the earth, that the earth is here to give us energy. And if we're spending all of our time sending our energy out into other things, Mm -hmm. that's actually how we're creating more karma for ourselves. By putting our energy out? Yes, yes. So let's say, 
let's say you know, you're watching TV and there's some disaster that happened uh-huh. and you're feeling just horrible and your energy from your third or maybe even your second a lot of empaths will understand what I'm saying will go out to the television and go into the the whole thing and yes you want to support that but this is not the way to support it because now you're hooking up with those people their fear their anxiety their betrayal everything and you're creating more karma you're becoming a part of a collective karma where the energy should go is into the ground and i teach a, a meditation that's in uh become an earth angel that is a, a cones of energy that send that energy down into the earth so you're receiving energy from the earth you're sending energy down but you're not sending it out now from here if you want to send love energy out of course you should that's mm-hmm. we're here to mm-hmm. love at the deepest level of our being so the energy you're sending down is the negativity and the fear and it's, no it's all your energy it is your energy connecting to the earth okay okay it's everything so when you watch the type of media and you see it everywhere yeah you can't avoid it <clears throat> it's it's in the ethers you you basically just ground your own body yes you ground your energy and receive then energy from the earth yes who will constantly give absolutely she's so and there so- for us oh my goodness Isabel, Sonia looked comfortable sitting in that chair, right? <laughs> Legs crossed, no shoes. Absolutely. She was enjoying herself. Absolutely. Let's talk about the grounding she was mentioning. Why is that important? It's important. We're, we've decided to be here in this human form. And Earth is is literally here to support our journey. And, I mean, we walk on her. You know, every step we take, we take on Mother Earth. She's literally our support structure from beginning it's to the end. Diet theory, it is, right? absolutely. And she's so loving. And there's no limitation to the amount of energy and the support that she can give. Also, another thing I learned with grounding very early on, because I thought, wait a minute, I'm trying to talk to spirits which are technically, no, not technically, but up there. Why would I want to hold myself down here? Sure. And a really wise man said, it's like a telephone pole. The deeper you bury the pole, the taller the pole can be. And the more solid it will be. And it works. It works so well. I love what she was talking about watching a disaster. And that experience of watching it brings that negativity into your energetic body. And people work hard to bring about what they want, to manifest what they want in life. Well, you need to start with what's in your energetic body because whatever's in your energetic body is attracting more of that. Interesting. So the more you fill it up with everything you're passionate about, the more that which you're passionate about you'll get. Is there what is called clutter? Clutter. Oh, What is that? Clutter. My experience with intuition is that it's not necessarily a gift for a chosen few. It's a natural sense. We all have it. We all have. We're born with it. We're all born with it. Exactly. We just don't have to use it as much as we used to. Or don't know how to. Or don't know how to. Exactly. Exactly. And the little ones, the two-year-olds, the three-year-olds, they're so open. They're so intuitive. And so many parents talk about the experiences that they have with their, with their children being, you know, in tuned and their intuition flowing. Well, as we grow, we, we get clutter. Every thought, every uh, stressful thought, every item that we own, every task we have to do, everything that's gone unspoken 
is one piece of clutter that clutters in the mind. And then we ask our intuition to flow through that. So the, the journey of opening your trans or opening up your intuition is more a journey of inner work and healing and uh, along with awareness and understanding of how it works. Those two things come together for people to be able to access their unique intuition. Isabel, what happens when people have self doubt about what they're doing, about who they are? How do you solve that? How do you fix that? He asks the, the former skeptic, I'll tell, I can tell you exactly right. how to work with You've that one. I have been there. I was a very big skeptic. Doubt is a habit. Knowing that it's a habit built off of all of our previous experience and we revert back to that habit. So you can have an incredible intuitive experience. One that's just, wow, I can't believe that happened. Right. And two days later, start doubting it again. That's because for so long in your life, that's your pattern to have it. And the number one tool that I have found to help with that is called, I like to call it the no doubt notebook. And it's a journal that you use only for these incredible experiences. Like I knew my friend was going to call and then the phone rang. You would write that in that journal. You know, I knew somebody came through and they were five foot two. They were. You write that in that well, journal. I was thinking of somebody. I just ran into them. And I ran That's into them. You write that in the journal. And That's the intuition. It's, it? it's intuition, absolutely. And so what you're doing is you're recording your really big intuitive moments. So when that habit of doubt comes back, you can review through that journal again to remind your, your brain, really, no, this is this is real. And in time, you won't need the journal, but it's a great tool. Why would people even have self-doubt if all these things are happening to them? Why doubt it? <laughs> I, I really think it's a matter of our brain patterns, how the synapses fire. I even had that moment with my grandmother with, with the pendulum. And even then, a couple of days after, I remember going, is this all really happening? What we're focused on is we're focused on the non-solid. And so we don't have that tangible, that one plus one equals two. And so when we're focused on the non-solid, it's a little harder for the human mind to uh, really hold on to that. Now, when you talked about the pendulum with your grandmother, you would ask your grandmother questions and then the pendulum would do what? Yes and no? Yes and no. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Until I got really excited about something and then I'd say, well, what do you think about that, Grandma? And it wouldn't move and I'd go, oh, yeah, yes or no. I have to go back to yes and no. I've used it on myself Mm -hmm. where yes is up and down, no is left and right. Yes. And you hold it in the middle and you mentally think stop and it stops and then you ask yourself a question. And I've, I've had yeses go like this. Oh, big or nose like this. I mean, really huge swinging modes. Yeah, it's absolutely. unbelievable. It's like a lie detector test, isn't it? It is. I had a really amazing student once come in and I had given her the task of, of using the pendulum. She had never heard of it before. She came back to class the next week and said, I think I did it wrong. And I said, what did you, what did you do? And she said, well, I was holding it and I couldn't get it to swing because she was working so hard at making sure she wasn't moving her hand. And she said, so I tied it to a bookshelf and then I put my hand underneath it and then it would give me answers. And everyone in the room went, hmm, because she didn't, I think, realize that that was something that most of us think is impossible. I put my elbow on the table and hold it just (laughs) in my two fingers and then off it goes. And just hold it and try not to move it. Let's talk about spiritual growth for a moment, Isabel. Um, 
What is agreed upon reality? The agreed upon reality is the solid, as a solid. It is, it's the molecules, really. The space in between is what we're looking for. So I, one excellent tip that I, I love giving people, I figured this one out myself through working with my guide, is when you defocus, that's when you can sink into the intuitive information because uh-huh. it doesn't uh, exist in the solid. You're not looking for the solid. You're looking for what's in between. So defocusing your eyes is a really great tool to start to get those intuitive connections. People talk about seeing something out of the corner of their eye and then they turn and it's gone. It blushes by really correctly. Right. It's not gone. It's probably still there. But but the thing is, is that out of the corner of your eye, you know, it's you're defocused. Your peripherals defocused. And what is that thing we saw rush by? What is that? Could be a spirit. Could be an intuitive piece of information. Um, yeah. As Heidi Hollis would say, a shadow person. It could be a shadow person. It could be the possibilities are endless. But what happens is we turn and we look, and our and our human eyes start landing on the solid objects. Once you do that, then you're no longer looking in between the molecules. You're looking at the molecules. It's about how pre-programmed are we? Well, we have to just cleanse ourselves of this and start over. Well, coming in when we're born, we're not. We're, we're just beautifully, when you're, born. when you're born, you're not, we're beautifully exactly who we are, but we choose a family, we choose a location before we come down and uh, we choose a, an overall task of what we want to achieve. Uh, perhaps that's helping children or perhaps that's, you know, uh, mathematics or something like that. And it's through our childhood and all of our experiences that the programming happens Perhaps we have a family member that says, oh, you're not artistic. You're not artistic. Once you say that enough, that's that personal programming, only to find out when you're 30 years old, you try to draw and you're a brilliant artist. Well, what do parents tell a little kid who's got a cup of milk? Don't spill the milk. Don't spill and the what milk. do they do? <laughs> they, they spill the milk. Exactly. You program them to spill the milk. Yes, all of those. Money doesn't grow on trees. Life is hard. These are all the programming. And not everyone has that programming. Some are fortunate to, to be in a different environments, but I believe that these, these moments that we have, these interactions that we have with our family members as we grow up, remember, this is our soul group. These, these are our people and they're doing their job. They're do, playing their role and they're playing it very well. I, I like to kind of negate the positive negative of it and say, these are the challenges that you were given so you can overcome them. It's in the act of overcoming the challenge. That's where the spiritual growth is. If you use most of these tools we've talked about, what does that allow you to do? It allows you to simplify your environment. It's the complicated environment that shuts us down, shuts down the intuition. Uh, it holds us back from accessing our spirit guides, our higher self, uh, and just knowledge in general. By doing that, should we also live for the moment? Absolutely. How do you get into what you call a linear timeline? What is that? Linear timeline, I like to talk about linear timeline as it's the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday deal. When we come down here, we put ourselves into this linear timeline so we can have experiences that you can only have in a linear timeline, whether that be surprise or fear or worry or excitement 
These are things that happen to us emotionally as experiences in a linear timeline. And to be in that moment is to be excited to be in linear time. And so looking at, I like, for example, now I look at different emotions uh, in a, in a slightly different way. I'm excited, but not anxious because I'm excited that I can be excited. I know I'm in linear time. I have something to look forward to. You know, it's, it's a different way of looking at everything. Can we all grow by doing things like this? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, inner work, any inner work you can do, any, um, you know, healing or uh, therapy or anything that you do to better yourself is going to better your spiritual path as well. It's about one of our great friends, Mitch Horowitz, famous author, of course, was on Gaia's Great Minds to discuss exactly what you've been talking about. There are so many interesting questions about what creates reality. You know, we're, we're on our knees looking through a keyhole and we may never get more than a keyhole picture of it during this lifetime. But there are fascinating questions, for example, about whether events that we experience as linear are really linear after all. Um, in quantum physics, there's a theory called the many worlds theories, which proposes that there are infinite numbers of outcomes going on around us all the time. But we experience a limited conception of reality through our sensory organs. And we experience these things with, in, in a linear fashion when in fact they're, they're going on in this kind of infinite circuitous fashion that can't be mapped out on a, a line chart. William James reasoned in 1902 that the mystic is like a microscope, that when the mystic looks at something as through a microscope, you're seeing all kinds of things going on. Uh, you're seeing cellular structure, you're seeing molecules, you're seeing atoms, you're seeing space between things. But when you pan back, as with a camera, you're getting less and less detail. So the coarseness of our sensory organs might not be sufficient to really take in everything that's going on. But the quantum physicist, the person looking through a microscope, the uh, astronomer looking through a nuclear telescope might be seeing things that are going on. The mystic who has a heightened intuitive ability might be seeing things that are going on in ways that we don't take in in our normal day-to-day lives. So my challenge and the thing that I'm trying to work with is whether linear events as we experience them exist at all or whether, in fact, by the very nature of our thoughts, we're not manifesting things necessarily, but we are selecting things, which is why it's so important for the individual to have some sense of awareness of the thoughts that are going on in his or her head, which are nonstop. I mean, we all have these running dialogues occurring, not only every waking moment, but in our sleep as well. He is so spot on, Isabel. Isn't yes, he? Absolutely. 100%. We are always manifesting. And that's, that's really the key to understanding how important it is to work with that energetic body because everything we do, is 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 a, is manifesting. I love how he said our thoughts are choosing things, and that's how it happens. And eventually, in opening up to this uh, to your intuition, 
you start to live a life of synchronicities. Everywhere you go, you get these beautiful synchronicities. And that's you shake enough. your head sometimes. You that, do. There's so many of them. You think, wow, this is just incredible. And some of them are simply fun, and they don't have messages. They're just simply a fun synchronicity that happens to you, but you brought that. And when you can live this path, you can live a life of synchronicities, and it brings an extra, I don't know, sparkle to the to the road. Without doing this, some of the things Mitch has talked about, some of the things you've talked about, are we incomplete as human beings? Oh, absolutely not. The cool thing about being a human being is that you're perfect exactly how you are in this moment right now. We always were. Absolutely. And, uh, for example, hearing the suggestion of doing inner work on a show like this, if you're watching the show, you made the decision that that was probably the inner work you wanted to start. So then you watched the show that gave you the hint that sparked you to do it. So we're always perfect in every moment that we are. I love what he said about linear time because it's so true. Very early on, my guide uh, who was teaching me so much said, you're not here to learn. You're not, that would say that your higher self doesn't know anything. You're not here to learn. You're here to experience. And the higher self does not exist in linear time. So the higher self sees everything that's happened to you from beginning to everything that's happened to you in this entire lifetime happens in that instant. And I love how he expressed that. Why is it important for us to tap into our intuition? I think it gives us um, a different way of approaching life, more of a, a, a driver's seat, you could say instead of being a passenger more of being um it, it sparks your confidence it gives you moments that you could never have if you didn't open up intuitively like he said when you can see and feel and hear things that are in between it uh, it, it it's a game changer and it brings a level of beauty into your life that no one could have ex- explained to me before i opened up and it's it's absolutely beautiful. Why is it so important to understand the spirit world, Isabel? The spirit world is it's so beautiful, and it's this huge, complicated, amazing um, realm of beauty. And I think it's important for us to to talk about it and to open up more conversations around it. I find that by no one's fault, in particular, we've We've leaned a little bit into dehumanizing spirits and, and a little bit more into the, to the ghost culture. Yes. Now don't get me wrong. It's huge. It's huge. It's huge. And I, I love a good, you know, scary movie or ghost story. I was on a a paranormal team for a while. We did ghost hunts. I think those all are incredible. You did a good job on that too. Thank you. (laughs) You were the ghost hunting. Yes. I was, I I was avid ghost hunter for, for a number of years. But when we now in society hear the word ghost, we don't necessarily instantly connect that with a person, a soul, a, no, somebody don't. who's perhaps stuck and needs it's kind help. Of removed from being a person. It's been kind of removed. So for me, my passion is to just remind people that ghosts are people too. And, uh, yes, please go ghost hunt because that's really important work in, in this world. But when you're done, if you could just in whatever way that you do it, say a prayer, send some light energy, you know, uh, lift them up a little to help them in their transition. 
as long as we're not, you know, taking advantage of that because we've disconnected so much that these are people, that's really why I think it's important to, to keep an open conversation about the spiritual world and remind people this is someone's son or daughter or, you know, friend who's who's in spirit form that we're calling a ghost. Are you amazed at how you've changed since the moment your grandmother died? Look at this metamorphosis you've gone through. Absolutely. I got to say, I'm a little nicer. <laughs> you mean you weren't this nice before? Sure. Oh, no. I just, I was more impatient. I was way, I was a lot more judgmental um, because that's all I knew. And now with this perspective, it comes the ability to unconditionally love anyone. Right. Because you understand why they're here and what they're doing. There's still pain. There's still ups and downs. But I, I would safely say that I am very different than, than what I was when I opened. Spiritualist Cindy Dale had a chance to talk to Lisa Gar again on the Inspirations program about the spirit community and what she learned. That's Belize. Oh. I went to Belize the first time with a guy friend. And it was a, another one of those very not planned wow. <laughs> trips. A lot of well, people. I like doing it that way. I'm not going to bring a group like that. That would be a little crazy. All right. We ended up out in the Cayo Mountain region. We were two of the first people to go into a mountain. We had to climb up a mountain and go into the mountain. And there were these ladders that the, yeah, the archaeologists had just put in because there was an ancient ceremonial site in the middle of the mountain that was still preserved for hundreds and hundreds of years. It was it was like the spirits were still there of these people. But so when you go into a place like that, you really have to respect You them. have to be honorable. You can't touch things. You don't take things. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't disturb. You ask if it's even okay for you to tune into the place, to communicate with you know, those who might still be lingering. Like, you have to get permission. That's responsible. It is. So then we led a group down there to enable them to have the same experience as well. what was it that you experienced? You know, I kept seeing, I'm very visual and very clairvoyant, Mm -hmm. especially the first time I kept seeing the stories of the people. I kept seeing them when they were alive Mm -hmm. and how they took care of their children, you know, and how they took care of each other. You know, it wasn't all great mystery. It was village. It was community. It was care. It was love. Mm -hmm. And that became the theme of the group. Like, in what way are we blocking that in our own lives? And in what way can we create that amongst ourselves? Mm -hmm. Isabel, why is it so important, and I like that, to deal with the spirit world? The spirit world really should function in, in for the highest good of all. And when when somebody passes, if they don't complete their transition and cross over, then they can't in turn watch out over their loved ones as they're still continuing their journey here on earth. Right. And I feel it's really important to help any spirit that is stuck love what she said about permission. I am very big into asking permission for everything. Even if you intuitively read another person, ask permission first. If you're going to do a clearing, ask permission first. From who? From. Who do you ask permission from? I'll ask permission from a living person. If I get intuitive information on them, I'll ask permission first. If I can give the information to them. Really? Yeah, absolutely. So if you were doing a reading for me, you would get my approval first? Yes. That's such why, yeah. why do you need to do that? 
because perhaps the moment between us wasn't necessarily about you getting the information. Perhaps the moment was simply you being asked if you're open to intuitive information. And what if I wasn't? Then that would that would be the exact moment for you, and you would say, "I'm not comfortable with that." And you back And off. I would say, "Absolutely." You yep. sure you don't secretly yep. still do it? <laughs> no, I don't secretly still do Let's it. Find out about George's. <laughs> Let's find out about George's. Let's see what's going on. <laughs> it's really important to ask permission because it's it's not my place, nor is it I think anyone else's to decide when someone is ready for information or when someone is ready to cross over. You know, if you if you walk into a situation where you run into a lot of spirits that are still in the in-between, it's not my place to say whether they should be there or not. It's my place to ask, do they need help? Are the spirits sad because they've died and passed over? It really varies. I've seen so many different uh, situations of spirits that are in the in-between. I've seen confusion, I've seen panic, I've seen sadness, I've seen aggression, I've seen evil. Uh, yeah, I've seen the really hard stuff too. Um, and it, it all depends. You could have a mom who doesn't want to leave because her kid's going to graduate and she doesn't understand that she can still be there for him when she crosses over. I've crossed over a woman who was in a car accident, went on a bad trip with drugs and was just terrified thinking she still was on that trip. So, uh, there's confusion. It's, it's all across the board. And for some individuals who caused emotional harm, physical and emotional harm to other people when they were living, sometimes when they pass, instead of completing their transition process out of fear of what's going to happen to them now, they'll hold still. They'll dig their heels into that escalator, stop moving and hold still. And then they'll turn around and do, you know, what brings them comfort and, and what soothes them. And that's really what you see in the in-between is spirits trying to soothe themselves, trying to find a way to, to find solace where they're at, but not move. What happens to a spirit whose human body died quickly and unexpectedly, like a car accident? You're driving along, you're having a good time, you're listening to the radio, and all of a sudden you get hit by a car and you're dead instantly. Mm-hmm. What happens to them? A lot of confusion. Uh, and I can't speak to what happens to every single one of them, but what I can say is we have three bodies. We have our physical body. We have our spiritual energetic body, like we talked about. And then we have the programming body, which is our human mind. When we die, we release the physical body first, right. which leaves us with that energetic body and that programming body. So in essence, George, we're the exact same person we were, we just now don't have a body. Mm-hmm. And for many, that's a state of confusion. Of course, that's, it wouldn't be. Yeah, that's a st- what do I do? I don't understand what's happening. And I run into that a lot. I run into that a lot. I'll, you know, take a trip to the grocery store and run into somebody that wanders in and it's like, you're okay. Do spirits come at you like crazy? They do. Uh, they do. Because it's, it's really my calling. Intuitives, people that walk a, a really... Um, strong spiritual path. They all have their own calling in different areas. Some work with mother earth, some work with spirits, some work with, with people who are dying. And my calling really is to help spirits cross over. And once they do, are they thankful? I think so. 
I'm going to say it that way because most of the time I don't know. I don't know. One day you will. And one day I will. I haven't crossed over that line. Uh, occasionally someone will come back and say thank you. And it, it still to this day warms my heart to tears, really. It's, it's a beautiful thing to see. Isabel, thank you for being on Beyond Belief. Thank you for having me. And for people who want more information about you, how do they find you? They can find me at thesagemethod.com. Perfect. You've got a remarkable ability to be able to communicate with those from the other side, because one day we'll all be there too. I'm George Norrie. Thanks for watching Beyond Belief. Oh, my goodness. Good, good, good vibrations, everyone. Um, we haven't listened to Ambry Smith for a while, but this is our tactical advisor, Randy Kramer. Hybrids, clones, and psionic illusions. Are extraterrestrials, hybrids, and drones walking among us? Tactical advisor Tim rejoins Captain Randy Kramer of the USMC Special Section to discuss psionic illusions and soul consciousness from friendly visit visit from friendly vision visitors intergalactic workers government contractors and alien spies Kramer and Tim explore the reasons why ETs hide among us among humans, and what they do on Earth. Here we go. This one's 42 minutes. Rain. Oh. Today on Cosmic Disclosure, we are with Tim, a tactical advisor from Germany who analyzes and suggests various strategies in relation to extraterrestrial groups in contact with Earth. Also joining us today is Captain Randy Kramer, who claims to be the public spokesperson for the United States Marine Corps Special Section. Welcome, gentlemen. Today is going to be a very intriguing episode because we're going to be talking about hybrids and clones. So I'll start off by saying I think we're kind of a, a hybrid type of uh, being. What do you guys think about that? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, everything that I understand, we have a mix of dozens or potentially more than a 100 different types of DNA into our system over thousands and thousands of years. So 
Yeah. I, I, basically, every single person on the planet is a hybrid of some kind or another. Mm-hmm. And Tim, who do you think uh, started this? So there could be a natural evolution that doesn't, you know, necessarily need any manipulator species or something. But so to my knowledge, it's a I know of about 12 species. Randy spoke about at least 20, 25 at or least, something. Yeah. Potentially even more influences when there are small bits of data infused into the human system. But there are some species that have their interests in humanity. They need the experiences of humanity. There are other species that help to, you know, balance out the influences that different species have put up uh, on humanity. And some species um, intermingled with um, humans to get advantage about them at some point. You both mentioned numbers about how many hybrids, you know, you have encountered. So how many hybrids are like walking amongst us? Are you saying these are ones that you've heard about in space and in the universe, but amongst us, what kind of specifics you can give me about them? Like subspecies. Yeah, subspecies, yeah, yeah. right. Guess hundreds. What do you think? It, it, I, yeah, at least. Yeah, at least. least. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have a friend who uh, lives in Las Vegas, and I need to try and see if I can get a copy of this photograph because I've seen this photograph, and she's a little reluctant to share it. But uh, she had a friend who was working security at one of the casinos who sat, you know, behind looking at all the cameras, and luckily he pulled out his phone and snapshotted the screen that this was happening on before the camera went out. So he's sitting there watching the blackjack tables, and watches the cameras, watches these two guys come in wearing shirts and slacks, like white shirt, white slacks, pale, pale white skin, big heads, small, normal human size, but black eyes. So there was probably some kind of a hybrid, maybe some kind of human data, whatever. But from what I understand, there's some of these guys that work uh, at Nellis and out at the test site, and they come into Vegas to, you know, drink, smoke, and gamble. So apparently these guys come in, uh, one guy's got a drink in his hand. Another guy's got a drink and a cigarette in his hand. They come and sit down at the blackjack table. The picture is two guys sitting at the blackjack table. One guy's leaning with the cigarette like this. He's got his drink in his hand. The other guy's standing there. And he looks up when he apparently looked up at the camera as the guy was, uh, it was when the whole screen went blank. So he luckily pulled out his phone, took a snapshot. But then he calls down to the pit boss and says, yeah, uh, you see those guys uh, sitting at the blackjack table? And he's like, you mean those uh, two businessmen in suits? And he was like, uh, really? And so apparently the people who were on the floor saw them as guys wearing suits, but that illusion didn't go through the camera. So when the guy looked at the camera, he was like, oh, shut it off. But apparently they were able to cast some kind of psionic illusion because if it was a hologram, the camera would have also seen the hologram. So they were projecting some kind of a psionic illusion that they're just guys in business suits when they were clearly hybrids going in to drink, smoke, and play blackjack. True. I've experienced that with a reptilian species that came to me on a party, an event, and they seem to project out an appearance. Interestingly enough, they came to me and said, oh, are you a chameleon too? <laughs> yeah. so they misconfused me with uh, one of those, one of them. You know? Interesting. I said yes, because I was thinking in my head about my 
my you know my philosophical mission right. on earth and so say yeah i feel like i'm a chameleon too and he was then um talking to me like uh about uh i have this and that amount of uh galactic credits um you know i've stolen them and i have already this amount and i was like i have no idea what you're talking about and later on i realized that there's something like galactic credits in the yeah. universe yes absolutely so also one thing, because you mentioned Las Vegas, um, we were talking about that, Emery, right. that some extraterrestrials seem to enjoy Disney World. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know about that? Yeah. And comic conventions. Those are the oh, other I ones. Didn't know that. Yeah, comic book conventions. They fit in good there. Oh, because they fit right in. Or if they're wearing a costume, you don't see it. Or sometimes they're not wearing a costume. Or they wear a costume over their... Yeah, they love hanging out. Those Speaking things. about drawings. Yes. I have this interesting story... Personal story, private story. I have spoken about that, um, you know, very vaguely in, in one of the first episodes. I was in the German forest. We had this, you know, hut or something rented. Um, people were, you know, having fun at the party down there. I was in the front of the building. Suddenly outside there was some kind of light. I was seeing that through the windows. Um, I was you know, looking for what's happening outside. And there were two beings that I've never, ever experienced before, never seen them before. Pretty much larger than myself, at least two meters, like maybe 210, 220, okay. about, about that. Okay. Yellowish skin. Mm -hmm. They asked me if they can, you know, come closer. Um, so they're very, very gentle in the way they approach me, which is great because otherwise maybe I've, freaked out or something. Right. I said, yes. They, they spoke German, interestingly sure. enough. So I said, yes, if you're, you know, a friend, you can speak to me. They came to me with a very short conversation and they told me I'm protected and that they wanted to, you know, make me know that. And then they were gone. They went outside. They disappeared somewhere in the forest and gone. I made a drawing and I want to show this to you. And because I looked in the files, I found nothing about them. And maybe you can have a, like a look on it. Yeah. So I've seen a group of these people one time. So been to the intergalactic space station a number of times for mostly escorting diplomat missions. I've talked about that before. There were these tall yellow guys with these big heads. And I remember saying to one of the investors, like, what, what in the world is that? And he was like, oh, the banana heads. And because they've got this, you know, big head that's kind of like mm -hmm. a yellow banana. And, um, I was like, that's that kind of rude. And he was like, ah, no, you know, we, you know, they're banana heads. We're naked monkeys. It's, it's okay. <laughs> so there's a little bit of, you know, having fun with each other. It doesn't necessarily have to mean an insult. Uh, but apparently they're evolved from some kind of mollusk. Oh. Yeah. Uh, which has something to do with the texture of the body and the color mm -hmm. of the skin and so forth and why their heads that way. But my understanding is they're, uh, fairly peaceful, you know, I mean, not saying that they're, you know, a peacenik species, but they're fairly peaceful, uh, involved in a lot of trade and they have a pretty, a pretty solid science core. So their scientific divisions are usually interested in helping other planets coming along. I'd say from what I understand, they might only be 
maybe two or three thousand years like technologically ahead, which is not that far when you're talking about you know intergalactic technology. So, but I've only only seen them once. But uh, the ambassador called them the banana heads, which again is not necessarily rude. Um, and you mentioned where they came from, and it was some star system that starts with a Y that is escaping my brain at the moment. But I only just ran them once, so that's about all I know. But they seem really nice. It sounds like it was a really good uh, protection <laughs> message for you, for your journey. Probably, and it's one of the reasons why I wanted to meet you in order to, you know, share some information and to get that, you know, asking you if you know something about them. So thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. I, I knew a little bit, and there you go. So let's talk about these hybrids walking amongst us. I mean, what is their agenda? My understanding is most of them work here. Most, mm -hmm. most of them are contractors. Right. They work with various covert programs. Mm -hmm. They're helping out their engineers, scientists, mechanics. You know, they're contractors. Sure. Uh, in some cases, not the most brilliant, not the smartest. They're contractors. They're smart. They're good at their job, and they're helping out and do stuff. Now, we also know of that, like if we were to, to say – All of those personnel, and we were to, you know, put them in one circle, you know, of a pie graph or something, there'd be a certain slice of that pie, which would be, you know, we'd refer to as spies, criminals, or, you know, some form of nefarious uh, actor in some way. So they're, you know, a tiny percentage of those that are probably up to no good. Uh, but the majority are contractors. They work here. They're working for a government or military agency or space agency you know, helping to build parts, design parts, sure. you know, just be essentially off-world skilled labor that we need to do those jobs because we don't have enough skilled humans to do them. So we get some off-world contractors who are often hybrids so they can communicate and hang out and eat our food and breathe our air. So, yeah. And another, yeah. So another reason seems to be like that some species are looking for a way to communicate with um, humanity And for example, grays that have placed um, a species species that is in pop culture called uh, tall whites, I guess. So those are essentially hybrids coming from grays in order to, you know, path away for contact, which is their approach to think that it's more natural for us to speak and communicate with them. They still, you know. Look a little exotic to the human eye, I guess. So, right. Range four Harry. So, uh, Range four Harry was a, a, a ghost that used to wander the Nevada test site. And people who would work out there would see, oh, I saw, you know, Range four Harry. And they basically say it's a tall guy in a suit who seems like a ghost because he's all white and kind of pale and glows. And they would just think, ah, it's a ghost, but they called him Range four Harry. And it was just, yeah, a tall white who was wandering out, you know, in the dark at night and they'd spot him and they would just say it was a ghost and nicknamed him Range 4 Harry. Is it possible for a hybrid to be on the planet and have a high political position or military position that could be working in a nefarious way? No, interesting. So, so that's an interesting question. Uh, I would say from what I understand, That's not as likely as some people might think it is, because if you're if you're actually making a regular hybrid, which isn't the same thing as an augmented hybrid, which you're very much picking and choosing which genetics to go in. And we'll talk about what those two are. Yeah. But if you really are just like, okay, um, 
you know, this person is, uh, we'll just use an example and say it's a zeta reticulum and a human. And they're like, all right, we need to make a hybrid so that we can communicate better, so that we have an interactive person. And then they basically do pretty standard uh, breeding intermixing so that you end up with something that's a blend. And so if a species was really not like us and they wanted to make a hybrid, it would be a real blend. And unless it looked just like us, it would look pretty different. So if we're talking about uh, the question if hybrids can get into high posi positions uh, on, on in the Earth system, I think that that can happen. So I don't think that hybrids that look totally exotic uh, would have the abilities to you know blend into the system. But um, a lot of hybrids, because they have different experiences, they have different a genetic profiles, um, a different set of skills and skill levels, they pretty easily can maneuver inside of this uh, Earth system. So I know that some of the grace hybrids can or have, um, they naturally find it easier to to um, rank highly in some some positions. I also think that some hybrids are, um, you know, contracted by the military or at least working in the military. Um, if we're talking about totally exotic ones, then I think it's um, it would be impossible to blend right. in. They wouldn't blend in. Yes. So let's talk about the definition of what is a hybrid. And I'm glad you said the other one, augmented hybrid, because those are two kind of different definitions there. Would you like to start? Sure. I'll make it as easy and relatable as possible. So I have two children. I have a daughter and I have a son. My daughter is also a Marine. She is an augmented Marine like me. So she has been genetically mixed and augmented and switched. Uh, so she's an example of a hybrid augment because of the DNA that they placed into her strain like they did into mine. I'm not, they're probably not identical, but they're different, unique. But that would be an augmented hybrid. My son is the result of his Sonaran mother and his Karen father, and so he's a hybrid. He, he has no augmentations. We didn't tinker with him or mess with him. That was just Sonaran mommy, Terran daddy, make hybrid baby boy. So that's the pet perfect example I can come up with since I have one of each. So Does he look more child. like you or more like? Well, the last time I saw him, he was about this big. So um, he has his mother's eye. Well, he actually has uh, one Sonaran eye and one Terran eye. So he kind of has his mother's eye and one of mine, which is hopefully that won't be too hard on him as he's growing up. But hard to say what he was, who he looked more like his mom or me at that age. So we'll see what happens when he gets a little older. Mm -hmm. And what, what would your definition be, Tim, of a hybrid, uh, a hybridization of human or ET, you know, because there are, of course, hybrids that, look just like humans, mm -hmm. um, but they're hybrids. Mm -hmm. So maybe you can explain that. I've never thought about a definition for that, but I think um, if a species take some of their own genetic material and fuses it with a different um, natural occurring material, then we have a hybrid. While, as Randy said it, the can be some artificial constructed beings that, you know, they can be stable to, to exist um, 
um, that could be a different definition for for a hybrid. But I, in the context we're talking about, um, I would say it's one species taking their own genetic material and infusing it into some other species. I know of clones being made in the projects. Uh, what could you elaborate on that and your experience with clones, Randy and Tim? Sure. Clone is basically just a copy. So it's essentially a soulless copy of a person. My understanding is that there is a requirement that is the tiniest, 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 tiniest fraction of that person's soul that has to be attached to the physical body so that the cells duplicate beyond 32 or 64 or what it is. So there's a limitation. They won't grow past that if there isn't some piece of a soul in there. But because it's just a teeny, teeny, teeny little sliver they don't really have one. And so they're not considered a person. They're not legally considered a person because they're not a soul inside them. Uh, so they tend to be not very bright. Uh, they tend to be very undisciplined. They can be very difficult to train if you're trying to train a clone to actually fight. That's why we ended up abandoning clone armies because they're a horrible idea. But a clone is basically just a copy. Now, if in my case, this is not my original body. My original body has been destroyed and then because... It was beat up and bruised and old so many times that they had to give me a young one and put me back. So this is a clone body. But I'm not a clone because I'm, as soon as they put my soul into the body, it's now a person. It's now legally a person and it's me and I'm no longer considered a clone even though the body is a clone body. So for something to be considered a clone, it has to have no soul or consciousness in it. If you take a clone and you put somebody in it, all of a sudden it's now classified as a person and it's no longer a clone. All right. Tim, you explained to me at one point about the transformation of consciousness into the body. So explain to me about clones and how, you know, that all fits into place. Is there a soul, a spirit, a consciousness, and how, how do they do that? At first, we need to define what is a soul. A soul seems to be a container that collects all the experiences that an individual consciousness unit mm, collects over several lifetimes, over several um, other experiences. And a soul seems to be something that at one point of evolution of an individual is growing, or it's something that starts somewhere. So not every being has a soul, but it can develop a soul at one point. And it seems that creating or developing a soul is fairly close connected to developing an eye consciousness, which is where the collection of I as an observer starts. And that seems to be the initial moment where a container or soul, you know, starts to grow. And from every life period and whatever experience they, they and I has and collects, it all went went to to the soul collect um, container and gets integrated into that. And from that point, decided on where a soul or an individual goes in their spiritual evolution. So if I'm growing a person and making a clone, or if I'm 3D printing a person, <laughs> we didn't get into that yet. Where, how, how does this, this energy from source or this, the soul or, yeah. you know, the consciousness enter? Two things. First, um, there are also 
or at least it's been said that there seem to be some non-player char characters, which means there are beings that look like humans, which are approachable, you can talk to them, but they are not consciousness units, so they have no eye, but our own perception of consciousness seems to fill them. The other thing is that invocation or bringing a soul to a an individual or whatever is something that could be done. So if Randy, when Randy is talking about clones having no soul and um, if you put in the effort and the energy, then my soul and my consciousness could raise a soul in any other being as well. And the way I understand it, the reason why, for example, humans are living so closely together with other species is because they evolve through that. So if you have, for example, and I know how bad the situation, for example, in, in some zoos on this planet is, I don't think that's the best habitat for, for any species, but if you have elephants in, do, in zoos that are closely in relationship to, to humans, they, for example, develop an eye awareness, which means when you do an experiment on the ego of elephants, you put, for example, something there and you put a, a like a dot on their face and you have a, a mirror, they automatically know, oh, that's me in the mirror and they're going to wipe off whatever you color you put on. If you have the same species of elephants in the jungle and having no experience and no connection to humanity at all, they tend to, to attack the mirror and, and, you know, see something else inside of that. So being close together for species can be benevolent to them. So they raise their eye consciousness And they create a soul. So if you have like a pet, like a dog or something that you love, love, and you connect to the dog a lot, then this dog totally benefits from that. The soul of the dog benefits from that. And the eye consciousness of the dog benefits from that. And, you know, maybe the dog, when it dies, it has so many experiences about humans, uh, you know, opening all the tins and giving food Mm -hmm. It's the dog, right. you know, it can't do that on their own. So maybe the soul feels inspired in the next evolutionary step that it gets integrated in humanity. It comes, for example, a human and makes this experience to open their food tent for themselves. Right. It seems like a holographic thing that's being holographically from you to me to Randy to the clone over here. It's yeah, it's an, so it's an experiencing thing. Um, eye awareness needs to be created in order to have a soul. But if I project my own soul into something, then we have the same natural patterns that the universe did in the first place. Because one being that we all are projected itself into lots and lots and infinite objects, things, and other forms of life. Is there a group of people or extraterrestrials or uh, a faction or government that's behind a specific hybrid program uh, here on planet Earth? 
Well, as far as covert military space program activities are concerned, the program that's in charge of that, which is multinational, multi-cooperation, is called Project Mannequin, oddly enough. So I, I know that's the program uh, that manages and sorts all of that, but I'm not sure. And, and as far as I understand, pretty much everyone participates in that program. It's like, you know, how they make everything for everybody to sure. clone replication for all of that, but it's one program that's essentially at the center of that is called Project Mannequin. Right. Tim, you had mentioned to me about the Greys, you know, manipulating uh, DNA a long time ago. That's kind of a, basically a hybrid program. Yeah, you could call that. But but they have their own hybrid programs where they put communicative species as intermediaries. Uh, on the planet and also, yeah, doing some work for them. So the agenda is a positive one. The agenda is basically benefiting the grace and also benefiting the overall evolution of the universe, which uh, seems to be a thing for the grace in order to gain back their spiritual and evolutionary path. Are you guys aware of any extraterrestrials making human looking clones? And being sent down to Earth. Yes. So the Greys have a technology that I'm aware of where they basically produce a human-looking vessel where they project their individual consciousness into that. And they can, for example, they also use that in order to communicate with people in a more non-threatening way. So, again, I don't know if that is true, but it, it has been said to me that... There are beings, human beings on this planet that do not have obtained an eye awareness. They are looking like they are autonomously, you know, moving around and operating, but they seem to be empty vessels. And I know that there are some species that use those empty vessels and project their own awareness inside of them probably like looking through a glass window or something and then controlling the human um, that is there. Is it upregulating that human to a higher consciousness when they do that? No. Well, it seems that there are some humans, let, let's call them humans. I don't know. They look like humans, but they're basically non-aware bodies in order to fill up the space of the universe. I'm not sure if that is true, but this is something that I've been told. And some species use that, those empty vessels, because they do not have an, a free they Well, they could have a free will if they have an eye awareness, but they do not have an eye awareness. And they project their own eye awareness inside of them and can use them for a temporal purpose for a short time in order to maneuver around the earth and in order to inter uh, interact with people. What do you think, Randy? Yeah, the technical word for that is called teleoperation. So essentially, if um, a being of any type is sitting in a chair that's essentially the control mechanism and then chooses either a mechanical, biological drone, which could be a clone body, could be a human body, could be an alien body, could be a robot, anything at all, is basically remote controlling or using sensory uh, collection so that you can hear, see everything that the drone is essentially experiencing. That's called teleoperation. 
and we use it, ETs have used it forever and ever and ever. And so, yeah, there are some of these sort of empty vessels that, you know, they use for that and just pop down when they need to use it, drive it around for a minute, use it to talk, make something, and then, you know, a turn off, cut the signal. And then in some cases, you know, these sort of soulless people then just continuing about their lives. Yeah. Yeah. But it's teleoperation. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's one of the most common ways in which we've been doing more recently and other species interact with other worlds without the cross-contamination of biology, which bacteria, viruses, and all of that. Really, the simplest way to do that is not to wear a spacesuit, but to actually use a teleoperated body that doesn't have to come back through decontamination. How would you recognize a soulless human being? Oh, the eyes, for sure. Looking into the eyes. The eyes are just hollow. They're just hollow, hollow, empty eyes. We call them eight balls. Yeah, (laughs) that's a good word for it. We call them eight balls. Yeah, hollow, empty eyes. Sometimes you'll see it just for a second where the the, the eye will go completely black for just a second, and then it goes back to normal. Yeah, we truly see each other's souls through the eyes. Right. So when there's nothing there, you know, Mm -hmm. the lights are on, no one's home. Yeah, they're they're empty, hollow. I think also because um, we have this effect where we project our own awareness, you know, several meters or even at larger distances when we're tra- trained, that at some, sometimes you meet somebody and this person, you know, interacts with you just in the way you want things, things to turn out and I think that this is a sign of significance for an indicator for projecting your own awareness into an empty vessel that then reacts upon it, which has no eye awareness. I think that could be an indicator for, you know, finding that out. Do you guys believe these hybrids and clones on Earth are here to do what? I'd say the largest percentage of what they're for is passive intelligence or communication. Most of them are not used for military purposes or like to kill someone or be an assassin or something like that. Most of it's, you know, passive intelligence gathering or communication, I would say. Doesn't mean that it couldn't be used for another purpose or something that was a little scary, but I think your percentages wise, you're talking about something that presents a very, very low tangible threat to any people whatsoever, let alone the species or civilization at large. Yeah. Are there a lot of extraterrestrial programs with hybrids and clones doing this, uh, you know, here on planet Earth? You mean doing it on the surface? Well, no, they could be making them anywhere and then placing them here on the planet. And for what reason? For what agenda? Oh, yeah. So... Um, as Renny already said, and uh, put it correctly, um, many of those programs about hybrids is to communicate with species or doing some part in benefit for the mission of the species. So, yeah, that's so... Are they relaying information back to these extraterrestrials? And who are these extraterrestrials involved with these hybrid clone programs? We find that the more we look into these programs, the more we discover these programs, the more our intelligence networks tracks down unofficial presence, unofficial activity. Essentially, if 
you're an extraterrestrial and you're in the solar system or you're within the Terran sphere and you don't have your paperwork, you're unauthorized to be here or doing whatever you're doing. So we've been going through the process of investigating, identifying, tracking down the people without their papers that they're not supposed to be acting here and mostly shutting them down as we go through the process. But what we're finding is a majority of them are programs run by other species to do you know, what they think is upgrading or helping people. What we do find is I've had a couple of cases of people who've been dealing directly with these species and then tinkering that they've been doing with them is some of these species are a little arrogant in the sense that they think, no, 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 we're helping you. We know we're helping you. It's good what we're doing. You don't understand it, but we're helping you. And in their, and in their way that they're seeing what they're doing, they think they're really helping. But what we've had to say is like, look, I appreciate that you think you're helping. Do you have any idea what you're putting this person through? Do you have any idea like how much trauma, emotional and psychological scarring you're giving to this person to help them? Like, no, you're doing it wrong. And, you know, we have the ability to tell people in these programs to stop and to cease and desist. And there's a whole process for issuing cease and desist orders, which what we're finding sometimes works right away, but sometimes still is like, well, all right, we'll comply with the cease and desist for a moment, but we still know better. We still, we know we're really helping. And what we've also found is that when we deal directly with the programs, after three or four cease and desist, we go, all right, we're going above your head to your chain of command, to your superiors. And often when we go to them, we find that these are rogue covert programs that the people in charge have know nothing about. They don't even know that they're operating. Now, you have mentioned to me in the past, Randy, on a few occasions that you did capture rogue, cloned, and hybrid uh, program people uh, that were doing nefarious activities and that there are actually teams out there that are actually made for this. Oh, yeah. There are very specific teams that are their job is to investigate, track, and in some cases hunt down, capture, or search and destroy. So, yeah, we have some very good people on top of that. Like any criminal investigation process, you have a filtering process of every case that pops up. How severe is it? How bad is it? How many people are being affected by it? So we prioritize and go after the worst offenders and uh, often, again, try to go through the process of issuing cease and desist so that we don't have to look like we're being thugs because the intergalactic community looks at what we're doing and when we just bang people on the head without using the legal process, they shake their finger at us. But, oh yeah, there's definitely some people whose job it is to hunt those people down and remove them if necessary. We have been talking about extraterrestrials for most, most part of the show with clones and hybrids, but are you guys aware of any corporations or military government, uh, political uh, entities that are making clones uh, for their own agendas. Yes. Uh, so it's banned uh, across military intelligence programs. So military intelligence programs are not supposed to be making clones. From our experience, we've also understood that they're a waste of money for the most part. Uh, you can't train clone armies or clone soldiers very well. So there are probably not too many rogue military intelligence programs at the time I would say the worst offender of that are private contractor and corporate programs. Absolutely. They don't give a crap about, you know, what 
things they're messing with beyond their ken uh, that they shouldn't be. So mostly it's corporate programs. So we're looking for the cheapest, most effective use of body power, manpower. Or growing bodies just to use their organs for... Right, organ harvesting. Organ harvesting. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Tim, as we wrap this episode up, do you see a time where there's going to be humans and hybrids and possibly even clones living together in the future? Well, one thing is for sure that the different influences that people have on this planet coming from different manipulator species probably has resulted in a, you know, conflict, a, a situation rich in conflicts. So a lot of the racial problems um, that people have on, on Earth, I'd say comes also from the different species and different subspecies um, and manipulations yeah. that we have. But I also think that the planet is learning more and more how to come together, that species, even if we look different or have different coming from different regions of the world, having different backgrounds, um, that we're all together here. And I assume that because a lot of hybrids have been placed here in order to communicate and in order to, you know, approach a more open, um, open scenario of communication, that this will eventually be something that every planet and the whole universe, you know, will experience in some time. And the advancement of disclosure, what do you think would help more? Would it be the extraterrestrials, the hybrids and clones? What do you think? I think that the majority, majority of hybrids are put here in order to initiate some kind of contact. So putting hybrids onto, on this planet uh, is an approach in order to, to, you know, Get it's like the first step. It's the first step, in. yes. Yeah. I also think that in contrast to that, it would be more beneficial to the soul of, of humans, of humanity, to uh, actually experience some kind of non-terrestrial being. Um, the best it would be, because we talked about correlationism, which means the best would be contact with a humanoid species that is a little different, a little, you know, a little different to what we, what people on earth are, but still relatable. So I think that would be the best. Yeah. Maybe because hybrids can be that. So right. this could be a scenario. Yeah. What do you think, Randy? Um, I think it could be helpful. Uh, but I, uh, my concern is that creating other racial species variations just makes for more things for certain people to hate. So I'm, but I'm not sure that that's not a blanket answer to say that just because you have hybrids or aliens that everyone definitely can a possibility. For but sure. I think that's a possibility. And, mm-hmm. and I would have to agree though that the most human like, a little different is really the best stepping stone transition to that. And 
To be honest, I'd be concerned for some of their hybrid safety and well-being if people started to talk about, oh, there's hybrids everywhere. Oh, I could make some of them very unsafe. Yeah, I could see already laws being made just for them, yeah. being a political thing. There are ter- certainly turning into some kind of you know politicization. Right. I think the best way is to have a humanoid species that is exotic enough to realize we are not alone, right. but still relatable. Oh, that would be Agreed. the key. Agreed. Totally agreed. Well, thank you guys for being on the show. I really appreciate having you as always. Thank you, Emery. Thanks for having me. I'm Emery Smith, and this is Cosmic Disclosure. Until next time. Next on Cosmic Disclosure. Life forms exist that are totally disconnected from every definition of a biological 3D life form that we are aware of here. They were different than us. Biologically different, the technology was different. The Vatican came and witnessed the the landing and exchange, and this was these were events. Possibly it's close to infinity how many species and how many life forms are out there. Very different energy than what we've had been listening for a while. Well, here we have our Matthias de Stefano. This is part eight. The egg of the dragon. The journey of remembering. Continuing his journey of remembering, Matthias de Stefano exemplifies how how to trust in the natural flow of existence, sharing how difficulties of the, of the path can show us what we need to learn. Matthias reminds us that we can, quote, see the truth everywhere as we open ourselves, unquote transporting one of his crystals charged with information of the of the salt flats huh. to the green to the great to the great salt lake Matthias exposes how subtle energies can lead us to signs from spirit guides and how we can find divine truth by letting go of expectations. Okay, let's do this. This is 18 minutes.
charge this crystal with information in the salt flat. We came to the lake to see where it was supposed to be seated. I don't usually go to the places knowing where we go or what do we have to do because I I know that in every place it would be different and if I am um, thinking on what should I do, it, it will be difficult to really flow and to really find a place. So I learned along the way that it's better to just flow and not expect anything where you are going to do some work with other dimensions because they know better than, than us. So when I was around here, I got lost a little bit because I was supposed to go to the shore of the lake, but there was no way to, to reach it. So I knew that was in that position, that, that part, but it was difficult. One of the things that I asked once to my guides was, why it has to be so difficult to get to the spot to do something? And they said, because if it's easy, you won't get the clues. You won't understand the path. You cannot understand why you are doing it. So when it's hard, you can find easily the signs to show you so you could understand. So I was asking, what do we have to do? And there was this native spirit that came talking in another language, but I could understand it inside, that she was saying, follow your totem, your totem. And for me, my totem throughout all this process was the pyramid. So I was following the pyramid. Where is the pyramid? These are the kinds of clues that when you do the long path, you figure out and you say, oh, this is it. So basically they said to me, find your totem, which is the pyramid. And the pyramid must be aligned with the sun. So, okay, let's follow there. And we're supposed to see this for the planet. So I was looking for something representing the planet or something that makes me think that this is a spot for connecting with the planet and suddenly in the middle of nowhere there is a ball a very old ball aligned with the pyramid and the sun right now so that's why it's the perfect trinity you can see when sometimes you, uh, some people may say oh this is just a silly thing or doesn't have any sense or any meaning. But one of the amazing things of the universe is that the patterns are, are all around and every, everywhere. And even in the most horrible and stinky places, you could find uh, the same patterns everywhere. So it's just to pay attention to them and not to have this preconcept of the things. You just see the truth everywhere when you just open yourself. It was like a perfect symbol for me to to say it, it's here. It, it was perfectly aligned with everything. And um, these kind of things are incredible because um, 
are tiny signals that sometimes it could be silly, but when you start to follow the signal through the path, anything can be telling you something. It's like when you are walking through the mountain, you have to to see every flower and everything to show you where is the path so you don't get lost. So anything could be helpful to understand where you're supposed to be. These things I usually do alone, so there's no one there to to see it unless we are with a group of people doing a specific task that everyone sees and someone is filming with the phone. So it's difficult to program what is going to happen and, and there is a moment that when I start to connect, everything gets weird and I cannot say do this or will happen that. I just start to flow and pay attention to what the beings are saying. And when I was in the shore of the lake, this same native person comes and tells me walk into the water. So I walked into the water, but it was all mud. It seemed sand, but you could sink on it. When I was there, she said, feel who you are. You are a human. Say it. I am human. I am human. She was saying, feel the mud. Feel the mud. This made me feel so stabilized in the mud and suddenly it got warm and it was, it was, it was nice and comfortable to be there in the water with, with the mud. And she started asking me, what is a human? What is a human? What is to be a human? What is to be a human? She said, to be a human is to be mud. And she started to explain what is to be mud. And she, she told me, uh, cover yourself in mud and your hands, your face. And I was just putting a little bit and it says, no, 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 the face. Cover your face with mud. Feel the mud. Become the mud. She said, usually we could say that mud is something disgusting or uh, dirty. And uh, when we compare humans with mud, um, we could say, but why? We should be light or enlightened or something like this. Why to be just the mud? And she said, there is the divinity. Mud is not what it is. Mud is what you can do with it. It's the potential of the universe to create life. Mud created life. Mud created home. Mud created or mud 
want. So mud is the creator. So you are mud, and you are made of it, and that's to be a human, to be water and earth. She starts explaining that, and suddenly she said, "What are you? What have you come to to sow here in these waters、uh, that is ours?" And I said, "I came to bring this information from other." Levels from other dimensions that are trying to contact us, so we could connect with、um, with everything and expand the the consciousness of the planet. And she was asking me, "What is the consciousness? What is the information that you want to give?" And I said, "I don't know. I'm just a bridge. I just expect for everything to be connected to."、Um, For humanity to be able to awaken this new path, this new time, and she said, we have been receiving from the horizon messages from all over the world constantly since the very beginning for thousands of years. We have been walking this planet, this earth, this land. Feel the light hitting the water. Feel the silence. Listen, the silence of the water. In that silence, we have been receiving all the messages from the entire world. Very powerful messages that were, "Who are we? Who am I?" And said the question. This. Places fill up with questions. Question allows you to create. Be the question. From all over the horizon, the question came. She said, "You think you are here to bring answers. What do you think is to bring answers?" And I said, "I don't know. It's to clarify things." And she said, "An answer is the end of a path, and life is a path. So how would you bring an answer to end life, or what?" She said, "What you have come here to do." If it's bringing consciousness, it's not to bring answers. It's to bring questions, because the only thing that opens the mind is the question, not the answer. The answer stops everything. The universe was made with questions, so you are here to bring consciousness on the question, not the answer, and. 
for me was very clarifying what she said in that moment. I said, I allow myself to be the question. So I took the crystals and the woman said, let me whisper it to the crystal with all this information. And she said something like, the keys, the question and wondering. The wisdom of those who are the wise and have the answers in disguise. To be so here with a question. Wisdom is one. With that intention, she gave the crystal to the water in the right spot and spread along. That's how we accomplish this part of the path once we have done all this tiny dragon's path within having all these struggles to not understanding what to do and then to acknowledge that the answer was a question. Now that the question was seated inside the egg of the dragon, the goal is to spread this wandering for the awakening of consciousness, which is something that we all have, but we are so worried about having answers because this Time is all about, I need answers. And uh, what we are not getting it is, where, where we are not getting is that is the question that is allowing the answers to appear. So it's much more important to make more questions than just to find the answers. So after this path, we keep going to do more cleaning of the of energies and different tasks that we are supposed to do, going to Tierra del Fuego in Patagonia for the eclipse and to Egypt. So we have many other tasks to do. And it is like if the earth is a machine and every different day we have something to attach in the planet. And it's something that is not for a specific thing. It's something that thousands of people have been doing for thousands of years. It's, it's like having a home. You just don't say, I have a home and everything is perfect. You daily have to clean it, daily have to repair some stuff. So it's something that um, we all have to do and it would be always like this. It's not to begin something perfect. It's to keep this house a good place to live. This path of the dragon is part of my task to finish something in February 2022 in Egypt. The region that actually today is Egypt, 
for me was the beginning of everything that I am doing. My mission in this planet started there by the nine, 12,000 years ago. And according to um, what I know, this February 2022 is like the ending of a cycle that finished for me. It ends the whole path that I have taken for 12,000 years. After that, I'm going to be ready to do a next step, which is not the activation of the planet and and only with nature, but also with the people, humans, mm-hmm. as we are. So for me, connecting in Egypt next year, 2022, is like the end of a story for me. And in March 2022, I will be free to do my mission in this life. We started to open this portal of energy. Suddenly, I wasn't there and I was like wrapped to the ground. I couldn't even speak. I couldn't do anything. I was, I was in a very horrible state. Okay. I see our sister Rainbird's here, and Caroline's got a message, and I know Rainbird will talk to us a little bit about July every year. Uh, We have the Mayan day out of time on July 25th, and then we start a new Mayan calendar. And, uh, there's more, and I know Rainbird, I'm gonna leave that to Rainbird. So I am going to do my best to share Caroline's message here. Uh, and I'll pass the talking stick after that. So greetings, dear ones. This is the week's guidance from the Ascended Masters Galactics Earth Elements. Bay Elders, Angelic Legions, Archangels, and other divine beings known as the Collective. Greetings, dear ones. We are very pleased to have this moment to speak with you today. We have spoken a great deal largely, late, excuse me, lately on the great renewal and rebirth that this earth and all her beings are experiencing now. Not Surprisingly, this has created expressions of upheaval on the planet that are also unprecedented for this era. These events require an unusual form of calm, of allowing and accepting on the part of of light bringers. In fact, you are many days expressing levels of inner strength and resilience that you might have preferred to have never needed. You are aware that the past 10 years or more have represented a noticeable shift in the universal era and that the passage out of Kali Yuga, the age of destruction, has not always been a smooth one. And so now you are wondering, is this becoming a way of life 
Or is there a final light at the end of this tunnel? One that's not an oncoming train? Ah, some humor to this question, in this question. Yet also a tiredness that so much has has been happening without obvious victory on the part of the light. We will say that the time grows increasingly shorter between all of you and the Sarah's full enactment. Yet there are stresses you wish us to address. Recently, we were asked what would become of everyone's finances if the banks decided to absorb their customers' funds to save themselves, an action allowable by law in the United States and many other countries. And, of course, laws protecting the old power structure, including the old economic forms, were created by those who feel they have the most to lose once their own machinations brought forward one form of economic collapse or another. Many of these are movements orchestrated by the old power structure, yet the collapse is occurring far more on far more on that very crowd. They have schemed to once again bring things to the dust so that they are in a position to pluck whatever assets remain and claim them for themselves. Whilst the rest struggle, understandably, you have all lived many lives where you saw this occur time and again. Much practice at seeing familiar structures fail in one life after another has taught you caution, stress, and even fear. Yet this time, you are aware on a very deep level, is different. Different to the nth degree. This era carries a light and a higher purpose, breaking through the old facade of deception that no other earth era has known. So then, the question becomes, which do you really belong to? The old earth or the new one? It is so that very little of what is occurring now will make sense to you or seem to be acceptable. As you accept that the delusions of regularity and sameness would continue, that the outer structures of earth life would simply carry on unperturbed till one magical day when the Sarah is announced, we can tell you this cannot be so. Humanity's increasing loss of freedoms was intentionally permit, permitted by your race long ago when the great experiment of duality was allowed in for the experiences and new forms of self-knowledge it would bring you as individuals, as cultures, and as a planetary species. It may feel unbelievable to you now that you could ever wish 
before the violence, destruction, and despair that humanity has endured for centuries. And indeed, you did not wish for the extremes of the third dimensional experience, not to the level which you and your planet have experienced. And so, a call was sent out by Earth and by your own soul groups, asking for assistance in freeing the planet from those forces who had carried things too far. And you yourselves were amongst those who answered to assist the planet and protect her from further destruction and to assist humanity in taking part in the light frequencies reaching uh, reaching you now or originating from the great central sun. These frequencies could have been enough to break up the human construct to, to be too powerful for the earth to sustain herself within. While the usurper power structure worked its greatest density, and so you came forward to assist. It is the work of light beings, such as yourselves, <clears throat> that has sustained humanity as you have moved from a place of dark despair and unsustainable forms of life. One that was leading to your planet's disintegration. To a form of life that is transitioning to a fifth dimensional level. This is not magic. Not some unexplained, unexpected, joyful moment that suddenly erupts and lifts everyone witnessing it to new heights. Without explanation and without any guarantee of permanent change without active engagement on your part. This is very real, as sure as you breathe in this moment, dear ones. You are saving your planet, your human race, and your own souls, own integral structures, by the light you carry and install deep into the earth and all living systems purely by your presence. We will not describe what would have occurred on your earth had you and many others not come forward at this time and joining many in the higher realms to assist along with millions of benevolent extra-dimensional and extraterrestrial beings from all over the galaxy and throughout the universe, you and they have answered the call to come forth and assist at a time as life hung so precariously in the balance. Your presence and that of others, including the Ashtar Command, has meant the avoidance of the extremes that earth life might have been brought to. Had you not come forward at this time? Yes, you are that powerful, and yes, this was your intention on a higher level. And so again we ask, to which do you belong, or the old earth or the new one? And of course you will all say the new earth. Yet you are feeling some days that the loss of the old earth is too extreme, too much of a jolt. You would desire that economic systems remain as they were, as that is most comforting. That all remain as they always have been however unequal and unjust those systems were, as that is what you have known for centuries. You would prefer that relationships, jobs, health systems, 
even governments remain as they were for the most part till that lovely moment when all is well. Yet we assume you, the roots of the old system, have had to be pulled up fully before the new living constructs could be planted. For one, the soil, air, and water must be purified, and the obvious need for the change made plain to the vast majority of humanity. And so then, the challenge becomes not only to remain patient and calm during great shifts and upheavals, but to welcome or at least accept the quakes and the shakes of great change. These shake-ups are those exact reorganizations that are bringing the divine new earth social, economic, and environmental, and political structures you have long envisioned. Amidst the tumult you see now, note how those who have long corrupted your systems have created a structure that has served only a tiny minority, suppressing the natural joy, gifts, intentions, dreams, and inherent rights of the great majority. Be aware that many in that majority would greatly doubt and dismiss the importance of great change, the need for it, without first being made aware of why a new divine law must be established now. Most of the human race would have preferred to stay and struggle, as that is all they have known for thousands of years. The power and pull of the familiar has been their safe refuge from the uncertainty of change. And yet change has come, and far more on the way. You who stand quite consciously in the light are aware of this, yet judge the changes that are occurring as too much, too dark, or difficult, too strenuous and full of uncertainty. And where is that beautiful new earth? So many have dreamt of for so long. We will explain that it is within you, friends. You are the ones birthing it in the present moment, bringing in, bringing it in with your expectations, your warmth, your kindness, your being illogically happy for no reason. And your dedication to establishing calm and inner quiet each morning before you begin the day. You have invested your life energies, not in the unchanging sameness of the old, which has been your cage, not your comfort, but in the new. Celebrate the shifts, the revelations of a congressional committee's interviewee, the growing awareness that the country or that must come out of constant war with itself and others. The developments that put the old controllers out of the seats of power, the new level, the awareness that human beings must have control over their own bodies. Oh boy. Much of this is born out of the pain, shock, disbelief. And yet out of these agonizing birth pains, the new human is born. You have come to anchor the light and you are doing that very thing. This is a far greater journey than sitting and waiting for things to get better. It is greater than feeling unhappy as seeing the old false familiar structure being made 
to dissolve. Despite the oppressive reactions of the old power structure, despite the outbursts of violence or bad behavior, open your eyes more fully. Look, the awakening has come, as evident from the loud clamor the old crowd raids as they are being pulled off of their self-appointed thrones. Yes, the view at the moment can be grim, and allow it. Accept it as a cleansing, the most logical and necessary end to a dark era that has lasted thousands of years. Let these events awaken the masses while they remind you to remain grounded in a finer, inner reality without constant reference to outer appearance. For appearance is all it is, friends. You live in a kind of hologram where a co-creation of outer life, including peace and plenty, awaits your projected thought, imaging, and expectation. The rest is up to you. Namaste, dear ones. Look to the skies and remember who you are. You are never alone. And I pass this never alone hockey stick with angels, fairies, feathers, rainbows, crystals, menahunis, quetzalcoatls, the emerald serpent feathered one, and every undine and salamander and little person I can think of. Here it comes, Rainbird. It's all yours. Rainbird? Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh. I didn't mean to overload the circuits here, Commandress. <laughs> no, I was um, having a hard time t- staying awake. Oh, <laughs> I can't that's imagine a- what that's about. <laughs> no, you can't. You've been on the microphone all day. You only know staying awake. <laughs> we got to keep that spirit of the eagle, the eagle eye alive, sister. Yeah. And see that big picture. We, and, we got yeah. the we got the TV quiet, but it's all about the eagles uh, in the north, in the snow. Oh, my goodness. I no, know. Uh, but I, 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 sh- I should let you finish your, your Mayan story, sister. No, no. I, I wanted to hear about the eagle, that beautiful animal. It's just uh, so majestic and... Hmm. Oh, and it fits with the holiday, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah. Yes, let's stick with that. But we're going to yeah, have Mayan calendar New Year, too, this month. My goodness. Yeah, the 25th is a day out of time. And we've been with the electric seed this year. I think we're switching to um, Maluk next, for next year. I haven't looked yet, but. That, I think that's what follows. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, we're going to take this one day at a time. There's so much in every day. Um, yeah. We got to figure out the independence of all of this. And I guess it's just 
we're here. We decided to show up, as Caroline was saying. What would this place look like without us all saying we're in for the long haul here? <laughs> yeah, it's been a long haul. Um, I was a much younger person when we started gathering around in this era and. <laughs> yes, Rainbow. Let's see. Wasn't that in the 1990s when this all got started? Yeah, yeah, it was. But it was in the 2000s before I, I figured out. Yeah, about yeah, all y'all. years, twenty two. Yeah. Yeah. So it seems like its own career. <laughs> I mean, but, you know, there's many here now, the younger ones that weren't here when we started. <laughs> yeah, I know. And it, it, it feels like. That's, that's a good base. It feels like there's more here. There's more of us because when those younger ones are behind it, they've got some drive to it. <laughs> yeah. It's our, our, our job, I would say, to give hope here. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I know I have it and I, I know we all can carry hope and it, it feels better and it feels more focused and yeah, we're doing this. We're doing it. And so lots of gratitude for everyone. And thank you for what you brought tonight. And, and uh, yeah. And let's celebrate this, this Independence Day with maybe the real deal. Let's, let's go there with it. <laughs> let's have peace on earth. So I pass this talking stick over to you, Rama. Here it comes. Okay. What you have there for us, Rama. Thank you, Rainbird, so much. Thank you. This is Alan Watts. Nothingness is the ultimate reality.
does all this come from? Obviously from nothing. Once again, you get how it looks behind your eyes. You evoke light out of the universe. You call into being the whole universe of light and color and hardness and heaviness and everything. You see? By seeing that nothingness is the fundamental reality, and you see it's your reality, then how can anything contaminate you? All the idea of your being scared and put out and worried and so on, it's just nothing, it's a dream. Because you're really nothing. But this is the most incredible nothing. So cheer up, you see. The essence of your mind is intrinsically pure. Pure means clear. Void. If you think of this nothingness as mere blankness, and you hold on to the idea of blankness, and kind of grisly about it, you haven't understood it. He said nothingness is really like the nothingness of space, which contains the whole universe. All sun, moon, and stars, and the mountains and rivers, and the good men and the bad men, and the animals and the insect, the whole bit, all are contained in void. So out of this void comes everything, and you are it. What else could you be? Hare Krishna, Hare Ram, Sat Nam. Sat Nam Ji. <laughs> and have an Independence Day that is you all the way. Namaste. See you manana. <laughs>